Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Don't Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets his hand right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host. I'll need them, but arseholes to me. The real street knowledge lies with Neil Kulkarna. Hello there, Al. And Taylor Parks. Morning. Team ATV Land is back in the house, everyone. <laughs> Give my regards to Broad Street. Oh, very good. <laughs> Panel, things that are pop, things that are interesting. Tell me all about them. Um, I went to the circus. Um, which, which I mean, it wasn't that pop, but um, it was fantastic. It was the best thing I'm going to see in a tent all year. And... Uh, <laughs> I think I fell in love, actually. Or um, who with? Oh, there was this performer, and she was so multi-talented, it was unbelievable. she came come out on a motorbike, which already yeah. impressed me. Um, yeah. Then she did some, frankly, inappropriate gun work, um, mm. spinning pistols in her hand. And then yeah. she did some whip work, which was thrilling, and some lasso work, which was equally thrilling, uh, which was enough skills, you know. But then 20 yeah. minutes after that, um, she appeared sort of in the corner of the tent, belting out Proud Mary, um, and Whoa. she had a fine set of pipes on her. And then later on in the finale, when they reprised the um, smile intro that they started with, she was playing sax. So she Fucking just hell. had such a devastating range of talent. I was just, I fell in love, I think. Good Lord. What are the, the perfect post-Brexit girlfriend. <laughs> Absolutely. But the circus is just, it's just fab. And, and, and I always want to write a review of a circus and then follow them. You know, follow them on the road, <laughs> do a feature. Be a, be a circus grouper. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think it's down to, um, I think my, I mean, my sister yeah, to, used to repeat. To get with her, you've got to go with all the clowns first. <laughs> you do know that, don't you? Well, there was only one clown. That was nice. And to address any possible chorophobia, we had no makeup. Um, and he was very funny. But, but you know, my, my sister always used to tell me that I followed the family home from the circus. And that's why I was part of the family. So I think I've right. got that residual affection towards the circus. But it was fantastic. I haven't been to the circus for about, what, 45 years? <laughs> Uh, on the on the field that is like one street behind me now. I remember going with my mum. All I can remember is really wanting a clown mask, <laughs> and uh, my mum going off to get one, and then her coming back and saying, "Yeah, I was going to get you a clown mask, Arrow, but I saw the elephants pissing into them." <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it, it was another twenty years later. It just suddenly dawned on me that maybe my mum was was lying to me. <laughs> And she just looked at the price of the mask and just went, fuck that, he'll only break it tomorrow. I don't know, it's quite plausible. Of course, you don't get any animals in the circus anymore. They, they're just no. kind of been replaced by motorbikes now, which is fine. Yeah. I'm still wondering what where all the other clowns have gone. 
Yeah. In custody. Oh, oh, oh very good. <laughs> so how you been, Taylor? I'm all right. Just soaring away at what's left of my life. Uh, oh, bless. What's the most exciting thing that's happened to me? I saw a bloke walking down Bethnal Green Road muttering to himself, Glenn Campbell was assassinated. Um, <laughs> okay. Which is, I thought that special knowledge uh, made him very charismatic. And mm. so I took to Twitter to call Glenn Campbell's surviving family shills and liars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but other than that, not a lot. Now, you know how we go about in chart music, Pulp Craze youngsters. We don't do anything before we shake that arse for the lovely Pulp Craze Patreon people who have stuffed their dollar down our G-strings. And the latest batch of people who have dropped $5 are Shinty Bolger, Christopher Caruso, Richard Copping, Mac McClure, Simon Galloway, Mike Landers, Benny Poole, James Langer, Tam Aitken, Tim Young, Sarah, Mark Lasua, Mike Melia, and Don Whiskerando. Oh, aren't they lovely, them, them folk? Yeah, good of Benny Poole to leave his 1940s big band. Can't uh, <laughs> give us a bit of cash. Hey, and let's not forget the pop crazy youngsters who slipped in $3 into that G-string. They are Sam Turner, James Med, Dan Metcalf, Andrew Fielder and Paul Isherwood. They're lovely as well, aren't they? Oh, lovely. Lovely $3. I mean, it chafes somewhat, but it's, it feels good. And if you are dobbing your tithe into chart music, you're also bribing your local chart return shop with satin tour jackets and making a contribution to the chart music top ten. Oh, I love this moment. Hit the fucking music. New entry at number ten for that girl dancing where you could see her knickers. Straight in at number nine, the definitive non-sandwich band. Back up two places to number eight, Taylor Parks' has 20 romantic moments. Last week's number four, this week's number seven, Fred Westlife. Oh. It's been shoved up three places to number six, here comes Jism. Last week's number two drops three places to number five, Bergerac meets Rockers Uptown. Bouncing straight back up from number seven to number four, it could only be Bomber Dog. Oh, wow. Back up three places to number three for your dog, mate. New entry at number two, Tony Blackburn and the Gay Ones, <laughs> which means... Britain's number one. A brand new chart music number one. This week's highest new entry, straight in at number one, Hot Rex. Uh, inevitable. You knew it. It oh, was yeah. just fucking nailed on, wasn't it? It was. It was. It's, it's still so great to see Bummer Dog uh, rising up yet again. And, yeah. and here comes Chisholm. I mean, it just won't go. And I don't want it to go. I no. want it to be in the top no. ten for a good while. So the new entrance, uh, that girl dancing where you could see her knickers, what kind of music's that? Who cares, eh? <laughs> the definitive non-sandwich band. Definitely early 70s. Mm. Mm. Yes. You know Swirling, I mean? organ-driven yes. blues rock. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Green yeah. Slade. <laughs> like you were saying in the last episode, Taylor, one of those bands where the uh, the bass player's got a vest on, you can see his armpit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And of course, we've established that Tony Blackburn and the gay ones—they're—they're they're, uh, rock steady. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Of course. And and Hot Rex could only be a, a glam dog. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. The shocking element of that top ten is the Doolies with Ghoulies dro- dropped right from number one, right out of the top ten, man. Yeah, they're in summer season. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, they must have deleted themselves like Wet 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 did with the love is all around. Just had enough. <laughs> So don't forget, Pop Craze Youngsters, not subscribing to patreon.com slash chart music and lobbing over your subs is killing music. So get your arse over to patreon.com slash chart music and make our G-strings swing beneath our ankles. Come on, let's get them dragging along the floor behind us. So this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, is taking us all the way back to the silver age of Top of the Pops as the time sofa touches down upon May the 21st, 1981. Oh, end of the tears, I believe, chaps. <laughs> yeah. We're doing a 1981 episode without Simon Price, which feels like we're cheating on him. I'm sorry, Simon. You know, but we've all got needs. Yeah, this means nothing. <laughs> yeah. is, is I'm it? fucking them, Simon, but I make love to you. <laughs> it feels wrong that Simon's not here because he would fight a bear if that bear could talk and it came up to him and said 1981 isn't the greatest year for pop music ever. So, you know, the first question to, to the panel is, where does 1981 stand in your eyes? Um, it, uh, for me, it's a cracking year. Mm. Um, it's a great year for pop music, and, and I know the kind of the argument has been in the past between eighty one and eighty two as a kind of zenith. Mm. Um, I would say eighty one hit heights that eighty two didn't, and is possibly the best year of the eighties all round in terms of pop music. Yeah, this is um, this is interesting because it's the first point in pop cultural history where the Second World War is no longer significant. I was watching this episode and the, the penny dropped with me. Almost everything that happened from rock and roll right through to the late 70s was either shaped by the war and the experience of war or the social changes that followed it or it was part of uh, that mass cultural and artistic reaction to the reality of the Holocaust and the atomic bomb or at least coloured in some way by its place in history so soon after the Nazis, right? Like... Uh, reached its logical conclusion with punks in swastikas because that was the flattest and dumbest and most obvious form of nihilism. Um, But then after that, this is the first generation of pop musicians born after the end of rationing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They don't look skinny and malnourished uh, like Dickensian urchins like the Stones or something or or stunted like the Small Faces. They're just healthy, (laughs) comfortable North Europeans and... Uh, the 60s happened when they were kids, so they took it all for granted and grew up in that world. Um, for these people, the Second World War is just a black and white film and a and a leather helmet they found in their granddad's shed. You know, this is the first <laughs> real post-war generation, and this decade won't be overshadowed by recent trauma. It will be overshadowed by potential trauma or the yeah. anticipation of trauma, um, and. So, you know, as such, the stage is set for a lapse into narcissism and and solipsism. (laughs) But the energy of pop music and pop culture is still strong enough that loads of it will be truly fantastic, just in a new Mm. and slightly peculiar way. I didn't get any of this because in 1981 I was still 
drinking school lunchtime water out of those dull metal beakers in like metallic gold and red and blue (laughs) which tasted of coins you know and I was still dealing with silence and solitude by thinking about stuff and reading a book and all this which set me up to fail in the 21st century Uh, too too dumb to wing it and too smart to get involved So, in the news this week, Peter Sutcliffe has just been found guilty on 13 counts of murder and is receiving his sentence tomorrow. Francois Mitterrand has been elected as the first socialist president of France. Raymond McCreesh and Patrick O'Hara have become the third and fourth people to die in the IRA hunger strike. The German magazine Die Aktuelle has published a bugged phone conversation between Prince Charles and Lady Di and has sold a million copies of their latest issue. The Pope is back on solid food after being shot earlier in the month, but the big news this week is that Adamant has had a phone call off Michael Jackson asking him where he gets his dead fancy jackets from. <laughs> oh. I wonder if this was the year that the uh, sudden... Adamant's dead rumour went round my school. Um, there was just a day where we turned up and just everyone was talking about Adamant being killed in a car crash or something. It's always a uh, car it, crash, isn't it? It is always a car crash because a few years later it was Aid Edmondson when the young ones were really? at the height of its popularity. We had that, at the, yeah, exactly the same rumour. Because a couple of um, years previous to this, we had Mork. Mork had died oh. in a car crash. <laughs> <laughs> in an egg or something, I don't know. <laughs> In the late 90s, I was working at Nickelodeon as a web designer, and the massive rumour was that, um, I think it was Kel, out of Keenan and Kel, um, he died, presumably in a car accident, but in a nicer, bigger car. And it got to the point where they had to get in touch with Nickelodeon in America and say, look, can you just get Kel to film a little something (laughs) to say, look, you stupid British cunts, I'm still alive. Shut up. (laughs) <laughs> it's the wonder of a pre-internet age. You can't get it confirmed or denied by anybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, thank so, God yeah. no one lies anymore. And, you know, the myths <laughs> are propagated thanks to the internet. <laughs> On the cover of The Enemy this week, The Beat. On the cover of Smash Hits this week, Department S. The number one LP in the UK is Stars on 45 by Star Sound. Kings of the Wild Frontiers, number two. It was number one previously for 11 weeks on the bounce. Over in America, the number one single is Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. And the number one LP is High Infidelity by REO Speedwagon. So, me boys, what were we doing in May of 1981? I was eight, turning nine. And people had stopped bullying me about my glasses and it was just kind of straight up racism by this point, which was easier to deal with in a way. But it was it was the last time I had a street life in a way. Wow. Um, and I don't mean a dodgy street life. What I mean is, I lived were... in a normal. I lived in a normal street in eighty one. In eighty two, I moved to a very middle class neighbourhood where there were no kids on the street. So my memories of eighty one are quite are quite vivid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hours of Kirby and the VG shop down the road and the girls do, do, doing do, cartwheels. Do we and, do we have to explain Kirby to some of the pop crazy young? 
youngsters. The foreign pot crazy youngsters, maybe. The, the foreign pot crazy youngsters, perhaps. Kirby was a game in which you and your co-player um, stood on opposite sides of the street mm. and threw a football and tried to bounce it off the curb back to yourself. Yeah. Um, and that was basically it, and you swapped if it fucked up. Um, hours and hours of fun. Yeah. Um, only interrupted by the most exciting moment of the week in 81, which was, I don't know if this happened everywhere, I'm guessing it did, but for us in Coventry anyway, it was the arrival of the Alpine Man. Oh, The, mate. the Alpine Man on a Sunday um, was... Oh man, he, he was a, he was a chap who used to drive down the road with a sort of milk float, basically. But yeah. it wasn't milk on his on his float. Oh my god, it was pop yeah. in all the colours of the rainbow, yes. in all in, the flavours you could imagine. Bottles. Yeah. Oh my god, like the cherry like aid was a, yeah, like Johnny's. <laughs> But the cherry aid was a particular favourite, and, and, yeah. and the, the waiting for the Alpine man, just playing on the street from dawn till dusk. Yeah. This was the last time I had that. I moved in '82 to, like I say, a middle class neighbourhood. No Kirby, no kids on the street, just no. old couples. And part of my, you know, part of my my retreat inwards, if you like, not only inwards physically into the home, but retreat inwards into myself through literature and things like that. So '81, a, a, a happy last year of normality, really. You know, I was still playing Kirby. But I was I was also very much into Waller as well, which was just bunging a ball at a wall. Right. And there was different variations at our school. You had certain rules for certain walls. Mm-hmm. So there'd be your standard wall with a tennis ball, and you you know you just lobbed it on the bounce against the wall, and you had one bounce to catch it. There was sports hall Waller, which involved uh, a rubber dog ball at the, uh, the the sports hall wall, and that was a bit that was a bit more intense and full on. Mm-hmm. But then there was also this really intricate version of Wally that was in a corner uh, with a load of vents, so you could play these fucking amazing angles. But the best game of all was what we called Death Wally, which was essentially um, you used the youth club roof, which was on a slant. And you threw the ball up and you couldn't see where it was coming down. And uh, you had to catch it on the fall. Uh, but because some youths had thrown up bottles and bricks and everything, you could be standing there listening for the ball. And then all of a sudden this fucking half brick had just come tumbling down at your face. <laughs> we made our own fun, you see. If you showed a kid a tennis and we, ball And now. made our own injuries as well. <laughs> If you showed a kid a dog ball now, they'd, they'd look for the USB connector or something. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I was coming to the end of the second year at Top Valley Comprehensive, uh, waiting for the jam to get their arse in gear and release a new album. Uh, and I also had a really nasty gash under my chin. Uh, not not because of anyone else, but because of my own fucking, you know, rigid adherence to the modernist ethic. Um, I really wanted a shirt with a collar bar, you know, like all the snooker players were wearing at the time. And uh, I got the collar bar, but I, I didn't have any shirts with a hole in the collar like you're supposed to have. So I decided to just ram it through a school shirt collar. And uh, while I was doing that, it hit a bit of plastic and went off at an angle. And uh, yeah, it, it just basically just ripped the underside of my uh, chin. Ouch. Yeah. Blood all over the place. Fucked up shirt. Not very happy, man. not. You know those those stupid because people got bored with their school uniforms and used yes. to fuck around with them. Yes, um, those adaptations. It, you'd be you'd be pleased to know actually they still go on. I wait oh, outside bless. my daughter's school every day to pick her up and you know see what the see what the kids are doing. Yeah, and um, yeah, you know that thing where you tie your tie 
so that only the short bit is kind of showing and the rest yeah. of it's kind of hidden. That's yeah. still going on. The rolled up sleeves is still going on. So yeah. Phil Collins still exerting an influence, obviously. So, yes. so these board adaptations of uniforms still continue. It, it warmed the heart to see it. Still fucking up at school, still hating school. But the good news at this time was that I got a part in the school production of The Tempest. And <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I was Trinculo the Jester. So I got to wear this fucking bob on jester outfit and i had a little jestery head on a stick oh nice uh, yeah and you know i was really enjoying arsing around and uh really definitely enjoying knocking about with rt 58 girls from uh from the Mm. from the from the nicer estate yeah what while dressed as timothy claypole (laughs) yes does that put a bit of a they thought i was cute though you see oh yeah because that always works doesn't it But yeah, you know, so there'd be lots of arty girls with crimped hair who wanted to sit on my knee and tell me how cute I was. And it was like, oh yeah, this is this is good. Yeah. Well, as, I mean, as previously discussed, you, me and Taylor, actually, this was thick into the uh, country dancing, barn dancing era mm. of yeah. high school. Yeah. Um, we were heavily into that. Music and movement had been left behind. Yeah. So we were firmly into the barn dancing phase. Can't be a also, forever, can you? No, you can't. And also, 81, I recall, I think, being the exciting time when we first got our cartridge pens, um, which was a thrilling moment. I call them fountain pens, but they're not really, are they? You don't need an inkwell for them. But um, yeah, yeah, getting the getting the cartridge pen, loading it with cartridges, breaking the nib within about a day. It was it was a thriller minute. At school at the time, uh, for for us older boys, uh, the big technological advance was those papermate pens that you could rub off the ink. Do you remember them? No, I don't remember them. Yeah. What, like, you could use a rubber to rub them out, you mean? Yeah, rub the ink out, yeah. You know, I do that remember those. I haven't deal. thought about those since 1981, but yes. Well, that's what, <laughs> that's what chart music's here for. Yeah. But it, it, was, that, it was that way you, you, could, you could get your mate who was showing off with his pen and mm. dasting them to write, Sir is a cunt, on their, <laughs> on their book. And then watch them try and rub it out and realise they've left a little indentation and <laughs> shit themselves. Glorious times. So, yeah, you know, it, it was a time where kids were expected to be able to understand Shakespeare and, and you know, complicated shit like that. And, I, you know, I used to be in... Uh, I was in, like, the Nottingham Council Youth Theatre a few years later. We were pissing Shakespeare out of our arse. And I, I, I went to a reunion a few years ago and we ran into a load of kids who were there doing it now. And, you know, we got chit-chatting and everything. And he said, oh, well, when we were here, we were doing A Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet and, and you know, Carol Churchill, Vinegar Tom and all this kind of stuff. Oh, what are you doing now? Oh, high School Musical. For yeah. fuck's sake. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, without without anyone consulting with them. Is, that, is, this, uh, is this a bit too much for you? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. <sighs> Don't get me started, man, no. on that. That's, no. yeah, that's a whole other show. Yeah, it, it's funny, though, because uh, there is something very damp and depressing about this period of time, and that's how I remember it. Um, and I know that that's how I perceived it while I was in it. I yeah. remember mm. thinking, fucking hell, this is a damp and depressing world. Um, <laughs> and I sort of knew it had something to do with the time period. Um, but, you know, at, this may or may not be coincidental, it was also vibrant and speedy and early Thatcherism notwithstanding, relatively free. Um, mm. And, you know, you can't blame me for looking back with a bit of envy to this time, to be honest. Because, okay, 
you could barely walk to the shops without getting punched in the face by the Weetabix. Um, or, or go, or, you, know, you couldn't go to a football match without getting cold, like especially if you were anything other than yeah. a ruddy shade of white. But if you were a smart-ass critic uh, who took pop music far too seriously and prone to overthinking and bouts of disproportionate fury, uh, you could end up in a three-story townhouse with a brown-eyed American film studies student and a well-fed Persian cat, you know, as, rather than approaching your 47th birthday in the certain knowledge that you're doomed to expire in a cardboard box in the doorway of Cashino. Uh, better times, I think, overall. Yeah, what's rough? I mean, I remember um, Saturdays, match days, yeah. uh, when Cov City had the, had the uh, you know, we're at Highfield Road, which was was near near to town. They town was just a no go area yeah. on match days, uh, especially for the likes of me, um, because you know, I think my parents had, had been hiding me from this aspect of things for a while, but yeah. I had started going into town myself and wasn't, hadn't worked that out in my A to Z of fear. Don't fucking go into town on match days. Cause uh, when I did, the grief I got was amazing. <laughs> Even though, you know, I was an eight year old bloody kid, but obviously 30 year old boneheads have got nobody, nobody better to shout at. Yeah. So. The same arseholes who made your life a misery at school were now making your fucking life a misery on your weekends off. Mm. Yeah, but look what happened. Look at this top of the pops. Yeah. yeah. Look what happened in response and in reaction to that. Spoiler alert, Pop Crazy Youngsters. This episode is fucking mint. I mean, I think mm. it, it may well be the best episode of Top of the Pops, quality-wise, uh, that we've we've ever come across. Although there is a yeah. mathematical reason why that may not be true, which I'll explain in good time. Ooh. <laughs> No, it's dead strong. It's just pow, pow, pow. Amazing song after it. A great episode. Yeah. So what's on telly today? Well, BBC One kickoff at 6.40am with two hours and 20 minutes of The Open University. Then it's nearly three hours of school's programmes before they shut down for exactly 52 minutes. They come back with regional news in your area, the midday news, then Pebble Mill at one, Chock-a-block, you and me, and then 45 minutes of more schools programmes. After closing down again for 53 minutes, it's more regional news in your area, then Play School, The Perils of Penelope Pitstop, Hyder, John Craven's News Round, Peter Duncan Climbs Down Gaping Gill in Blue Peter, and The Amazing Adventures of Morph. After the evening news, we get more regional news in your area, nationwide, and what else? Tomorrow's World. BBC Two also starts at 6.40 with an open university splurge followed by Play School. Then they shut down for two hours and 40 minutes before racing from Goodwood. And then they close down again for 35 minutes before two more hours of the open university. Then it's Tales from a Long Room, a short documentary about the MCC's cricket tour of the Belgian Congo, told through a magic lantern slide display. Then the mid-evening news, and they've just started Delia Smith's cookery course, which focuses this week on barbecues and picnics. ITV begins with The Good Word, five minutes of religious blather at 9.20, followed by regional news in your area and two and a half hours of schools programmes. Then it's Woofits, Get Up and Go, The Sullivans, The News at One, more regional news in your area, Take the High Road, David Steele is interviewed in Afternoon Plus, but probably not about Cyril Smith. 
The comedy <laughs> played tight about a stolen lorry full of hosiery, and Derek Beatty chats with Pat Coombs in Look Who's Talking. Then it's Aubrey, The Fantastic Four, Tarzan, The News at 5.45, Regional News in Your Area, Crossroads, and they're ten minutes away from the last in the series of the Kenny Everett video cassette featuring Dire Straits. Uh, this series of Kenny Everett was moved from Mondays to Thursdays in direct competition with Top of the Pops, mm-hmm. which pissed him off so much that he went back to the BBC. It's a bit naughty of ITV, that is, isn't it? It is, it is. Why try and compete? I mean, TNTP yeah. is, you know... Well, it's not exactly a, a, a gesture of confidence in Kenny Everett either, is it? <laughs> well, I'd say no. I'd say they were, they were out to poach viewers from Top of the Pops. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No, it's just, no. you know, no. it's a big fuck you to uh, Cuddly Ken. It was, uh, yeah, I just imagined myself hitting a six... Straight down the middle of the Belgian Congo. Yes. As, uh, as told through a magic lantern slide. Perils of Penelope Pit Stop. When I was about five, I really, really fancied Penelope Pit Stop. And I would get so fucking upset uh, every time she was tied to a track or when the hooded claw looked like he was mm-hmm. going to kill her and everything. I would scream and cry so much that my mum had to turn the telly off. Oh, those oh. are my favourite bits. <laughs> well, do you ever think about going on a double date? You and Penelope Pitstop and Simon Price and the receptionist from Hong Kong Food. <laughs> we'll find yours one day, Taylor, and then it would be, be merciless. No, round about that time as well, I was reading Core Comic, and there was a strip in there called Rat Trap mm. about this master criminal called Dr. Rat. And uh, the kids would write letters to the police or whatever saying, you know, if he did this and that, usually involving cheese and cages, this is how you capture him. And he always got away. And uh, he was so fucking terrifying. I used to have screaming (laughs) nightmares about him to the point that when me and my mum went to the paper shop to get core, she'd ask the bloke behind the counter to stick the pages together with sellotape (laughs) so I didn't accidentally open them up. Oh, bless you. (laughs) <laughs> There's nothing more terrifying than the thought of a rat with a PhD. Yeah, There's I was no so escape. lame in my I was so lame in my comic reading at that time. I don't think I'd moved on from what I had been reading. So it was still the Beano and the Bees and all that. And um, money in comics used to excite me. Mustafa Million really excited yeah. me, and and it was and a the, very yearn- billionaire. Yeah, it was a really yearnful age because I, I remember sort yeah. of you know the Argos catalogue. Uh, uh, just getting lost in that daydream game of of, of (laughs) everything you touch you'll end up getting in the Argos catalogue, you know, and just leafing through the pages and and just actually spending a couple of minutes just looking at the fridges page because the fridges (laughs) were always so full of food. They were were stocked in a way that British fridges were not. And, oh, oh, yeah, just yearning, just touching things in the Argos. Did you ever play bags there with someone? No, what's that? You, you got a catalogue or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, you you turn the page and you just oh, yeah. Yeah, touch yeah, the yeah, yeah, chat yeah. bags. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. Yeah, me and my mates <laughs> were still playing bags at this time with things like Argos catalogue. Kind of kind of moved on to men only a year or so later. <laughs> well, you had the showers in the Argos catalogue, which did provide. I remember, I seem to recall a glimpse of stuff. But um, yeah. yeah, no, just just massive yearning going on for products that that we were never going to get, like a, like yeah. a Laserdisc two thousand. 
Is it? Oh. The best thing about money in comics is that if you were rich, you would push it around in a wheelbarrow. Yeah. Like just yeah. bags of, of like coins, not even notes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, with, a pound note sign on them. Yeah, with co- like you know, like as if you were working in the Weimar Republic. You know what I mean? And it's the, <laughs> yes. But I don't believe that in 1981 this would have been a safe thing to do. Um, no, pushing bags with with a, a, a pound sign on it down the road mm. with coins literally falling out of your pockets of your shorts. Like you just yes. don't care. Yeah, like Ivor Lot and Tony broke. Yeah, he was never happy though. In the end, was he Ivor? No. Mustafa Million seemed pretty happy though with his wealth. Um, yeah. He just then again, did he have real friends? I guess that was the question. Yeah, I mean, he escaped. He, buy the, some. he escaped the sort of uh, racial prejudice you would expect a North African kid in an otherwise mm. entirely white school to experience. <laughs> but it just it never happened because uh, you know he could. Uh, Give, people could go sledging on tin trays down a pile of money in his garden. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's too much fun to be had. You see, that's how you eradicate racism in this country. It's a good way you know, to get free entry into the British establishment generally, to mm, break yes. through the, the what used to be the colour bar of the uh, good old British establishment, be an unscrupulous oil shake. Yeah, I mean, this is what, what needs to happen now. Just give non-white kids stupid amounts of money. Seems fair. Yeah. You know what they do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right then, Pulp Craze youngsters, it's time to go all the way back to May of 1981. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. No introductory music, no opening titles bar a multifaceted montage of the classic Top of the Pops logo in white on black and we're instantly faced with the horror of tonight's host in a tight red jumper with no shirt underneath and a matching Benny hat with a rainbow coloured extension on the top which makes him look like he's being grabbed by the hair by a gay pride Mr Tickle. Wag wag oops. Dave Lee <laughs> Travis. It's a detumescent raster hat, is what mm. it is, really, isn't it? It's yeah. like he's the front bit or the 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 head end of it is like a bobble hat. Uh, yeah, with red. with um with T O T P D L T on it. Yeah, it, it sounds like something in, you'd see in personal columns in uh, gay news or something. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> straight acting male into DLTTOTP. No, no time wasters. But it's not. I mean, it, it's not amusing. It's a phallic gesture that hat, and it's not yes. appropriate. He's a fucking heathen baboon, and having that and <laughs> having that sock on his head is a blatant pagan right. It extends a good three or four feet, doesn't it? It does. It does. Well, it, it looks like he's just on the verge of launching into the full Algernon Rasmataz at any moment, which I'm sure he was itching to do. He was probably waiting to try it out at the police dinner dance. (laughs) (laughs) At this moment in time, the living Nasha Badge is currently pulling a double shift on Radio 1. 
He's doing a daily hour from half past three to half past four before giving up a besweated leather chair to Steve Wright. And then at 7pm on Thursdays, he presents Wheels, a car and motorbike show, which makes him the hairy late tea. Furthermore, he's also starting to make a move towards mainstream television work. He's been booked in to talk about cars on an episode of Mad About, the ITV Kids Hobby Show currently hosted by Michael Benteen, and later in the year, he becomes a regular guest on Punchlines, the happy shopper celebrity squares, with more perms. He's also about to spend the late summer as part of the Somerset Seaside Special in Minehead, alongst Joe Loss and his orchestra, Tom O'Connor, Freddie and the Dreamers, the Wurzels, Kenny Ball and his jazz men, and Derek Bater. Oh, what a fucking lineup, man. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. It's like the Woodstock of HTV West, isn't it, that? <laughs> and he's going to finish the year as part of a celebrity team on Family Fortunes alongside Diddy David Hamilton, Ed Stewart, Pete Murray, and Tony Blackburn. Clearly a man looking for life after Top of the Pops, isn't he? Mm, he is. Because, you know, it has to be said, has there ever been a presenter so out of touch with the times as Dave Lee Travis in 1981? <laughs> He's starting to look, yeah, atrociously dated. It's still an eternal 1976 for Completely. for the hairy cunt flake here, isn't it? <laughs> the thing is, you know, obviously, always trying to remember what I actually felt at the time. Um, DLT, the big hairy sandwich, I wouldn't say I was exactly fond of him as an extremely Mm. small child. But I liked him, I think, because he was basically... He was like someone's funny dad. And I didn't have Mm. a funny dad, which I was perfectly happy about. My dad's rare bits of humour were so rare, they're unforgettable to me and my sister. But DLT, he was like one of those dads in the street who never needed much of an excuse to dress up as a woman for Cov Carnival or or, or dress up (laughs) as a Santa for the kiddies and the old folks at Christmas. And when you're a little kid, you don't really realise that such... um, you know, massive quote marks, characters are often just cunts um, hiding, yeah. hiding yeah. their yeah. squalor behind this supposed altruism. I, I think I did start hating him a few years after one. By the time of the Golden yeah. Oldie Picture Show, definitely hated him. And even with yeah. my limited exposure to him at that point, he had become tiresome. And, and by then, yeah. of course, I mean, at that time, you never doubted that he would be on the telly for the rest of your life. Because mm. by then, everyone yeah. that you saw on telly had been there all your life. And and this yes. notion of any kind of Matthew Bannister overthrow was totally foreign and unheard. No, no, no. So, no. so it, it, you know, I, I, I don't want DLT in 1981 to try and be fashionable. I mean, <laughs> at oh, all. No. God, no. But, but there comes a point, I think, where, where stylistic intransigence, like he's displaying, looks less like clinging to what used to be marketable. And just like the kind of immovability of a, of a stuck-in-the-mud cunt, convinced that they've always looked great. And I think that's what's going on here with the hat and with everything else. His, his look and his entire performance on this show could have been, like you say, from 76 and, and mm. probably should have been, you know, kept there. Well, he, he's kept on quite a short leash on this programme. Yes, though. yeah. Um, as if even 1981 was embarrassed, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but even, even in his box, he has that timeless capacity still to make you think, oh, fuck off and comb your face <laughs> with a bullet. 
It's yeah. like, and as ever, it wouldn't be so bad if he didn't so clearly have this idea of yeah. himself. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? He's like a fucking, he's like an arms dealer in a strip club. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> swaggering about. Like he's a, he doesn't think he's doing anything mm. wrong mm. because he's crazy. He's fucking crazy. <laughs> you can't predict what this guy is going to do next, right? He might, he might, he might subvert all your preconceptions of light entertainment with a single game-changing remark or or he might hack one of his balls off and fling it at the Duke of Edinburgh. You can't tell. He's just crazy. You can see that from the 30-year career doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Reporting from the Motor Show every May. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've not heard I've not heard uh, anything of Wheels, but you can imagine, can't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. He's not suited for Top of the Pops in 1981. He should be dressed up as, I don't know, a, a Piero or a Belgian movie star from the 30s, or even a robot. I mean, I've been, look, I've been looking at a lot of German pop television from the 80s because, hey, I'm that crazy. And uh, that, that, there's one called, I think it's called WWF. Nothing to do with wrestling, unfortunately. That would be make it even better. Yeah. But they do have a robot co-presenter. <laughs> and it's like, that's what... I mean, fucking old DLT sounds like a fucking robot anyway. Can you imagine if there was a robot in Star Wars called DLT? <laughs> These are not the droids you're looking for, you pilchard. <laughs> this is definitely not the droid you were looking for. Before we back away from Mr. Cornflake, I must read a letter I received last month from a a pop-crazed youngster by the name of Jason Hoyle. And it goes like this. Hey gang, just thought I'd share this with you. From 1983 to 1988, I was at secondary school in a town called Chapel on the Frith, just down the road from Buxton in Derbyshire. Sometime around 85-86, a new chemistry teacher tipped up to try and learn as horrible little oiks some of that there science. Being that the school had a high percentage of farmers' kids and rural council estate tearaways, she must have soon realised that she wasn't going to be living out any Gene Brody fantasies. She was a pleasant enough lady, but was undoubtedly a little anxious. So during that first lesson, and probably in order to show that she was down with the kids, she announced that she was the sister of local boy done good, Dave Lee Travis. <sighs> the news was greeted with, apart from a few sniggers and sideways glances, rows of nonplussed, puss-speckled faces staring blankly back at her. Unfortunately for her, it didn't end there. From then on, Whenever she entered the classroom, she was serenaded with da-da-da-da, Dave Lee Travis, da-da-da-da, Dave Lee Travis, accompanied by appropriate finger clicks, aping his jingle of the time. She managed to last two weeks. (laughs) I think this sorry episode teaches us that even though it's true that one can bask in the reflected glory of others, one can also be unwittingly infused with the stench of another's twattishness. <laughs> and kids can be right little cunts. 
Well, thank you for that, Jason. And, you know, I think it's time that we did open up the podcast to the pop craze youngsters a bit more. So if you're out there listening and you have any anecdotes related to being crazed about pop or making a cunt of yourself over pop or anything like that, something that happened while you were watching Top of the Pop, something your dad said, whatever, fling over an email to chartmusicpodcast at gmail.com. We might not read it out straight away or at all, but if you say something that's relevant to something that we're talking about down the line, we'd like to use it. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Top of the Pops. On tonight's show we've got some great stuff. We've got Shaking Stevens, we've got Pinwild, we've got Toya, whole host of good things. Starting off with the undertones and it's going to happen. After spoilering a soup son of the fear on offer tonight, while the top of his hat extends right off the screen, Travis swings back and introduces It's Going to Happen by The Undertones. Formed in Derry in 1974, The Undertones started as a covers band who played gigs at assorted schools and the scout up where lead singer Fergal Sharkey was a scout leader. After hearing the first Ramones album, they latched on to the punk boom and started to play outside of Derry. And in 1978, they recorded their first demo tape, which included the song Teenage Kicks. Although they were rejected by every label they approached, it was seized upon by John Peel, who was obsessed with Teenage Kicks. And not only did he play it to death on his radio show, he also offered to front the cash for a recording session in Belfast. After hearing them on the Peel show, they were approached by Sire Records and were signed to a five-year deal in October of 1978. And a few weeks later, they made their Top of the Pops debut as Teenage Kicks made it to number 31. By the spring of 1981, they had racked up six top 40 hits, had toured America with The Clash, had got out of their deal with Sire and signed to EMI. And this single, the follow-up to Wednesday Week, which got to number 11 in August of 1980, is the lead-off single from the forthcoming LP Positive Touch. On the day that they originally performed this single on Top of the Pops, on May the 5th, Bobby Sands died in the Mays prison after his hunger strike, and guitarist Damien O'Neill appeared on stage wearing a black armband. This is not that performance. They're in London playing the Rainbow the night after this episode was recorded, so they're back in the studio. And the song's up this week from number 29 to number 21. Well, what a start to the show this is. I, I, I love the undertones and I love this yes. song. I loved everything about them. And it's the older I get, brilliant. the older I get, the more I love the undertones. Um, yes. You know, in, in an era when so many punk bands from London were singing about riots and singing about bombs. And, you yeah. know, Belfast punk bands like Stiff Little Fingers were singing directly about the troubles. I loved the fact that the undertones response to what was going on in, you know, Londonderry at the time, which was just down the road from them, um, was to sing songs about chocolate and girls and to sing songs yes. about their cousins and to sing to try and create a normal life in their music. Um, yes. I, I thought that was a beautiful kind of gesture. And, and I, I just generally loved the way that they couldn't leave Londonderry. They couldn't 
whenever they went on tour, they could only stand it for three weeks at a time and they had to Mm. get home. Um, A very homely band that that out of all of the bands that you'll hear about the undertones that they were fired up by the Sex Pistols and you'll hear the same kind of thing about the Buzzcocks. But I think the Buzzcocks and the undertones, they're sort of two of my favourite punk influence bands, if you like. Um, yeah. because they just wrote beautiful, beautiful pop songs um, and they're yes. in love with pop and rock and roll and, and old stuff. They're into 60s beat music and and, and, mm. and they just have brilliant taste, which they put into their yes. music. I think they were much more fired up by the first Ramones album than anything else. Um, yes. So so <coughs> I, I love The Undertones. I mean, my particular favourite um, actually happens before this. It's the, it's the Hypnotised album that came out the year before, which has got My Perfect yeah. Cousin on it. Um, but yes. I loved that record. Like T-Rex records, that was the record that, that taught me to play guitar um, because it's right. so simple. And you, you can very, very... The, the sound of it is beautiful anyway, and the songs like Wednesday Week are just great. But you can yeah. very, very quickly pick up um, the riffs and the playing of that album and, and really impress yourself, you know. So um, I loved that album so much, Hypnotised. It was almost... It, you know how sometimes you love an album so much you don't want to hear anything more by the band because it's so perfect yeah. you don't want to fuck with it. I kind of didn't move on to um, the album that this song is from. Um, but um, I think I will investigate it because I've been singing this all week. Um, yeah. Love the song, love the sound, love the kind of Afro step pulse of it. And I just think John mm. O'Neill uh, from the Intones, just, just a majorly underrated songwriter, just a brilliant songwriter. Yes. But already in this performance, I think you're getting hints as to why the Undertones couldn't last in a sense and why they didn't. Even though they were touring with The Clash and stuff like that, they couldn't make that step up to become mm. a, a, a long-lasting band. And the problem is um, Sharky. Yeah. He's an odd singer, Sharky, because he, he's mm. definitely a singer first and foremost, because, you know, he was a choir boy and all the rest of it. And he was hired, in a sense, he was he was recruited by the Undertones precisely just because of his voice. He never contributed a note musically to the no. Undertones. He never wrote a word of the lyrics. And I think by this time... He had a van, though. You what, sorry? He had a van. Was, uh, yeah, but by, by this... He was, a t- he was a TV repair bloke or something mm, like that, wasn't mm. he? Or he... he or worked at Radio Renklers or something, so he had access to a van. Useful to have. And, 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 uh, Very useful. Teenage Kicks is actually probably one of my least favourite Undertones tunes, but but John O'Neill, mm. he's such a brilliant sh- songwriter, but I think by now he wanted Fergal Sharkey to start singing his songs um, in a different way here and there. Fergal Sharkey's just always got the same attack to songs. Yeah. He's got a sweet voice, but he's this weirdly old school singer who, yeah, never wrote a new note and refused to change his, his singing style for the material. In Later on in the decade, Fergal Sharkey in, um, uh, in A Good Heart gave us one of the worst melodic moments in 80s pop. Um, <laughs> a, a moment that in a way paved the way for Westlife. That resolving high oh. with this heart of mine near the end of Good Heart yeah. is one of the worst moments of 80s pop. But he is... In the Undertones context, quite a compelling frontman, like a kind of cuddlier Ian Curtis, um, with a face that kind of looks a bit over-ironed, but it also looks like, even if you don't know what his mum looks like, you guess that's what his mum looks like. He looks exactly like yeah. that. But, um, a face once unkindly described by Alan Jones as looking like a bucket with a dent in it. <laughs> <laughs> it has got this concaveness to it. Uh, which is a bit strange. Well, I, 
I also like the way at the end of this performance he reacts to the graphics, which is a rare thing that you don't see very yes. often. It's always mind blown when that happens. Now you know things like Sherlock are fucking ruining that for everybody. But um, back then that would have been pretty mind blown. But I, I absolutely love the undertone. What did he do, Neil? Explain. Oh well, well I, th- I think the undertone's name comes out and, and rises to the top of the screen, and Virgil yes. Sharky kind of waves his arm about and looks up. Um, he can clearly see a screen where this is happening. And he looks yeah. up at the titles like he can actually see them, which was a, a, yeah. a fairly mind-blowing moment for 1981. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean, I, I love. I have just been singing this all week and I need to investigate it's the album. It's a great album. song. Yeah, I need to investigate the album that it's from. But um, I think the undertones are in danger because they're so quiet about themselves in a way, the undertones, because... You know that that they they couldn't do the the get in the van and touring. They just wanted to be at home, you know, and they yeah. they wanted to be writing these kind of songs. And they they didn't have that that massively vaunting ambition that obviously Fergal Sharkey had. Um, so so they've kind of fallen by the wayside in people's memories. But I would encourage anyone listening to that era to listen to Hypnotize by The Undertones. It's one of the greatest guitar albums of all time, I think. Um, it's just a great great band. Mm. Yeah, Neil, nice as that tribute was, I suspect uh, the undertones themselves would have stopped listening as soon as you referred to it as London Derry. Oh, shit, did I? <laughs> it wouldn't have gone down Derry, well Derry, in Derry, the undertones Derry, camp, I suspect. Mm. But they were confusing about that when you were a kid because midway through Hypnotised, um, somebody plays God Save the Queen on a bass. And I was completely unsure as to which side of the fence they were they were on when I was listening to them as yeah. a kid anyway. That only emerged later. I saw a documentary, I think, a few years ago by BBC Northern Ireland called um, Here Comes the Summer, which is a fantastic documentary about the undertones, which illuminated me about mm. all of that. Although, yeah, all apologies, all apologies. Yeah, you should have just gone up to them and just said, oh, what are you then? Because people from Northern Ireland love that, in my experience. <laughs> but the thing is, they ne- they never made their politics explicit in their music. And this was as close as they no. got. And this was going to you know, be a, lot, a, lot, a song yeah. that was explicitly about, you know, Bobby Sands and the Hunger Strikers uh, at the time. But but um, I, I think somebody in the band just, just depoliticised it a little bit and made it more universal, mm. made it more general. Because it would be weird to hear the undertones sing about something explicitly political. They were always... That was that was there, but it provided the normality and the kind of f- family-like conviviality of their music. It mm. gave that an edge because they they, they were they were clinging on to to what they could in in basically living in a war zone. Yeah, well, is that was that what it is? Because I've seen this song described as being about the troubles. Mm. It's about the the, the Brits in Ireland. The last verse. You really would have to comb those lyrics to find much of a connection. I suppose you could yeah. take the chorus to mean what do you fucking expect, which is a, a reasonable <laughs> thing yeah. to say. But I mean, yeah, things are going to stay stay the same until you fuck yeah. off. Mm. But I mean, mm. I can't. Stupid revenge is what's making you stay. Yeah, I suppose. But it could be about a relationship. You know, it could be about something yeah. personal. It's not It's not spelling it out so explicitly that it has to be about politics. Yeah, I don't think anyone yeah. would mistake it for a hymn of praise to, and I say this as a yeah. strong opponent of what I still unashamedly refer to as British imperialism in Ireland, what was by <laughs> this point uh, an organisation of petty gangsters, weirdo, theocratic militarists and sucked-in psychopaths, although I accept that's easier to see from England, especially 1970s Birmingham, than from West Mm. Belfast, or in this case, Derry. Uh, But there's nothing explicit, so 
no unsuspecting listeners came into contact with any difficult ideas. It's just a really good song. It's extremely mm. easy yeah. to like. Uh, performed by some nice lads in Cotton Casuals. Uh, not yes. impressed by the brass, as I'm usually not in mm. any record that isn't soul or jazz. Uh, it never mm. seems to do anything that couldn't have been done less tootily. You know what I mean? It's mm. Uh, mm. And I really not impressed by the audience chattering and running their mouths because there's that bit where the backing track fades down to leave just the brass section playing which means we're left with two unedifying sounds at once (laughs) like the tooting and this noise that sounds like a you know, municipal swimming baths. Um, but although this, I mean, this is early 80s top of the pops, isn't it? We know this already. It's a jabber factory. Um, (laughs) it's just what it was like in there. One or two music journalists did have a go at the undertones for not singing about their lives and not being political. Oh, well, a couple but, of music journalists you know. from Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> yes. Well, you singing yes. about it. By oh. just being themselves. That said a fucking lot yeah. because, yeah. you know, apart from Stiff Little Fingers, the undertones were the only kids from Northern Ireland or even people from Northern Ireland who you would see on the telly in the Aventis not lobbing bricks at tanks with flares on or marching about with a drum. Yeah, yeah. They were always sabutio over sectarianism. Completely. Um, and when they used to play in Derry, those youth clubs that you mentioned, you know, one of the few places that people from across that religious divide could come... Um, yeah. And nobody gave a shit about it. Yeah. Um, you know, um, if only they could have kept the fun going. But yeah, and they weren't the even yeah. grim and urban. Because if you ever see, you know that programme, Something no. Else, right? Like, made yes. by the kids for the kids. And there's a few of them yeah. on YouTube. <laughs> and there's one from Belfast, because each one was from a different mm. city. There's one from yeah. Belfast in, I think, 1980. And they're all still into punks, right? Everyone there is going, oh, yeah, punk will never die in Belfast, you know, it's... It, yeah. it feels totally natural to us. Now, I don't know if it was the undertone slight detachment from that scene, because they weren't a Belfast band, despite releasing records out of Belfast. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was that which enabled them to float past the the basic limitations of punk and become such a fluid mm. pop group and so full of light and air, you know, like making mm. records like Wednesday Week and Julie Ocean, yeah. you know, which yeah. are... Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of their contemporaries just got stuck in leather jackets playing Chuck Berry riffs, you know, mm. in venues that yeah. got bigger for a bit and then rapidly smaller again. And I think people with actual talent will always find that talent expanding, at least for a couple of years, you know, which is uh, always going to take you somewhere else. But um, the undertones were always able to do what the Buzzcocks did too and retain that very basic core to their music. So yeah. it never quite floated yeah. away, you know. And in fact, yeah, this is another reason why they split in the end because Fergal Sharkey didn't want to retain that basic yeah. core to the music and and the others did. Mm. There's possibly something in the fact that, you know, Catholics in Belfast would have felt like a besieged minority, whereas Catholics in Derry were not a minority and had more of a confidence to perhaps explore just the humdrum and the everyday in their lives, in their music, Mm. um, more than having to address political concerns all the time. But that's what's so beautiful about the undertones music. But you know, I mean, you you don't listen to the undertones necessarily thinking, oh, just down the road, you know, there's armed soldiers at all. But what you hear is somebody, is people clinging to what they love and what makes them feel human, pop music. Um, and and, yeah. and their mutual love of, of T Rex and their mutual love of sixties pop and just just creating these these wonderful songs. Um, 
I love the Undertones, but I, and, and I look—I really do look forward to listening to this album because I've never properly got into it, um, mm. and and rediscovering Hypnotized as well. They need—they need, they need uh, talking about. I think this is their last good album. I don't like the last one. Uh, yeah, nor do they. Nor do yeah. they. I think. Yeah. But speaking of mm. beautiful, one thing that isn't beautiful, of course, is Fergal's performance <laughs> here. I mean, aside from the fact that he does look like a, a mixture of Mo Howard and Nick Brimble. Uh, he's, he, it's, I don't often watch him perform from this period, mm. right? So I'd forgotten that his stage act in the undertones was this kind of jerky, electrocuted movement, right? He's mm. got a slightly sort of irritating over-animation to him. It's like mm. he, he just looks like a bloke who can't dance and doesn't know what to do with his hands, and but doesn't want to just stand there with one hand on the microphone and the other in his pocket, which would actually have been less boring than having to watch this aimless post-punkiness. It's like he moves like uh, Captain Pugwash, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like, yes. like the, He is the Captain Pugwash of high-speed vibrato. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not good to see. Um, I think he's. Got, I think what he's got is one of those things that we'll see in another performer later on in this episode, is that I really don't think he cares about music at all. Um, not in the slightest. And and when fellow band members suggested to him that he could change his style a little bit for certain songs, he 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 just threw a sort of you know blank metal fence in a way. No, I'm the singer. I know how to sing these songs. I'm going to sing them always like this um, because he didn't. He wasn't really that into music. He he was he was already I think by this point probably thinking about his own solo career and his own career. Yeah. More than he was about being, you know, just just being in a band that, that's fun to be in. Yeah. Did you even know about the Black Arm Band incident? No, no, I didn't until no. much later. Yeah, until that documentary came no, out. I suspect it was just quietly not commented upon by uh, yeah. ABC. I mean, like they people yeah. at the top of the pops wouldn't, wouldn't have known. Maybe maybe DLT or whoever did it said, "Oh my God, that was like an advert for the IRA." <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards, they did regret it because it was like, oh, shit, have we pissed off our Protestant fans now? Mm. I would imagine it might have done, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it should, it should have gone on with an orange sash on this one to, to make amends. Yeah, half and half, like uh, when I'm calling you. Yes. The people at the top yes. of the pops probably just thought they'd made him captain. You know what I mean? Yes. They're not, they're not, they're not going to know yeah. what it was about. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the fact that this record is lovely and clear and bright and fresh as a newly peeled orange the uh orange not being a word a better word (laughs) i remember listening to this as a kid and thinking that uh everything goes when you're dead yes everything empties from what was in your head it's possibly the the bleakest lyric i've ever heard in my life it's arguably the the second bleakest lyric in existence the first bleakest lyric of course uh, not written by Leonard Cohen or Ian Curtis or Trent Reznor, but by Paul McCartney Ooh. with the thumbs down turned. Uh, <laughs> of course, Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. Which, which I mean, as a kid... That line used to give me chills. Mm. Yeah. It's a terrifying line. Uh, you you can do yourself in right now, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, I mean, on this on this showing, there's it looks like oh fucking hell, here's a band that's been around for a bit, and uh, it's it's now the Aventis, and they've got clearly got a second wind. Yeah, they're going to be around for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, one would have hoped the internal frictions we didn't know about. No, um, which I think yeah, as Taylor's mentioned, I think I think that that came to you know, a breaking point on the next album, which I've never bothered with and I probably won't bother with um, mm. because even the band kind of disowned that record. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing I like about them, apart from Fergal Sharkey, is that famously when the undertones come out, they've got the worst dress sense in the world. Not because they have no dress sense, but because like, they couldn't get any decent clothes and they didn't have any money. Mm. So they're like, you know, they look like, you know, they got a Parker mm. and a like a Dave Lee Travis style V-neck jumper yeah. with no shirt underneath and all that sort of stuff. And then as soon as they were on a major label and got some money, yeah. they all went out and bought nice, understated yeah. clothes. Yeah. Like they didn't sort of like buy a gold suit or something. <laughs> they just went out and bought some nice yeah. jumpers and nice jeans that look kind of cool, yeah. Yeah. you know. Uh, like the clothes they were wearing before, but nicely tailored yeah. and just... Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's just thrill, it's thrilling guitar music, but it's, they, they were so un-rock and roll, and that's what's cherishable mm. about them. The fact that when they used to leave for tours, um, they'd be crying, they'd be sobbing because they had to leave their girlfriends, and they just wanted to be at home. I just oh. think it's so sweet <laughs> that they were like that yeah. about rock and roll. They, they, they were not ambitious in that regard. They, they just wanted to make their lovely little songs. So the following week, It's Going to Happen, jumped three places to number 18, its highest position. The follow-up, Julie Ocean, stalled at number 41 in August of this year and they would never trouble the top 40 again, eventually splitting up in Do you mind? It's now time for the number two sound. A little bit of rock and roll, ladies and gentlemen, we present Chicken Steven! is surrounded by four very excitable young women wearing straw hats and elasticated bow ties, one of whom boings his prong. And his reaction, man, yeah. right, to having his little sock head twanged, it's just repulsive. Mm. There's this sort of sloppy grin crosses his face. Yes. Yes. And you can imagine that in other settings and all of them. Oh, no, no, Neil, stop there. <laughs> He then does a shit Elvis impersonation as he introduces Chicken Steven. No, seriously, that's what he says. A little bit of rock and roll, ladies and gentlemen, we present Chicken Steven. Chicken Steven. (laughs) He is amazing, isn't he? He is. I think on balance, I'd rather have Simon Bates doing his village cricket club version of Andy Kaufman. uh, (laughs) Anti-comedy. Uh, yeah. Chicken Stephen, though, though, man, that sounds like a character in Roots, doesn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine? You think Alex Haley should have put in Chicken Stephen to just liven it up a bit, make, make it a bit more fun. 
It's actually You Drive Me Crazy by Shaking Stevens. We've already covered Comrade Shaker in Chart Music 11, and by this time he is firmly grinding his white shod foot into the throat of the charts, striking a blow for heterosexual rock and roll. This is a follow-up to This Old House, which got to number one for three weeks in March and April of this year, and it's been written by Ronnie Harwood, a former member of the Savages, Screaming Lord Such's band, who also co-wrote the last song Bill Haley ever recorded, God Bless Rock and Roll. After entering the charts at number 39 at the beginning of this month, it soared 34 places to number 5, and it's now in its second week at number 2. Well... Neil, me and Taylor have already had a bit of a mm-hmm. peck at Chicken Stevens, so uh, <laughs> you go first. Well, um, I mean, I loved him then, mm. um, and I love him now, kind of, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, mm. same as anyone else, I guess my number one reason is his assault on Richard Madeley. Um, yes. Uh, you know, which remains one of the most inexplicable, bizarre, yet compelling TV moments in British TV mm. history, I think. Um, There's also uh, an instance when he first appeared on Top of the Pops doing Hot Dog, where he actually assaults Dave Lee Travis as well. <laughs> so he's got form. He's standing on top of the hot dog stand that was there as, a, as, a, as you know, part of the set. Mm. And um, Travis comes up to him and he just kind of like curls his leg around Travis's throat. It's a delicious image. <laughs> it's up there with the attack on Maidler. Mm, don't fuck Versatile, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's with the hands or with the with the calves, you know, Shakey's got it all. Don't even mildly antagonise Shakey Stevens, obviously. But, no. Um, uh, a more personal reason, which is less universal, is that where my band uh, rehearses, our studio called Moonbase, we have a Shaking Stevens scarf draped over a lamp. Ooh. It's always been there. And um, whenever artistic frustrations or differences on the rock and roll journey threaten to derail us, his, um, you know, legs akimbo, thumbs up stance on that scarf reminds <laughs> us of what's important and that we've got to plug on. And, and oh, beyond man. that, his life and career are just mind boggling. His family, yes. um, the whole time of shaking the sunsets and, and just so yes. many hits. And the fact, of course, that he teaches CPR to kids now. Um, Does he? Yeah, because he had a really bad heart attack. Um, yeah. at some point in his career. Um, he now goes school to school um, teaching CPR to children. Um, no! Yes, in Wales, so I hear. Fucking hell! Um, teaching them, you know, how to save lives. So God bless him. But I should say, um, I don't like this performance. And, and, and it's not because mm. of him, particularly. It's really because of the crowd. Yes. And it's also, also I don't like what he's wearing, I don't like him in pink. Well, that jacket looks like it was actually in black and white, but it's been colourised on a ZX Spectrum. Like someone pressed three, (laughs) like magenta, (laughs) and it just slowly filled in vertically. Yeah. I think he he had another one in cyan. (laughs) (laughs) Which is four. It's definitely, it's it's shaking Stephen's evening wear, isn't it? (laughs) Magenta sports coat with a black shirt, black trousers, and and of course, white shoes. What else? What else? But I mean... The crowd don't help because uh, for some no. reason the producers have decided to get just like literally 300 odd people on stage. Oh, there's fucking loads of them, isn't there's there? There's too many of them. And, and, and yeah. they've they're clearly been given instructions as to how to clap to this song beforehand. Instructions. Yes, that, it, it is complicated, the clapping complicated. bit, isn't it's it? It's a single clap and then a double clap and they can't keep up with it. Yes. It rapidly falls apart. 
Um, yeah. And, and uh, to be honest with you, we're, we're pre-zoo wankers, but there's an awful lot of wankers in yeah. there. Um, yes. Uh, even though there's a lot of colots, isn't there? there? Being warm. I mean, ordinarily, I'd like the fact that you can see so much of the crowd, but not when they're being arseholes like this. And, and beyond mm. all of that, I mean, I just really don't like the song. Um, I was more of a no. Green Door man myself. Um, I remember that yeah. after watching Cannonball Run. Um, that um, being startled that he could write a song about a porn film. I mean, I, I didn't realise that um, it was an old original. I thought that I thought he was naming it after a porn film, and so I was, was wondering why he didn't call a song "Deep Throat" or "Animal Farm" or something. But um, mm. Green Door was more up my street. This song, no. Um, yeah. Although written by the guy that you mentioned, I went on that guy's website, by the way, which is a, a symphony of forlornness. Um, the photo... Really? Yeah. I couldn't get oh, on it. Oh, the photos are just fantastic. He, he runs out of shots of Shaky, basically, and him on the golf course. Yeah. Um, so it rapidly becomes just, um, you know, I meet a, a young fan in Alicante, and it's just him sat next to some complete stranger in a bar. And, and it, it, it's just a great, <laughs> great site to check out. But I, I don't like the song. Don't like 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 Price's mum and the Native American. <laughs> well, there's one where he's um, there's one where he's with friends. It's always with friends, and they're never named. Yeah, you know? with friends in Tennessee. I think he's just randomly walked mm. up to strangers and. Uh, uh, man, the, when you when you write songs for Shaking Stevens, the whole world's your friend. Well, all yeah, of a sudden, though, isn't his it? whole thing is about this song. It's about uh, this song and the one he wrote for Bill Haley, and he he's clearly right. done. Not much um, for a long, long while. But I don't like the song. Don't like Shaky's outfit. Don't like the crowd. So probably one of my least favourite Shaky performances. But but at the time, I loved Shaky wherever he appeared and whenever he appeared. And he appeared everywhere. Mm. I, I do quite like this record. I think this is one of his better songs. I mean, mm-hmm. the crazy thing being that almost none of them are... Or crazy thing. Yeah, he does do that, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. It's like I remember when this came out, and everyone would sing it in the playground, and it, and it would you'd lay it on thick with the quayze. <laughs> uh, but then he, he switches from the both of them. It's like what what's going on there? But the crazy thing is that none of his hits are really objectionable mm. when you look at mm. it, even though none of them are particularly good, with the possible exception of "Merry Christmas, Everyone." Um, oh come on, Taylor. They're not that bad, you know. Um, but I don't like the crowd. Yeah, it is kind of nauseating. And it looks like a rally being held by the least frightening fascist organisation <laughs> on earth. Um, or actually, maybe it was Comrade Shakey's totalitarian vision of the Stalinist mm-hmm. paradise, you know, or the yeah. shakiest paradise. <laughs> they should all have been carrying big placards with his face on. Like in in quarter profile, just gazing off <laughs> towards uh, electrification works in the distance. <laughs> at the end of the song, they should have driven some nuclear missiles past <laughs> for Shaky to nod at. <laughs> he could have had a purge, root out all the rocky sharpest traitors and uh, yeah. paint over the sunsets on the old LP sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> Someone on Twitter going, we painted over people too. Yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> the, uh, beyond that, I refer the honourable gentleman to the answer I gave earlier on the previous 40 shaking Stephen's appearances <laughs> that we've done. I mean, we worry sometimes about whether we're going to end up repeating ourselves, but I think that only happens no. when the acts are repeating themselves. Mm. Yeah, it's their fault, everyone. I mean, you could do a four-hour podcast on each individual Beatles single, you mm. know, and never mm. use the same phrase twice. If Miles Davis had been on top of the pops, uh, you'd only have had to repeat the word trumpet. 
yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> or de- no... didn't turn round to face the camera. Yeah, but Shaking Stevens is yeah. like the perfectly spherical pebble at the centre of the universe, mm. the rotation of which is used to set the intergalactic clocks. You can say <laughs> what you like about Shaking Stevens, but it would be unfair to accuse him of inconstancy. Mm. So, you know, here we are, and and we are forgiven. I think he's also he's massively ill-served by the production team on this particular performance because they keep cutting away at the important part of his performance which is when he throws that shape yes and you you don't quite know what he's doing and you need to see his face you need to be close in at that point but at that point every single time without fail it cuts away to a shot of this panoply of clapping wankers it's that shape where he's like he's walking up the street and he's just seen a dog turd right in front of him and he's pulled himself (laughs) up (laughs) <laughs> or or a very, or a very large stag beetle. Mm, mm, that yeah, it's part. It's a vital part of his performance, and you don't really get to see it. Mm. So I think that put me off the song. I think if if it would have just been close in, just him and not the crowd, yeah, um, I would have perhaps preferred the song more. But because of the crowd, I didn't like any of it. Yeah, and and the other thing that's uh, been done that has, has has gone against Shaky on this one, you know, they're already playing with the video effects you know, with the mm. titling at the end. But for some bizarre reason, uh, uh, well, no, re- for no reason whatsoever, they drew this mental video wipe effect and it, it, it looks like someone's had their rib cage pulled apart. <laughs> Do you remember? It's, it's like, oh, fucking, it's like Alien. <laughs> Shaking Stevens got right on my tits because it was my dad's music. Mm. And if I was watching Top of the Pops with my dad and Shaky came on, you know, the knee would start going on my dad. <laughs> and, uh, oh, this is fucking proper music, this is. As opposed to them fucking puffs who are not fucking real, etc., etc. Yeah. Et yeah, cheers, Dad, shut up. No, this is heterosexual rock and roll. Mm. And he just felt like he was going to be there forever. As soon as one single went, another one came straight in. And yeah. It's just like, oh, will, be, will we ever be rid of the foul curse of... Of Chicken Stephen. <laughs> See, America had more fun, really, because where we had Shaking Stevens, they had Orion. Have you yes. seen this guy? Yes. Orion. It's like anybody who doesn't know, so he was an Elvis impersonator from around the same time who was yeah. convinced to wear a mask. Yes. To disguise his identity. So people would think perhaps the real Elvis wasn't dead. <laughs> the best part of it is that. He's just an Elvis impersonator in a, a a bling eye mask. So, yeah, the idea people will think, okay, the real Elvis isn't dead. In fact, here he is, and he's trying to disguise his identity by wearing a little eye mask with jet black sideburns and yes. quiff, white rhinestone jumpsuit, and yeah. he's playing Elvis-type music and shaking his pelvis, yeah. and then saying, thank you very much. Like, he was a yeah. sly old fox. Hiding Elvis. in plain sight. Yeah, no one would ever... And he put an album out with a picture of him on the cover rising up out of a coffin yes. as another obscure yeah. clue for the initiated. Yeah. Um, and the best thing is that, like all these sideshows, like Evil Knievel and people like that, he, he they all turn into monsters mm. and mm. egomaniacs and philandras you know with a, a home life that makes jake and vicky lamotta look like paul and linda mccartney <laughs> and it's but it's it's a brilliant story and people used to shake and faint 
in his presence. Wow. Mm. Even though he didn't even look like Elvis, he just looked like a fat hack in a Diamante <laughs> Burt Ward mask. But, yeah. Although his best record actually was before he was a Ryan, when he was still called Jimmy Ellis. Yeah. And he put out like an Elvis impersonation record called I'm Not Trying to Be Like Elvis. <laughs> Which is about yes. how Elvis impersonators were all disrespectful mm. cunts. Which is a, a genuinely brilliant move. You can't, you can't dislike that level of shitheadedness. You know what I mean? If Shaky dies, well, well, it, yeah, I'm saying if Shaky dies because I, I don't think he will ever. But if that happens, if he, if he decided to leave this planet of his own volition, mm. then. Someone's got to do an Orion for Shaking <laughs> Stevens. I mean, and the other thing about this song is that, um, you know, the, the 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 line, heaven must have sent you down, down to earth to give me a thrill. That was dead rude round our way. Because frill, uh, pronounced and written as frill with an F, round our way meant orgasm. Oh. You would see on the bus shelters and in the subways, you know, the graffiti would say, oh, tabby fingered Mandy and gave her a frill. <laughs> 7281 and stuff like that and the best bit of graffiti ever on our estate in absolutely massive letters filling the whole height of the subway was the words a finger of fudge is just enough to give yourself a frill a finger of fudge is just enough so shove it up your grill and there was an asterisk next to the word grill and underneath he wrote in brackets Grill equals fanner. <laughs> so, so yeah, this is this is just oh, this is very contentious Whoa. stuff coming from Shaker. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Um, I just need to say out loud what my favourite bit of graffiti near my house. Please is do, yes, yeah. I mean, it's not that good, but um, as good as that. But it was just, it was the size of it. And the irrefutability of it that I think I like. Just in massive letters on a railway bridge. Paul Guest fucks his mum. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> the, the best one near me, and I mean recently, where I used to live a couple of years ago, uh, on a bus shelter, it said, so-and-so, I've forgotten his name, is gay, 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 homosexual. <laughs> just to clarify yeah. <laughs> so the following week you drive me crazy stayed at number two and would stay there another week before sliding down the charts however the follow up a cover of the 1956 Jim Lowe song Green Door became his second number one staying there for four weeks in October and a year later You Drive Me Crazy was translated into Cantonese renamed Goddess of Love and became a massive hit in Hong Kong for Teresa Teng and Alan Tam and the last word on Shaky for now has to go to pop craze youngster Lee Kyle, who tweeted the following a few months back, and I've saved it for this moment. <laughs> he wrote, I used to wrestle and performed at Viz's 25th birthday party. Shaky was supposed to appear in the main event, do a clothesline and somehow win the belt. He pulled out the day before as he wanted to be taken seriously as an artist. <laughs> Nicholas Parsons did it instead. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, you are. There it was. Checking skins, you're driving crazy. And now, guess what's coming on next? Three guesses. It's Smokey Robinson, of course, and a wonderful sound like this. Now deploying the tip of his stupid hat to hold his pipe with, skillfully works in a reference to the next act. It's Smokey Robinson with Being With You. Born in Detroit in 1940, William Robinson grew up living down the road from Aretha Franklin and formed a doo-wop group called The Chimes as a teenager, which became The Matadors and finally The Miracles. In 1957, after failing to land a record deal, he hooked up with the songwriter Barry Gorder, who helped them get signed with a local label. And when he formed Tamla Records, The Miracles was one of his first signings. Robinson went on to become a massively prolific writer for Motown throughout the 60s, but his group didn't reach the UK charts until 1968, when I Second That Emotion got to number 27 in February of that year. Although the tracks of My Tears got to number 9 in 1969 and Tears of a Clown got to number 1 for a week in 1970. By that time, Robinson was looking to retire from the Miracles in order to raise his kids, Berry and Tamla, and concentrate on his side job as Motan's vice president. And he finally went solo in 1973. And his only UK chart appearance of the decade came when Just My Soul Responding got to number 35 in March of 1974. This single, the follow-up to Let Me Be The Clock, which failed to chart in the UK, was originally written for Kim Carnes, who had just had a US hit with a cover of More Love, his 1967 single with The Miracles, but his producer told him to keep it for himself. It's currently the number three single in the USA, and this week it's got up 16 places from 39 to 23. We'll address Smokey later on. And, you know, before we do so, thank fuck it's the right Smokey for a change. <laughs> but Travis, smoking a pipe, not the coolest thing you could have done on a pop show in an era when the only people passing round the ready rope were all the teachers in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your fucking geography teacher presenting Top of the Pops, isn't it? Not my geography teacher. My geography teacher was angry and violent on an almost constant basis. So Really? Yeah. Board rubbers, you know, when that back when board rubbers could do damage, it's one of the things I'm most oh, upset yeah. about as a current Sharp teacher. Sharp corners, yeah. Mm. As a current teacher, I cannot hurt the kids, not just because of professional care, the uh, duty of care, but if I throw anything at them in a classroom, it wouldn't hurt them. Board rubbers yeah. are soft now. We're not allowed yeah. those metal rulers that could really inflict damage. So yeah, uh, my uh, the teacher's arsenal is sadly withered. You could throw a laptop at more a desk, I suppose. Neil. I guess so. I guess so. I think they'd dodge it, but no. The the, the possibilities of, of just sudden random violence are dwindling in the classroom, unfortunately. Oh man, this country. <laughs> so Smoker, I mean, what did you know about him at the time? Because to me, he was he was the bloke who wrote Tears of a Clown for the Beat and and nothing else just yet. 
Well, this was this was the first I ever heard of him. Mm. This record, I think, actually, no, apart from the Beatles covers of Miracles tunes. Mm. So I was primed for '60s Smokey, mm. and I got this right, which to yeah. my nine-year-old ears might as well have been Lionel Richie. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not sure this record could mean anything to a kid because it's adult-orientated soul, mm-hmm. yes. you know, sung by a middle-aged man, and. The entire aesthetic of record and video is really alienating mm. to horrible young lads. Right, mm. like no, no edge, no edges on anything. It's all sophisticated and pastel. I mean, nowadays you listen to this and you look at the video and uh, listening to airbrushed early eighties soul while wandering around this sun-filled beach house on your own, mm. like occasionally playing a shot of pool on your own table in a game with no no opponent. It's like on a fucking pink pool table, man. That's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole thing is like a, a middle-aged cocaine fantasy, mm. like a sort mm. of Grand Theft Auto. Yes. Uh, you know, it's like Thursday, two p.m. This is you know eternally. This mm. is what he's doing yeah. until the until the masked men with guns kick the door down and yeah. spare you from a desperate old age. I'm just surprised he's not wearing a toweling dressing gown. <laughs> yes. In this video. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting you say cocaine because, I mean, he. Bla- I remember seeing an interview on Oprah, I think, where he blamed this song for starting his cocaine addiction. Um, really? Because, you know, it suddenly gave him such such success late in his career. Um, but there's a way of listening to this song whereby the subject isn't his lover but is crack cocaine and it makes it far superior. Ooh, um, yes. You know, it makes it in a kind of far superior to the Lars There She Goes, for instance. It could be seen as that. I've seen this song compared to um, Sexual Healing. I've seen it compared to I Just Called to Say I Love You as, as a kind of light, poppy, simple hit for old solsters. But I don't really like either of those songs. I find Sexual Healing far too much like having a dick prodded in your back. And and, and I Just Called <laughs> to Say I Love You. I mean, it's just emetic, isn't it? It's a terrible song. Mm. What this reminds me of more, I mean, like Taylor, at the time, I would have not responded to this at all. And this would probably yeah. have been my chance to walk out the room and yeah. diddle about somewhere else and then come back for whatever. Get the crisps in. Yeah. But um, right now, um, I kind of quite like it. It, it's a, it reminds me actually more of, of something like Slow Hand by the Pointer Sisters, a kind of a light touch song that if you wander around in it with a beautiful enough voice, as Smokey still has, um, yes. you, you get quite a nice feel. It's not quite a slow jam because it's quite a retro song in a way. But yeah, um, yeah I, I, I find it palatable now. Uh, I would have hated it at the time, though. Mm. It is quite retro in that the funny thing about this song is that he hasn't really changed his songwriting style mm. for the 80s, right? Mm. I mean, it has changed in that it's not as urgent and not as yes, fresh. Yes, it's a he's lot older. slower, isn't it? Yeah, but he hasn't done what a lot of 60s people did and tried to change the songwriting to fit the production, right? Yeah. So yeah. you get songs, you get like soul songs that were written to have smooth jazz chords on electric piano or... Mm. You know, and laid back sax solos, or if you're a rocker, like those stupid wide open power chords and massive drums, you know. Mm. Whereas Smokey just he just does the thing he does, and the eighties production works around the song, yeah. which it manages to do pretty nicely. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, there's something quite quaint about this record, because mm. like especially that middle eight that sounds like it's from 1962, mm. Mm. in the middle of all this eighties vapor. 
Uh, but on the other hand, it hasn't actually dated that badly at all yeah. in the way that a lot of 80s records by 60s artists have because he hasn't changed that much, but at the same time, he's not a self-parody. He's not stuck in the past. Yeah. And also, at this at this point in his career, he doesn't owe anyone another Tracks of My Tears or mm, no. I Got a Dance to Keep from Crying or mm. You Really Got a Hold on Me. You know. Actually, I was going to say his greatest moment was You Really Got a Hold on Me, but in fact... His greatest moment, like Stevie Wonder's, uh, came on Sesame Street. Yeah. Uh, whereas Stevie's was the ultimate all-time greatest ever live performance of Superstition, whereas Smokey's involved him singing You Really Got a Hold On Me with an <laughs> overly tactile letter U. Um, so the only thing which could possibly top the terrifying emotional depth of the original track, you know. And it's a brilliant physical comedy performance from Smokey mm-hmm. to boot, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's like together, those two are like, it's the full life experience. Like, you play, you really got a hold on me, and you understand that being a living, feeling human being is all about pain and frustration and lust and emotional slavery. And then you play, you really got a hold on me, and understand that none of that matters and we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously and in a meaningless universe, the closest thing to God consciousness is uncontrollable laughter, mm. uh, which is why piss-taking isn't just enjoyable, it's an existential necessity. With regards to, sorry to keep harping on about um, his drug addiction, which he experienced in the 80s, but I think he can't blame this record uh, for, for that, because I, by the looks no. of the video, I think he's already on crack. He, he looks he looks yeah. damaged in a way, no makeup. Um, and he, he he's floating around this uh, this beach house set, and he he does look yeah like he's totally fucked up. Am I, am I the only and one? And he's got it? the fire turned right up as well <laughs> in, in fucking yeah. summer by the beach. It's like oh mate, what's a weir? Mm. Plays a pool shot, throws his hands up. It doesn't mean on, anything. On that on that fucking pink pool table. <laughs> I mean, I like a game of pool, but if I'm in a pub and there's a pool table going and it's pink, I won't play it. Really. Seriously, it it puts me. Up. It's like a fucking. It's like an orange sabutio pitch, <laughs> or a fucking. Uh, I don't know, a, a mauve and white dartboard. It's it's just not right. It puts I mean, you I, off. I presume you play, and on it's a, cuntish. You, you play on a green one. What about yeah. a, what about a blue one? Uh, that would offend me, but it's a dark colour, so I, mm. I'd, I'd I'd try and live with it. And it's be, not right. It's you'd be just showing off. You'd be perfectly happy playing like American pool with American balls, not not just yellow and red balls. You'd, you'd be a well, white yeah, man. yeah, yeah. I am, yeah, I am. But you know, you, someone's got a, a pink pool table. It's been, oh yeah, you don't really like pool. Then. <laughs> it's a bit of a teenage song, isn't it? It's sung by a forty-one-year-old man because he's on about because it. his mates are having a go at yeah. him, and he, you know, even his family's having a go for fuck's sake. It's like, you know, you can, you can just hear Smokey's non-or going, eh, hey, you're knocking about with that slag down the road. Ah, Smokey. So I told you to shop around. <laughs> he is far too old to be taking advice on, the, on these matters from friends and relatives. I don't know. Who am I? Who am I to judge Smokey Robinson? No one. And, you know, if, if the worst comes to the worst, you know damn well there's going to be some pretty fine songs coming out of that heartbreak. So... Fair enough, Smokey. Knock your son out. <laughs> and not only is he less unpleasant than Smokey the band, yeah. he's less terrifying than Smokey the bear yes. from the mm. US Forest Service public mm. information yeah. films. Uh, he's a uh, 
only you can prevent forest yes. fires. And then suddenly one day they put out that yeah, advert. I know where this is You going. know the one I'm talking yeah, about. Where it's the glamorous sort of 70s woman with Farrah Fawcett hair. Yeah. Starts telling you not to start a forest fire. Then suddenly without warning rips off her own face. Yeah. There's violent bungle. <laughs> yeah, they're sort of moth-eaten Smokey the Bear. And he says, if you knew it was me, would you have listened? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's the most horrifying moment in the history of advertising because her face just crumples yeah. into this diabolical mask as she tears it away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have no idea what they thought they were doing. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe this is the uh, this is what Smokey's mates and family are warning him about. Yeah, that was his that was his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, being with you, soared sixteen places to number seven, and two weeks later, it went all the way to number one and stayed there for two weeks. Eventually, usurped by One Day in Your Life by Michael Jackson. Fucking hell, two Motown number ones on the bounce there. Mm-hmm. Two weeks after this episode, being with you went as high as number two in America, held off the top spot by. Kim Carnes and Betty Davis eyes. The follow-up, You Are Forever, failed to chart and he never bothered the top 40 again. However, eight months later, Dave Lee Travis was nominated Pipe Smoker of the Year 1982 by the tobacco industry and was presented with a briar pipe shaped like a microphone and a record. I shall probably smoke it rather than keep it on show, he said, after a charity lunch in London. I'm the sort of person who likes to use things rather than lock them away. (laughs) I find pipe smoking genuinely relaxing, and I heard someone once say, it is like going back to your mother's breast. Oh, oh, God. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. Smokey Robinson and being with you. At number 13 in the charts, Toya. And a number dedicated to all two-year-olds everywhere. It's called I Want to Be Free! with the tip of his cuntish hat shoved into his ear, is surrounded by some young adults of mixed gender who mug at the cameras as he shits out an appalling joke about two-year-olds and introduces I Want to Be Free by Toya. Born in Kings Heath, Birmingham in 1958, Toya Wilcox was a private girls' school pupil who got loads of deteno for letting off some alarm clocks during a speech given in the Assembly Hall by a pre-Tory leader, Margaret Thatcher, dyeing her hair in the mid-70s and generally not being arsed with school. 
At the age of 17, she enrolled in the Birmingham Old Rep Drama School. And a year later, she started working as an extra at BBC Birmingham's Pebble Mill Studio. And landed a central role in the Second City First TV play, Glitter, about a girl who longs to appear on Top of the Pops, which also featured Phil Daniels and Noel Edmonds. In the play, Wilcox got to perform two songs she had written, which encouraged her to think about a music career. And when she moved down to London to join the National Theatre, she started her own band. A year later, the actor Ian Charleston introduced her to the director Derek Jarman, who was so taken by her that he offered her any part she liked in his forthcoming film Jubilee. And when she chose the part of Mad that was going to have to be written out due to a lack of budget, Jarman went without pay to keep her in it. By 1979, when Wilcox was filming Quadrophenia, a band was signed to Safari Records and immediately started setting about the independent charts, with the single Victims of the Riddle and the EP Sheep Farming in Barnet getting to number one there. By 1980, Wilcox was all over the place, playing Miranda in Jarman's version of The Tempest, playing the part of a punk singer in Shoestring, and having ATV make a documentary about her that was watched by 10 million people. But her band, partly frustrated by their latest single, Bird in Flight, failing to break out of the indie ghetto, and really pissed off that their singer was getting all the attention, flounced off, leaving Wilcox to form a new band. Her first release of 1981, the four from Toya EP with It's a Mystery as the lead track, got to number four in March of this year and this is the follow-up which entered the charts last week at number 37 and has rocketed up 24 places to number 13. Well, here we go. Neil, do you want to say anything first (laughs) while you've got a chance? Well... Um, straight off you can see um, that I think you're meant to think with this performance with the hair you're meant to think of Bowie maybe you're meant to think of Kate Bush maybe but straight away you can tell this is from a tradition of of musical theatre bad musical theatre Andrew Lloyd Webber Tim Rice type musical theatre mm-hmm. um, this is if you ask Giles Brandreth to write a punk song this is this is what he'd come up with um, <laughs> it's a disgraceful record from a disgraceful pop star yeah I don't think there's ever been such an outrageous mismatch of talent and achievement as in the case of Toya Wilcox, right? In an art form and an industry which could almost have been designed as an elaborate mockery of the very concept of meritocracy, the the Toya Wilcox phenomenon, such as it was... And it was. ...is mm. astonishing. I mean, there's... No relevant metric by which Toya is even mediocre, right? On every single count, she's amongst the worst ever to draw breath, right? The worst singer, the worst dancer, the worst actor, the worst representative of youth and rebellion. Um, (laughs) She has no self-awareness, no humour, no guts, no no accidental comic appeal, none of which would matter were it not for her complete and overwhelming self-regard. There's this kind of misplaced auto-fascination, which is not even cheeky enough to be arrogant. Um, Mm. And while while you can't really say that her success was immense, it was sort of moderately intense and quite long-lasting, in that even today, or certainly a few years ago, 
you might innocently flick on the TV and be confronted by the remains of Toya, right, who for some reason has been asked to give us her opinion on some matter other than how to escape from a bricked-up fireplace in a derelict <laughs> farmhouse six miles from the nearest town. The unimaginable depths of anti-talent required to be a 10th-rate Hazel O'Connor, right? How could Ooh. this be possible? I was going to say, I was going to say shaking Suze, but... <laughs> yeah. And so here we are. It's a, Here we are with a single human being who personifies everything that can go wrong in pop music, right? Everything that can go wrong in a discipline where almost everyone is self-taught and not subject to any professional checks, uh, where encouraged to behave like the king and queen of the world and where objective standards of quality uh, do not exist. It's like this is the payback for those freedoms which have given us so much, right? The payback is Toya. Like those who would give up <laughs> essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. But still, Toya is the price of that freedom. Toya is the, the high explosive in the toy department that has no metal detector. It's, <laughs> this can always happen, you know? Yeah. We, yeah. we just have to take it. Well, I think the key word here is it's selfishness. This is music that, that's selfish in every way. And I know we're yeah. encouraged to think that a bit of selfishness in pop doesn't go amiss, but she, she, her whole thing is about exerting maniacal total control over everything she does. And pop don't work like that. It's not the way a pop song works. Um, a pop song, you're only slightly in control of a good pop song. A good pop song plays you as well, but there's none of that in Toya's music. There's the deep snottiness about pop music, actually, um, yeah. in, in her music. And, and it's the selfishness uh, that, that always just radiates out of every pore of her being in, in all of mm. her music and all of her work yeah. that I find so difficult to stomach. Um, yeah. If I have known people like Toya in my life, I've only known them for the, for the half hour that I've been with them. Um, and, and then I've made sure that I've never seen them again because they're, they're vampires of the soul, people like yeah. this. Yeah, oh, yeah, man. I know. It, well, you, you can see it in her performance here, right, with that ridiculous, bouncing, arm-swinging non-dance, right, like the opposite mm. of dancing. It's just yeah. a flat... It's Mad Lizzie, isn't it? It's, it's, <laughs> all it is is a, a flat demand to be watched, right, that like uh, nobody's being allowed to get on with anything useful. We all mm. our attention is stolen and wasted just by this idiot showing off, making herself uh, un- unignorable. This performance is unspeakable, and you can. It's so appropriate the way it reaches that wretched, triumphant conclusion, right? With mm. her arms aloft and her head thrown back, like she was perched on the top of the tinfoil castle you know the the empress of utter shit um (laughs) there's a way in which it's compelling right there is a sense in which it's compelling but it's not even funny it's 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 almost impossible to believe this song was not written as a deliberate exercise in stupidity or as a sort of not the nine o'clock news pastiche of what it actually is um, I can't believe they didn't have a go at her on not the night of news. 
<laughs> Pamela Stevenson would have had a fucking field week. Yeah. Never mind day. I mean, and, and the thing is with Toya, I remember viscerally disliking her at the time. Um, mm. You know, and, and the more I found out about her, the more I've seen of her, the more I've read interviews with her, the more, um, there's no other word for it, vile she becomes because it look I don't mind a bit of ego in pop don't get me wrong and I don't mind a bit of careerism in pop perhaps there's nothing wrong with wanting a career but her mm. careerism is just unending and and seemingly for no reason there, there's no mm. sort of point to it and, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. she's just she's just massively all you get is this colossal outpouring of this spoiled indulgence with with no sort of real there's not a note of generosity in her music or compassion yeah. or empathy. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. just a spoilt little cow. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Just pouring yes, out her I own do. self-adoration. <laughs> that is all that there is in this music. And why someone would respond to it other than loathing it. I mean, what, what, I remember one of the first conversations I ever had with my missus was about how much we hated Toya. And I don't know why. Oh, I think she was on the man. telly or something. But I don't know who Toya's fans were. But I can kind of imagine that they were probably just like her. Um, spoiled little rich girls. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, by 1981, this is what punk is to the general public, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Hmm. And it's... It's also, to a lot of people, this is what feminism must be. Yeah, we could be just as annoying as blokes, perhaps even more so on occasion. It's, <laughs> I have to say, my deep and abiding hatred of Toya doesn't just come from these horrible, but nowadays quite easily ignorable records and performances. Mm. It's mm. really rooted in that documentary, that incredible documentary, oh, yes. which is one of the yes. most darkly fascinating arts documentaries ever made because mm. it it's like the anti in bed with Chris Needham right it's just as compelling <laughs> yes. and jaw-dropping yeah. and endlessly quotable but instead of showing you the adorable humanity at the heart of bad but honest rock and roll it exposes every miserable inch of the empty self-regard of bad dishonest rock and roll um, and it reveals her to be one of the worst human beings never to have had a secret police at their disposal she, and <laughs> utterly consumed by this delusion not just that she's talented or in some way useful to humanity but that she's an artist and a leader mm-hmm. and a creature yes. of fascination because it's the kind of pop music documentary that's made by people I would imagine who don't really get pop music so they take this yeah. at face value yeah. right they can't yeah. tell what's good or bad because it's all junk to them so hey mm-hmm. here's someone who speaks of themselves as an artist therefore they must be an artist here's someone who doesn't just do pop music they do other stuff like theater right which mm. is always seen as the mark of someone whose talent and general artistic nature is too great to be contained within silly old pop music. In fact, it's usually the mark of someone who can't create anything worthwhile out of pop music and is therefore not fully committed to it. Um, I don't think the people who made this documentary would have listened to Toya for pleasure. I think they're just... They have this idea that the people who look the most awkward and ill at ease within pop music must be the people who are just too good for it. Right, So it opens mm. with... Toya stomping down the street. <laughs> That's the word, stomping. 
down the street, mm-hmm. trying to look above it all. And in voiceover, in this kind of put-on, stroppy voice, which is meant to suggest attitude, but it just makes it sound like a horrible child. She says... Uh, hang on, I've got this written down. She says... Yeah, of course you've got it written down. It's in your little black book. She says, my art is based on life around me. And if you call London a work of art, a piece of dog shit a work of art, then fine. Which means nothing at all. Because no. she's a complete bullshitter. But she's never yeah. called on it at any point. She, But in being indulged like this over the course of the hour... She's given an enormous length of rope and gets busy with it immediately, right? Mm. So you get that, and then after... Creates a cat's cradle with it. And after, like, take seven of her trying to look alienated on a tube train, she starts telling us about (laughs) her life, and she says, after a year at drama school, I I did some extra work at Pebble Mill, and you think, right, okay, I get it now, because this is what's going on here. Mm. It's a lousy actress playing the role of a pop singer with a script dashed off by an imbecile, and she's massively overacting. So it's like breaking glass, but but for real. You know, this is the real thing. <laughs> and of course, chaps, being residents of uh, ATV land, uh, we got Toy rammed up her arse in the Aventis, didn't we? Oh, yeah. On the BBC Midlands show, Look Here, when Pebble Mill turned itself into a youth club. For, a, for an evening or so. Yeah. I've actually looked at some uh, old episodes of that. There's one floating about on YouTube. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, Taylor? Yeah, the best thing is that bloke doing the gig listings. Yes. <laughs> you go, and uh, uh, <laughs> serving suggestion of playing at Kidderminster Town Hall tonight, <laughs> if you want to go along to that. It's remarkable. They, they, they had an assortment of Radio Wolverhampton DJs, didn't they? Yeah, it's just, it was all like made for a penny, um, and oh, looks like it. <laughs> I think my favourite bit is the uh, is where the youth gets involved. <laughs> yeah, it... for uh, unemployment clubs and stuff like that, and you're seeing the real youth of the Aventis there, aren't you? Yeah, there's that girl representing my own fair town in a pullover, <laughs> going. There are hundreds of people like me in Kidderminster. <laughs> And thousands in the Midlands as a whole. It's like, yeah, you're not fucking kidding. <laughs> There's that clip on YouTube that's been floating about of of Toya watching Derek Jarman and Christopher Biggins and Steve Strange and Vivian Stanzel playing Space Invaders. <laughs> where you can't fucking see anything, you just see some backs. <laughs> and it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, man, get out of the way. I want to see how you do that spaceship at the top. That's real kids' issues. <laughs> but yeah, anyone who ever has thrown around the word pretentious, as soon as anyone just stops reshuffling the same old cliches and tries to do something different, needs to watch this documentary mm. to understand mm. what the word pretentious actually means. right? Yeah. And the actual yeah, yeah, yeah. difference between confidence and arrogance and to learn the telltale signs of the genuine phony and how mm. poisonous those people almost always are. Um, mm. 
because their life is about keeping up that front so they don't get found out. The documentary is dominated by, like you say, her front, but there are, there are a few really key, uh, really revealing moments, genuinely revealing moments. Um, the way she glosses over things, like, um, you know, the story, according to her, is she arrives in London with a plastic bag and nothing else, yeah. Yeah. and, and she just back. gets this warehouse... You know, and turns it into an art art place where her called mayhem. Yeah, and the colossal wealth that clearly supported all of this is 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 not mentioned. She she does get called out in in a lovely part towards the end of the towards the end of the show when um, she's on a she's on a TV show and she's asked questions by various people. Um, One's a headmaster, the other one's, I think, just a librarian or something like that. Just normal people Mm. who object to her strong and strident message. And they absolutely nail her, all of them, as ultimately, yeah, a little show off who probably has had too much blue pop and needs to go and and go and sit down. And and she's got no real response when the headmaster says, you're extremely wealthy and you come from an extremely wealthy background. How are you recommending that kids drop out, you know, kids drop out of school when they're not in that position? She hasn't really got a response. She immediately, very tellingly, starts talking about herself, not other people, because she can't really comprehend other people in, 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 in that way. And there's a very, very revealing moment where she's talking about what her songs are about. And she's saying, I'm not part of punk, I'm part of the future. Um, there's yes. millions of unemployed people, blah, blah, who fucking cares? Yeah. And she says, people mm. getting murdered, who cares? Yeah, yeah, that told me, that told me everything I, I, I kind of suspected about Toya and her fakeness, yeah. but also the kind of cruelty in her heart, in a sense. Yeah, but, the, the, but, <laughs> yeah, the, but the only thing she talks about is herself, relentlessly mm. and pompously mm. throughout. I mean, in the voiceover that runs all the way through it, she addresses the audience as though we were a blob of shit that she's just <laughs> discovered on lifting a newspaper. She's like this lofty disdain for everyone else. Mm. And then that's intercut with like these passages of the most worthless and objectively dreadful music you've ever heard and <laughs> scenes of her acting so badly that Andy Warhol would have shouted, cut. Like, you see her <laughs> rehearsing a play with uh, Cassandra from Only Fools and Horses, who's yeah. another yes. terrible actor. Yeah. Um, it's, oh my, it's like a, yeah, it's like a sort of alternative comedy parody of an early 80s theatre play. Um, mm. And then you see that long section with her band to show that they're real working musicians and, you know, they're artists too. And every song they're working on sounds like Alien Invasion from the Kit Kat advert. <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the, the talentless idiot's idea of what experimental music is, where they've just taken the same basic building blocks and lumps out of which straight rock music is constructed and just put them in the wrong order. Do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, just, it doesn't sound like normal music. But it's also, it's not mm. catchy or pleasing to the ear. You know, it's just wrong mm, and yeah. mm. sounds ugly and shit. And then you congratulate yeah. yourself on having moved beyond the conventions of rock, you know. Um, yeah. And her, her her response to this is like later on, they ask her about the band and whether she overshadows the band. Um, and she <laughs> says... Called Toya. Yeah, she says, <laughs> I say this with all due respect to the band... I work harder than any of them and it's up to them Mm. to keep up with me if they want as much publicity as I get. Now, I would pay 
to learn the various nicknames by which she must have been known behind her back. Oh. Right. Imagine if you could speak to one of her road crew of the time. Mm. <laughs> Can you imagine how she must have treated the road crew? Fucking hell. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, she's an apposite pop star for the age because she clearly treats everyone like shit. And, and you know, in a Thatcherite, dawning Thatcherite age, I guess that's, that, that's perfect. But, yeah, yeah the, the, you know, even the worst pop stars, I tend to find one redeeming feature. Um, mm. in, in Toya, it's not, not possible. No. She's, she's, no. she's a, a, an out and loud, proud celebration of everything that is worse about the human spirit. And, and uh, she needs rejecting entirely. I found it really difficult watching that documentary, fast-forwarding through the music clips, though I was, because, <laughs> because just her presence is so, so horrible. And, and, and yeah. it's just it's spending an hour in the company of an, a, a genuine total narcissist yeah. with, 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 who, who really properly doesn't deserve to be a narcissist because there's nothing beautiful about her. Yeah. So yeah, nothing beautiful inside or out. So, yeah. Um, and, and this song um, is, I think, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's everything that's awful about Toya summed up in, in, in one horrible, horrible record. This isn't a song written by anyone who likes pop or even, I suspect, even grew up listening to pop or anything. You, you get that sense when you read Toya interviews about yeah. why she started a band. Yeah. She's at she's yeah. at acting school and, and she just suddenly, she just says, casts around for a band, you know what I mean? Are there any bands going? And it's just, that's not how, why or how you make music. Yeah, it, it, she does it purely out of total craven, naked ambition and careerism. That is all there is. That is all she consists of. And and mm. as a pop fan, I find that impossibly difficult to respond to. I, I feel mm. a similar feeling um, about Madonna. I think that 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 kind of that kind of feeling that this person doesn't really like music, but is using it purely to push push their own brand. And, and as an actor who should perhaps have stuck to acting, mediocre though they were, and who made almost totally bad music, she's up there with Tupac. Oh, yes. Yeah. Harsh words perhaps, but I think yeah. Tupac actually made more good songs than Toya did, i.e. he made one good song. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, when, when, you hear her say, when, the, like when she's on that programme and she's sort of introduced as though she's like a radical, Awesome. People are asking her questions yeah. about her radicalism, as if it was like Rosa Luxemburg yeah. sat there, you know. And mm. she, mm. when she gets down to detail, she compares herself to Scylla Black and Lulu and just is oh. quite honest about the fact that she's only really interested in stardom, like pushing her mm. uh, brand, as you would now call it, um, yeah. in whatever direction is the path of least resistance, you know. And at the moment, yeah. it happens to be pop music. Um, yeah, but but it but it just goes to show that the even years after the event, the media are still trying to get a handle on punk. Yeah, and they think that's what Toya yeah. is. Yeah, but that's and, what's and so- all of a sudden someone's come along and it's like, oh, you know, as we'll see, she's been interviewed on Parkinson. She's been interviewed on everything, and it's like, oh, this is the person who could explain to us what punk mm. is, even though she's saying she's not yeah. one. But and it's like, oh, she's all right, really. She's she's just like everyone else, really. She's but, just got funny hair. But that's what's so massively aggravating. Out, it's similar to the way that Madonna used to shock people. Well, if you're yes. shocked by that, 
You know, I mean, what kind of withered soul would be shocked by Madonna? In a similar way, yeah. you know, Toya is going, you know, Toya's portraying herself as some sort of transgressive artist. And here's all these idiots asking her, oh, why are you so transgressive? Why are you so rebellious? Yeah. Um, and, and she's fucking not. And, and no. kids knew it. Grown-ups knew it. A few yeah. arseholes didn't know it and bought her records, which was a terrible, terrible shame. But, but I yeah. know girls, boys, grown men, grown women, we all hated her. Yeah, mm. yeah. And there weren't many Toya fans at my school at the time, but the ones who were were always horrible. Yeah. Mm. They were just horrible girls who just wanted to scream in your face. Yeah, yeah. Basically, well, you know, because this is what punk's been reduced to. You know, yeah. there's that yeah. bit in that documentary where she does an in-store at Woolworths. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's shot <laughs> in a very, very tight angle, so you can't really see how many people have turned up. Um, a lot of the people yeah. you do see are grannies who are just, like, looking at her crazy hair. Um, but yeah. then there's a, some of her fans there, and one of them, there's a bloke in a, in a sort of leather jacket looking like a, you know, leftover punk. And he's obviously some sort of semi-stalker um, because she sees mm. him and says, uh, oh, hello, back as usual. Oh, yeah. And then there's a pause, and then she's going to sign the album, and she goes, oh, sorry, I've forgotten your name. <laughs> and he looks completely <laughs> crestfallen. And goes, Sid. <laughs> and she goes, oh, of course, Sid. How could I forget? Yeah, well, you did, because these people mean nothing mm, to you. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, her horrible, arrogant, chippy personality is so extreme that a few years ago I researched her background because I wanted to know what's the, the root of this, right? Was she deprived? Did she have a difficult childhood? Uh, was she mistreated? And no, of course, she's a very, very, very rich kid. Um, mm-hmm. And as a child, uh, her rebellion took the form of her violently assaulting her own mother, um, yeah. who would spend right. hours performing physiotherapy on her to sort out a, a spinal problem that she had as a kid and was rewarded with unprovoked physical violence from her own daughter. Now, our heroine doesn't appear to have done this because she was mentally ill or you know in retaliation for anything this was just a repulsive spoilt brat with an unearned superiority complex just lashing out because why not nobody else really matters you know Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and what we see here is a grown-up version of that little shit being treated like fucking royalty uh yeah and Mm. it's yeah and it wouldn't matter it wouldn't matter that she's one of the most dislikable characters in pop history. If she had ever once used up a second of anybody's time without wasting it, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like but, pop music yeah. is amoral, you know, for as long as it's good. And, I mean, I'd listen to anything. You know, I'd listen to uh, Louise Woodward doing a cover of <laughs> You Shook Me All Night Long. But <laughs> if it was worth listening to. But yeah, as yeah. soon as you start oh, wasting God. people's time, you become doubly disgusting and you deserve far worse than you get. I mean, the, the thing is, and also the thing is to bear in mind, it, it, it would be one thing, right, if, if this Top of the Pops performance by Toya, there was loads of Toya alikes at the front or something, yeah. or you saw loads of female fans, you know, absolutely hanging on her every word. You don't get that at all. What you get no. is one bloke, Stood really quite close to her <laughs> in awe, you know, yeah. her, her Sid. Yeah, I bet it was Sid. Yeah. 
Um, um, you know what that reminded me of? This is quite a digression, but what it reminded me of is last, no, not last year, it was a few years ago, uh, two, three years ago, uh, my band supported a Transvision Vamp, oh. right, Wendy James, and uh, it was just Wendy James, actually, solo show, and, and I thought, well, I wonder who's going to turn up to that, because it's a bit of an odd gig, um, and all it was was blokes like that. Um, there was like about 40 of them. And when we came on stage, they were clearly disappointed with me. <laughs> the fact that I, you know, that I was even there and they had to look at me. Um, I, I, um, and I, I, I left. I, I didn't stick around for, for, for Wendy. But, but what I was told afterwards was that, yeah, the whole audience was just these blokes staring at Wendy James, staring at mm. her in that way that this guy's staring at Toya, which, it, which mm. you know, that was, I'm not saying that was her entire fan base, but I no. would recall, I don't know, my sister with her mates dressing up like Toya or something like that, you know what I mean? But I don't remember mm. any of that at all. I don't think she had these acolytes or fans that a figure like Bowie would create um, because she was so no. un, just unremittingly selfish Nobody really got anything out of her, um, apart from the easily shocked and, and, and yeah, the feckless. Yeah, except, of course, there's that thing with Bowie where he's not like the Stooges or something, where if you just copy him or you haven't got any talent, you might maybe yeah. pull it off. You might accidentally make a good record. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. the worst you'll look is unoriginal. There's something mm-hmm. so kind of... With Bowie, it's a miracle that he pulled it off. So you look at his imitators, yeah. it's like... It's like if David Bowie is driving the bullet train and then Toya and Steve Strange are following behind on one of those wooden platforms with a handle going... <laughs> going down the track. But the song, fucking awful, isn't it's it? It's fucking awful and it's got, you know... It... And the lyrics are fucking awful. <laughs> the lyrics, man. Toya's idea of a teenage rebellion is to just throw a toddler fit, isn't it? Yes. Scream and shout... Yeah, but she's going to turn suburbia upside down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I could just imagine seeing Terry Scott accidentally cutting a topiary of a peacock as he gazes upon Toya. <laughs> she has this ongoing ability through all the songs on that documentary that you see to, to squeeze in these words that don't have no business in a pop song. Yeah. And, and, and that are massively annoying. <laughs> like the, the line... Um, I don't want to be sweet and neat. That's a horrible line. Yeah. Uh, knock that out. That's a fucking awful line from this song. It's isn't it? very Violet Elizabeth Bott, isn't it? It's just yeah. awful. But, but I mean, the, 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 the song is is terrible lyrically. Musically, I, I just kept thinking of Lloyd Webber. And that, that's probably a disservice because there's bits of Jesus Christ Superstar are quite big. But, <laughs> but, um, it's probably a terrible disservice. But there's, that, there's those horrible, florid sort of piano bits that, that, you know, firmly put her in that kind of prog pop thing. But it is very proggy, isn't it's it? It's very proggy. Well, this, if the, this is a new band, isn't it? and the one thing you can say for them is that they've tried to write a hit record, unlike the last mm. one, who just sort of made awful noise. Um, but it is, it's horrible. It's like all the sort of spark and, and melody and joy has just been flattened out of it, uh, except mm. the keyboard player who... Thinks he's in a symphonic prog band, and it's yeah, it's an <laughs> unholy blend. It really and, is. And, and sorry, the, the also the line, the way she delivers that. I mean, she's still banging on about a fucking hair. So what if I dye my <laughs> yeah. hair? Yeah. I've still I got still got a braid up, up there. Fuck me, man. That, yeah. that, that makes my whole body yeah. shudder yeah. with revulsion. Yeah. And the, yeah. the the worst thing, the worst thing, worse than a phony Cockney accent, right? 
which like, mm. you know, it took me about 10 years of living in the South to sound more Cockney than Brummy, right? She's been there about <laughs> six months, and there she's going, yeah, I'm a, I, I don't think I am a punk. You know, yeah, okay. Mm. Um, worse than this, worse than any of the dog shit music is just the total emptiness of the whole thing. It's the way that the way that she's co-opted that sort of radical, the last dregs of that radical energy, you know, yeah, and transformed that into an advertising campaign for a shit product, which is just her. Mm. The idea of her being rich and famous, you know, and yeah. and while doing it, has the goal to pose as an artist and as the audience's intellectual superior. And yeah. or just superior, full stop. And you can forgive yeah. a successful chancer quite a lot, but you can never forgive them that. Mm. But this is what punk has been reduced to, isn't it? I mean, or as Simon's pointed out, you know, by 1978, Sham 69, all that lot, punk's already becoming about oikishness. Yeah. And, and now... Here we have Toya wanting to be free and her idea of freedom is screaming and shouting and crawling through the alleyway singing very loud. Yeah, just annoying people who haven't done anything wrong. I mean, the song should have been called I Want to Get on Everyone's Tits. Yeah. <laughs> she rapidly started revealing sort of a true nature, not only in that documentary, but I mean, over the years, I'm sure we've all seen one loose women and all of this malarkey. Yes. Spouting a... Crap! I, I remember 2002, her leading a campaign um, against uh, um, an asylum centre in Worcestershire near our home. Right. And that sort of told me a lot as well. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It it's kind of couldn't have been more perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, they can't scream and shout near you, Toya. Yeah. She, I remember saying, I'm not some terrible racist NIMBY. Um, but... I just, I just don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the sad fact is we now live in an age where most most of the straightest, most boring people in the world have died here. Yeah. There's a specific reason why there's a character in Coronation Street that's not called Susie Battersby or Palm Olive Battersby. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. She won in the end. I don't like that thought, Al. I I'm wish sorry. you hadn't introduced it to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> And I just want to point out that Toy's wearing a, a white Doric chitin. <laughs> I need, I need to, I need to shoehorn that in. I've had that phrase rattling around my head for about thirty-two years. So, uh, when there were, when there were, when there were two girls in my uh, uh, stage decor class who gave a demonstration of Greek theatre dress, mm. and uh, yeah, Doric chitin was the only thing that stuck in my head. And I, I've been looking for a fucking way out for that. But for three fucking decades. So, you know, there we go. There's the positive thing about Toya. Yeah, I'm glad you found a little spark of joy amidst the horror of Mm. this performance. So the following week, I Want to Be Free jumped three places to number nine, going as high as number eight. The follow-up, Thunder in the Mountains, got to number four in October of this year, and she'd round out 1981 with another EP, Four more from Toya, getting to number 14 in two weeks in December when she won Best Female Singer and Most Fanciable Female in the Smash Hits Readers <coughs> Poll. Jeez, <coughs> 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 
Yes, Toya, I want to be free. Now, very serious now, look. The hat is at half-mast because of City, who went down to Tottenham Hotspurs. <laughs> Here's Spurs now! stupid cuntish hat is now sticking out at a right angle in solemn commemoration of his beloved Manchester City's capitulation to the next act, Tottenham Hotspur with Aussie's Dream. We've already discussed Tottenham Hotspur in chart music number 27 and this is the original collaboration with Chaz, Dave and Mmm. <laughs> It came together when the band's manager, Bob England, asked Hodges and Peacock to knock up a song for their favourite team, who had just won their sixth-round FA Cup game against Exeter City and were due to face Wolverhampton Wanderers in the semi-final and bunged it over to the club. When Spurs beat Wolves in a replay, both band and club went full steam ahead, going from recording to mixing to distribution to the record shops of North London in 48 hours. Not only did it catch on with the non-Arsenal half of North London, but it also became popular nationwide, entering the charts at number 45 the week before the FA Cup final, which saw Spurs and Man City draw 1-1, meaning that a replay was required the following Thursday, resulting in a truncated episode of Top of the Pops. By that time, Aussie's dream soared 37 fucking places to number 8. And after Spurs won the replay 3-2, resulting in the band playing the song live on the open top bus as it went through North London last Sunday, fuck knows how they got the piano up there, it jumped up three places this week to number 5. And here's a repeat of their original performance shot through with clips from both cup final games. Now, first question of many. I believe. Should this even be on? It's old news, isn't it? It probably shouldn't be on, but that final was tremendously exciting. Yes, it Just was. Just having football on a Thursday night was bizarre, was, I remember. It was ridiculous, wasn't it? And, and, and Ricky Villiers' goal, uh, um, you know, it, I suppose it deserves its. It deserves one last play. One last play, and that's your lot. That's your lot. Mm. I, I mean, all of this, or watching this, it. it invariably just makes me think six years from now boys Dave Bennett Keith Alchin Gary Mabbertsney <laughs> will wipe those cockney grins off those faces mm. <laughs> yes yes indeed I mean to my mind it was bad enough that Spurs had robbed us of 15 minutes of last week's top of the pops but here they are again taking up even more time talking <laughs> about they're going to do something that's already happened. It makes no fucking sense to me. What they should have done, some of the team, I know that, I know there's holidays and all that kind of stuff, some of the team should have come back with Chaz and Dave, even if it was just Oz there, so we could see the FA Cup on the piano yeah, yeah. of Chaz yeah. Hodges. That would have been something. Yeah. The FA Cup and Top of the Pops together, that would have been fucking amazing. Yeah, that would have been amazing. I do feel sorry for Ozzy as well in this performance and oh, yes. in this song. Because, I mean, he by then, of course, could say Tottenham properly. Yeah. Um, but was He got Manuel, didn't he? Yeah, he got manuel a bit. So, yeah, I was on here a while ago and we watched uh, Tottenham's 1982 Cup final song. Tottenham, Tottenham. Yeah, and this clip is no almost stop them. indistinguishable from that clip. Like, right yeah. down to the mysterious women in Spurs shirts uh, amid yeah. the throng. Just 
there to make it seem a bit less homoerotic, which is, you know, yes. a, a doomed <laughs> And some attempt. of them are legs and co as well. Yeah, but with all this prime meat on display, you know, uh, mm. yeah, more mm. more Pringles than a 24-hour garage. But I mean, <laughs> but I mean, we, we talk about shaking Stevens repeating himself, but this record and yeah. Tottenham Tottenham are like two yeah. verses of the same, like two verses of the same status quo song. You know, yes. there's not a lot of <laughs> yes. difference between them. So I kind of mm. used up everything I had to say. I mean, yeah. it, this song does suggest that Ozzy's dream was to play at Wembley, like before yeah. that was devalued by playing every tuppenny apenny kick about there and and Spurs mm-hmm. being on their way to Wembley every fortnight, you know, for a yeah. stroll <laughs> against Cardiff City or some twats. Yeah, but, it is a bit odd that someone who's won a World Cup final... Yeah. Is, oh, oh, yeah. That's that was all. That was nice, but you know the dream is. Yeah, but he was wearing number two in midfield, which must have just taken a little bit of gloss off it, you know. <laughs> but he, he wore number one in in the next uh, next year's uh, World Cup. Argentina did all the numbers in alphabetical order. Yeah, but where can you go after wearing number two? You know. Mm. I'm ve- no, I'm, it's just I'm very snotty about football records in, in as much as I know, I know the official version is that things get better with Anfield rap and World in Motion mm. and stuff like that. But um, it's not that I prefer football records like this, but I want football records to be like mm. this. Um, reaching a zenith with Go For It City, Cough City's uh, 87. <laughs> um, classic. Um, I prefer football records like this um, that don't in any way actually count as good pop music. <laughs> I mean, and it's incredibly militaristic, isn't it? Ironically enough, considering uh, what would happen soon to uh, yeah. rather spoil their relationship with their star player. Ricky V yeah. is not on stage, is he? No. I can't well, see he's, he's pissed off, no. isn't he? No one's asked him about what his dream was. <laughs> Being chased by a giant potato or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with a knife. I don't know. What's weird about Spurs and what what makes them so kind of odd is that they're the only one of the current big six English teams not to have had a period of dominance, right? Like a run mm. of a few years where they're the, mm. the boss of football, mm. you know. Yeah. But even when they've won things, uh, they've never really stayed on top of the heap for a few years no. so they can look down on everyone else and boil in their own superiority. Um mm. I mean, when teams have a period like that, it pumps up the fans in various horrible ways. But deep down, it calms them, right? So Mm. however entitled they get and however angry they are in later years when they have another team of of different blokes who happen to be wearing Mm. the same shirts who aren't as good, um, there's a sort of inner glow that lasts for a while and keeps them going, you know. Uh, Whereas Mm. Spurs' successes have been so bitty and... Really, the experience of their fans is watching nice, attractive, and expensively assembled sides win the odd yeah. cup and then fall apart as soon as the pressure's on. So the fans are sort of perpetually blue balled, you know. And I think that's why <laughs> they're, they they off, so often seem grumpy and ill at ease. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. they've been on top of the pops more than other clubs. <laughs> and you know crazy. who looks really happy about being on top of the pops? Who actually Glenn Oddle at the back, I think. Uh, he's got yeah. a look of sheer delight. He's clearly thinking about his future pop career yeah. right now. Yes, um, yeah. he's just enjoying this experience so much. Yeah. They should have a they should have a special amendment to the badge. You know, our, our clubs have stars on the badges for well for fucking any reason <laughs> nowadays. Spurs should have one on theirs, man. 
to commemorate the fact that they've been on top of the pops more than any other club. <laughs> you should have a, sil- a gold silhouette of Dave Lee Travis's wreathy head <laughs> to commemorate. Make it happen, Al. I mean, the, the shocking thing about this is how fast it rockets it up the charts. Like, you know, after the FA Cup final. And you think, fucking hell, Tottenham have not got that many fans. Well, surely. yeah, which suggests There must have been people non- all over the country. Yeah. Who didn't even care about football, never mind supported other teams. Who thought, oh, yeah, this is all right. It's the Chaz and Dave factor, and everyone loved them. Yeah, they so, did. So yes, they fine. did. It's a good old Chaz and Dave tune with yes. football nonsense on it. Yeah. So the following week, Aussie's dream stayed, stayed at number five, its highest position. The follow up, Tottenham, Tottenham would only get to number 19, and they <laughs> never troubled the charts again. Also, by this time, Ozzy's dream had turned into a nightmare due to the Falklands War, and he had left the country to train with Argentina's World Cup squad and was eventually loaned to Paris Saint-Germain before returning in 1984. And there would be three FA Cup final replays on the bounce from 1981 to 1983, resulting in at least 40 minutes of Top of the Pops that never happened because of stupid football. Fuck's sake. Oh, what we could have had. Not a lot of people get excited about netball like that. There you go, never mind. Better luck next time, City. Take that camera five. I didn't know we could afford five cameras. Number 18 in the charts. It's a teardrop mix. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Travis, the tip of his hat standing erect, bows his head to hit camera five with it as he introduces treason by the Teardrop Explodes. Formed in Liverpool in 1978, the Teardrop Explodes were immediately signed to the local label Zoo Records and put out their first single, Sleeping Gas, in February of 1979. This is the third and final single the band recorded for Zoo, and it was first put out in February of 1980, originally failing to chart. But their follow-up and first single for new label Mercury Records, When I Dream, got to number 47 for two weeks in October of that year. In the wake of their next single, Reward, which got all the way to number six in March of this year, this was put out again, and it's up this week from number 25 to number 18. Yeah, this is a sublime record. Although that might be slightly exaggerated by coming straight after Toya and Chaz and Dave with the 1981 Tottenham Hotspur FA Cup squad. Mm. I mean, but in... In that context, especially, you'd need a lot of dead bits in your brain not to hear this 
as a torrent of pleasure and imagination and not yeah. to spot the sudden return to this program of that indefinable but instantly recognizable spark that makes great pop music different from rubbish right yeah. above and beyond any direct analysis like something magical and energetic is happening in this music even though it doesn't do anything all that remarkable and suddenly the whole world lights up you know and it's a song about nothing sung mm. by some chatty looking blokes in jodhpurs and fishermen <laughs> yeah. sweaters you know the <laughs> most fascinating art form like why can you just feel the presence of beauty in this song i don't even think it's anything they did deliberately but it's clearly there yeah i mean i'm going to have to sort of change my opinion of the teardrops because I must admit, I hadn't heard this before watching this episode. Because right. to me, teardrops, teardrop explodes, sorry, uh, they're like one-hit wonders to me. You know mm. how some people you only need one record off? It's like Charles and Eddie. That's yes. obviously such a teardrop explodes. Um, you know, I, I reward hit all kinds of pleasure buttons, and that'll yeah. do me. Do you know what I mean? So I never bothered exploring mm. anymore. There, there's a few things that kind of, there's three big gaps in my musical education that always sort of make me feel slightly heretical being a music journalist. One of them is that um, I don't like the Pet Shop Boys that much. I like West End right. Girls and I don't like much else. That immediately, mm. uh, you know, is, is is not appreciated in music journalist circles. And I don't get the two sort of twin scenes of early 80s uh, British pop music in, in as much as I'm really not that fussed about New Order. And no. I'm really not that fussed about Echo and the Bunnymen and Teardrop Explodes and that whole Liverpool scene either. Mm. Um, however, watching this song, I immediately got totally suckered into it because it is a beautiful song. It reminded me that there's a thing of attempting to sound like, say, Forever Changes or something. Um, yeah. But this song is genuinely, it's just looked really interesting. It, it, it's it's got, got a really nice flow to it. And it's a, it, it is, like Taylor says, a beautiful song. Something like a band I obviously need to investigate further, or maybe I should just leave it at this, a two-hit wonder, reward and treason, and that'll do me. I don't know whether to investigate Kilimanjaro. Um, well, and I'd say give record. Passionate Friend a go. Yeah. See how you get on with that. Mm. Yeah. Well, you see, the thing with Teardrop Explodes, particularly Kilimanjaro, which is like the first album, they, much as I love them, I'm also conscious that most of their songs are just the same song. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, it could be some sort of gimmick or mm. like a perverse aesthetic thing, but I think it's not. Practically everything they did for the first couple of years just barrels along on one chord for most of the verse, and the tune is based around two notes mm. with the same wide interval that goes like... Da, da. Or every one. And you listen to Kilimanjaro, it starts to get a bit disturbing. And I sort of almost half suspect that's deliberate because yeah. that's kind of like what seeds LPs sound like. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, except yeah, yeah. two notes have a narrower interval. But it's the same sort of rest, uh, relentless uh, repetition. But I wouldn't put it past Julian Cope, but I don't know. I think he, at this point he might just have been too out of it to write <laughs> more tunes. Yeah. But this is the big exception from this album because this one shows what he could really do. Yeah. Um, it's got this immense sort of sweeping melody uh, and the chorus that sounds sort of authentically uh, expansive. It's not like mock heroic you know, which is why I dislike Echo and the Bunnymen, all that sort of mock heroics. Right. Because mm. um, this just sounds full of air, you know. I yeah. think if all their stuff had been on this level, or the level of um, Tiny Children, which is their best song, uh, and an authentically 
emotional record, despite Julian Cope's almost psychotically emotionless vocal, um, then they would have been the second best band out of Liverpool rather than the third or possibly the fourth, depending on <laughs> how you rate the searches. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with this performance here, it's clear that Julian Cope is the only person that, that anyone's interested in. Yeah. Yeah, you can't take and your eyes off him. I really liked him. I really liked Julian Cope when I was uh, like 13. He was a bit like your, your your best mate's really decent older brother mm. who was a bit of a boffin uh, and could also play the guitar and you kind of like, you were really envious that he wasn't your big brother. Yeah, or to put it another way, he's like Kevin Ayres because when you mm. get into or discover Kevin Ayres, you can't look at Julian Cope the same way again because not only does he look exactly like him, he sounds exactly like him too. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the Orion of of Kevin Ayres. <laughs> now the, what Julian Cope does, like or did really well, is that he would take that sort of... Uh, that 70s head music and like Kevin Ayres and all that stuff and then drag it backwards through garage rock like and round again through punk like bashing a sheet against a rock to mm. to you know get off all that hippie mold um yes and it works really well you know what well, yeah what I like about what Cope does he when he does go back to the 60s it, it's not the fucking doors basically and it's it, it's more like it's more likely to be the electric prunes which are, who are always a more interesting band anyway so his mm. his kind of obscurantism was 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 always yielded good dividends i thought yeah i know there's a lot about this band being kind of monged out on lsd a lot um mm. as to yeah. whether they're monged out on lsd on this performance i'm not sure i mean whenever i was on yeah. lsd the urge to sing and dance never really came to the fore. It was more the urge to kind of, I don't know, watch a pendulum swinging in a hallway grandfather clock for an hour, firing at it with a spud gun and hitting it every time with a lovely sort of sonorous chime that radiated away in chromatic orange waves. Things like that. It wasn't really about jumping around and singing. If they were, if they were tripping, I mean, hats off to them. They're putting a lot of effort in. I've never done LSD, but I'm guessing that if I had done it, I wouldn't want to do it in the presence of Dave Lee Travis and an enormous fucking... Oh, that would be terrifying, man. Well, what it is with Teardrop Explodes is there's something really abstract about their stuff. Um, It's not really pointed in any particular direction. Um, But it's not so much like tripping. It's more like that sort of flat, blasted uh, mental state you get into when you've just been taking too much acid, but Mm. you haven't gone insane yet. It's just like this sort of sprawling mental wilderness you know like very brightly and confusingly lit but almost featureless it's just like this heavy uh, throbbing mess you know uh, and then after he left um his first two solo albums is the best stuff julian cope ever did i think uh world shut your mouth which has got nothing to do with the song world shut your mouth which is from a few years later uh, and fried which are to me are like all time classic. He's trying really hard to make them like Sid Barrett solo albums. Like mm. you know, he's really <clears throat> damaged and stuff. But I think he was a bit. Uh, mm. And they don't have quite that same uh, feel because he's present again. You know, he feels like it feels like he's emotionally present and human uh, on those albums in a way that he's not on the teardrop stuff. But I mean, it is all very drug oriented and and there's a sense in which it's very unconstructive and 
solipsistic and useless, you know, like a lot of LSD-related stuff. But mm. on the other hand, I'd rather have that than, like, kids now just talking about food and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was in a cafe, right, the other day. I was trying to read a book. This sort of fit and healthy young couple came in and sat down at the table next to me. And for 45 minutes, they just talked about food. And it wasn't, like, conceptually, like, they had something to say about food. It was they were going to make a chicken pancetta. And they were right. talking about where to get the ingredients and, you know, how well, to make it. from a fucking it. shop, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> they were just talking about cooking it. They weren't even excited about it. They just, they didn't have no. anything better to talk about. Mm, Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I say, give me the, the, the neon lit shambles of the acid head brain over that any day because it's less frightening and then another mm. another load of people came in and there was this girl blathering on and she says what's your favorite non-dairy milk <laughs> right and then she answered herself she said oatly is killing it right <laughs> why are people so boring why are people so fucking boring now and then later on she said and I've, by this point, yeah, I was earwigging, right? She said, <laughs> she said my twen- 2019 goals is to be close to nature, Jesus. surrounded by nature and shit that I care about. <laughs> mm. <laughs> she wants to turn suburbia upside down. She said, next week I'm going to the Azores. Started talking about all these places, like she was going to all this jet fuel she was going to burn up in order to yes. be closer to nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you talk, I mean, because every year I have to talk to kind of a generation of kids, if you like, to interview them, to get on courses and stuff. And what when you ask them about themselves and what they're into, what you actually get back is a list of their anxieties. It's like yeah. lords. So I've got a very, very low tolerance for all this shit now. So, it was, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of allergic to allergies, if you like. Um, when I hear about somebody being allergic to something, they can't eat this, they can't eat that. I am very much of the, you know, gluten intolerant bone idol, more like, um, <laughs> which is terrible and unsympathetic, but I've just heard too much of it, you know. So the following week, treason dropped three places to number 21. The follow up, Passionate Friend, got to number 25 in October of this year, their last appearance in the top 40. Sadly, diminishing returns set in and the band split up in 1982. And now this is where I get hot on the collar. I get very excited because my favourite ladies, let's go! Whoa! Travis, with steam literally coming out of his ear, pulls at the collar of his jumper in a carry-on for slap the back of the neck style as he introduces Legs and Co without even bothering to mention the band or the song. It's Stray Cat Strut by the Stray Cats. 
Formed by three schoolmates in Long Island as the Tomcats in 1979, the Stray Cats were teenage rockabilly revivalists who garnered a following in CBGB's and Max's Kansas City before hearing all about that Ted revival thing in the UK, which caused them to flog their instruments and buy plane tickets to London in 1980. Once here, they set about the Ted strongholds with gleeful abandon, causing Mick Jagger, Pete Townsend and Jimmy Page to check them out. And after one such gig in London, they were introduced to Dave Edmonds, who offered to produce their first LP. After signing to Arista, their debut single, Runaway Boys, went all the way to number 9 in December of 1980, and this is the follow-up to Rock This Town, which also got to number 9 in February of this year, and it's up this week from number 14 to number 11, and they've been rewarded by having Legs and Co. doing their catty thing all over it. We need to go back to that Travis introduction, chaps. It was uh, it was quite remarkable, wasn't it? Yeah, magic of the movies. I mean, that jet of steam yes. I, I would previously have associated only with uh, Sid James growling and charging like a bull at Jen Sims. Um, yes, it, it, it's it's remarkably precise jet of steam as well. It's not just dry it really ice is, around man. his head or anything. It's precisely. They've got out a of pipe up in his. <laughs> In his pubic tanglement, which, which, which makes you think that some poor runner on that show had to touch that beard, had to yes. had to dodge oh. the bits of dried egg that were probably encrusted into it, and, and, <laughs> and the, the little tufts of tobacco as well. How grotesque that mm. poor person! So, what do we talk about first, me dear boys? The song or the performance? Well, the performance has a real yeah, uh, yeah it has a real um, hot gossipness to it. Um, yes, and, it really and, does. And what I it? immediately recalled was just colossal embarrassment. This was the kind of thing... If rude stuff came on the telly, because I'd be watching this with my parents, <laughs> yes. if rude stuff came yes. on the telly, whatever, however sexualised it was, whether it was this or whether it was, yeah. I don't know, a particularly fruity scene from Dallas or Dynasty or something, I would just yeah. um, hide behind cushions or leave the room. I couldn't watch... Oh, I, no. I couldn't watch that stuff <laughs> with my parents in the room. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was eight turning nine and any burgeoning yeah. sexuality I had... I mean, basically, if I even mentioned a girl's name in my parents' presence, my mum would, you know, nurture me by going, woo, woo, do you fancy her? Which, oh, just, no. which just made me, oh, no. yeah, which just made me avoid, you know, that entire yeah. subject. So anything yeah. sexual, anything rude like that, I, I would have kind of bolted and got out. Got yeah, out. Watching I it, was like that. Yeah. I was just like that, Neil. My, I remember one time there was a, an episode of Disney Time on when I was five mm. and I was at my grandpa's and there was this young kind of early 70s Britney Spears type mm-hmm. uh, singing a bit of a song and I'm just sitting there just minding my own business and my dad and my grandpa would come back from the pub and they're like, oh, she's a bit of all right, isn't she, Aral? Oh, and I remember marching off, stomping off to sit at the bottom of the stairs and just feel really angry. <laughs> and I carried that through my life. It was like, oh, what, what that taught me was is that if you show any affection or you, you make out that you fancy anyone, it's something that you, you've got to hide mm. or you'll have the piss taken out of you. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, yeah. Um, but, uh, even to this day, I don't ask, I don't ask uh, ladies out. Well, Al, no, to this day, right, I, you know, the most uncomfortable moments for me are when you're with other men and they start talking about 
women in that way. I yeah. feel so uncomfortable in those scenarios. I, like I've been yeah. in staff rooms and stuff where I don't know, yeah. it's just been blokes and they start talking about, I, I have to get out of that scenario. It, it's too yeah. close to a fucking biscuit game, basically. So <laughs> I just want out. And, and similarly, yeah. yeah, at that age, I would have just bolted. I would have just ran out the room. <laughs> I was pretty similar to you at the time as well, no, because whenever something a bit fruity came on the telly and I was watching it with my family, it would be, I, I, and I actually did a diagram of this and I drew it out, the eye lines of everyone in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> And it would, it would start with my mum, right? My mum would look at my dad and my dad would look at me mm. and I'd be looking at the dog on the floor and the dog would be looking at the teller. <laughs> so there's this shagging scene going on and the only person watching it is, is Rex, <laughs> the fucking dog. Hot Rex. Yes, no, there is the, the element of the hot gossip about it. And, you know, this is in competition with uh, Kenny Everett. I don't think hot gossip were going at the time, though. Yeah, by yeah, this. Yeah. By this stage, I'm not, I'm not sure. I know that Foxy Feeling was on, <laughs> on the Little and Large show. And apparently right, yeah. they were dead raunch, yeah. I remember reading the Daily Mirror about how terrible uh, it was that video recorders had come in and young lads were recording Little and Large and freeze-framing uh, Foxy Feeling <laughs> to, to look at a bit of gusset and stuff. Yeah, it's not natural. No. <laughs> but it'd be, it'd be even worse if they're freeze-framing it to have a good leer at, at Eddie Large, though. <laughs> Dressed up as Olivia oh, Newton-John. <laughs> you know, we're a bit lucky getting this one for Legs & Co. Because a couple of weeks previously, they did uh, Key Mai by Ennio Morricone. And they were just in dead mm. long dresses and just mm. walking about in formation. Uh, ankles and cobalt. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But, no, this is more, this is more like it. <laughs> the thing is, having seen the, the beaming healthy pans people mm. in the last uh, the last episode we did right in living color yeah. at the apex of of patched together glam mm. you know mm. looking really glossy but really relatable yes it's quite strange to then turn straight to this yeah. and to remember how hard and frowning and unyielding legs and co mm. really yeah. seem by comparison it's like entirely appropriate for the times but the times are chilly yes and i know that they're aiming for a sort of crimp haired you know feline thing and mm. they're trying to look uh scraggy foxy and, feline uh, if you will indeed <laughs> yeah they're trying to look you know imperious and uh and street yeah. but even in the course of looking so silly they don't give an inch they always look well set up for tutting and rolling their eyes and <laughs> holding on to their tear Maria and Coke as a parade of hapless Jack the Lads in uh, Foster Brothers suits or, uh, sidle up to them in Alberto's nightclub with like half a lager in one hand and <laughs> lean and shout into their ears, your father must have been a thief because he stole an angel out of heaven <laughs> and put it in your body. You can't blame them. It's not, you can't blame them, but it's really noticeable mm. that the times have changed and become just that little bit less innocent. But the thing is, what I didn't like about this dance is that they're doing that thing a lot of people do when they try to impersonate cats, yeah. which is to put their hands together in front of their chest, yeah. flopped over to look like paws. Well, this is wrong yeah. because... No cat has ever done no, that. No, that's rabbits. And isn't it? I don't think they would be capable of it. Is it yeah, when well, mice would mice do that, 
when they stand up on their back legs, twitch. The only time a cat has its paws in front of its chest curled over is when it's lying down, lolling, yes. you know, rolling yes. about. It's a sign of contentment. You don't stray mm-hmm. cats don't don't do that on dustbin. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure I've seen that um, half-eaten fish fake fish on something <laughs> else and I can't remember what it was it's possibly rent a ghost or something yeah but there's an argument really <laughs> it's a, it was a standard Lexing- trope of cattiness wasn't it? It, it 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 was but I mean there's an argument really that legs and co are no longer needed um because mm. by this time 81 just play the video we're surely yeah. at a time when most songs you know have videos and and yeah Taylor's right they're cat impersonations um I mean it's what they leave out that annoys me yeah. as a cat owner um, you know, pretend to be sick. Yes. Um, pretend yeah. to have that faraway look in your eyes when you're doing a particularly satisfying bit of frottage. Yes. Um, there's, there's, there's none of that. Yeah. Um, there is one bit where a woman, nearly, she nearly falls over, doesn't yes. she? She's coming back up the stairs yes. and she nearly takes a tumble. But like Taylor says, whereas I think Pan's people would have had a giggle at that, yeah. and maybe you might have seen her having a giggle at that, mm. you don't get that with Legs no. & Co. It's just uh, murderously Did following. Well, maybe she would have landed on her paws. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're wearing cat ears, uh, not real ones, because that would be disgusting. And uh, combinations of denim and leopard print, which in 1981 mm. still denotes slinky rock chick, but nowadays means female Jeremy Kyle guest. <laughs> Do, and they're doing sort of cap things in front of metal bins. So, you know, mm. they're slinking about and pulling cartoon fish bones out of the bin. They didn't spray their musk and uh, they didn't claw each other in the face and they didn't shit in my back garden. <laughs> There is some sort of suggested power hierarchy happening mm. amongst these uh, stray cats as well, which could have been quite sexy, yeah. but the the file is so blurry and old that I couldn't really see what was going on because it's dimly lit as well. They've got a sort of a yeah. like a low red light on it to kind of uh, yeah. give it that extra sort of model yeah. upstairs yeah. oomph to mm. it. You know, I, I think the hierarchy works whereby the woman at the end who um, is chewing gum, buffing her nails, and winks at the camera. Yeah. She's, yeah. you know, she's TC. She's top cat. <laughs> <laughs> Close friends get to call her DD. Oh, that's... that's <laughs> people. Damn. Yeah. yeah, the original idea for the costumes was uh, they wanted uh, they wanted Jill to wear, like, a massive tie and nothing yes. else. <laughs> um, uh. And another one, a white roll neck and nothing else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know... Um, you. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know you know me Taylor. I'm I'm always my heart lies with Pan's people over Legs and Co. But at least mm. they didn't do a jungle rock thing with the cattiness, and thank fuck they they didn't try to uh, emulate Get Down by Gilbert O'Sullivan. Can you imagine how well that would have gone? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it would have been almost like herding cats. Yes. Wouldn't it? Yes. No, but it, at least in these days, people still gave cats a bit of respect. Yeah. Right? And mm. uh, acknowledged their tough, independent nature, you know. Mm. And mm. it's the contrast. Yeah, they didn't bung them in a fucking cafe. Well, it's, it's the contrast of that and the fact that they look cute is really what's great about cats. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, whereas nowadays they're, they're, they'd have had them... You know, sat on a on a countertop pushing things off with their paws. You know what I mean? And everyone going, ha, ha, "This cat's yeah. an asshole." You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> yes. I sort of, on behalf of you know my cat and cats everywhere, I sort of object to that a bit. Like when in when you get yeah. adverts and that, and 
they put the cat's voice on and the cat's going, oh, I, you know, I want some yeah, yummy yeah. food in my tummy. It's, it's not, that's not a cat's <laughs> internal monologue. No. no. It's intransigent murderousness. That's what's not a cat's mind. That's why, you know, I mm. never feel... My cat is a fucking pain in the ass, But I never feel bad about telling her this. I never feel bad about, frankly, calling her a twat and calling her a cunt and things like that. A cat doesn't yeah. care about no. what you say to it. I would never do that to a dog because its eyes would break my heart. But a cat, yeah. you know, you can call it what you like and it just stares at you with this blank... Well, because you know the cat's calling yeah, you that. permanently. Yeah. And worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if cats could talk, they would be considerably less well-loved. But, <laughs> but I think yes. I think possibly even more fascinating and, and mm. wonderful. Yeah. Should we talk about the song? If only, if only there was a cat cafe where Legs and Co were there. <laughs> You ever been in a cat cafe? Uh, there's one just down the road from me, but you have to book six weeks in advance because it's yeah. always full of cupcake people. You know what I mean? Mm. Oh man, my niece, yeah, she's seven now, and every time she comes down to Nottingham, and we, where do you want to go for the day? Um, oh, the the cat cafe. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> I go in there with her. And he says, right, we've got an hour. Now, what you what you want to do is you just want to sit with me dead quiet there, and the cats will, might come up to you. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. She just charges off, <laughs> running after these cats who clearly do not give a fuck. They've all gone into the cat green room. <laughs> there's, this, like, there's this room next door that's got, and, and there's a little kind of like massive mouse hole in it. And, and that's where the, the cats rest uh, to get away from the fucking mentalists who go into cat cafes. <laughs> so she's, she's off, yeah. And and so there I am sitting. She always wants to sit in the same fucking place as well, which is right in front of the full length windows. Mm. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there reading a book. I'm just thinking, please, no one who knows me walk past this window <laughs> and just see me looking like I'm on my own, surrounded by <laughs> mentalist cat women. It looks like I'm uh, looks like I'm making the last throw of the dice. <laughs> but, and of course, all the cats come up to me mm. because they they. They realise they've got a kindred spirit yeah. who hates everyone else in the room as well. <laughs> we sit there and say, how many cats did you stroke? Oh, none. They all ran away from me. <laughs> it's like, honestly, we could have gone round the fucking back of the kebab shop up the road, and ra- sat round the bins, and would have had more cats coming up to us then. <laughs> fucking ridiculous. But anyway, the Stray Cats, the band... Yeah. Rock and roll is absolutely refusing to fuck off. Even in 1981, we got Chicken Steven at number two. Uh, this old ass is still at number 41. The Polecats are at number 38 with Rockabilly Guy. And Heidi High Holiday Rock by Paul Shane in the Yellow Coats <laughs> has soared 33 places up the charts this week. Why isn't that off? <laughs> <laughs> but this is. The difference with this, this is uh, an unforgivable but great record, I mm. think. Yes. Mm. I think it's much more great than it is unforgivable. So you end up forgiving mm. it anyway, right? Well, why is it unforgivable, Tim? Well, Let's because it, it is, um, in a sense, pattern work. It is just yeah. uh, an attempt to recreate elements of the 1950s. But, yeah. you know, as they say, throwback's all right if you're doing something decent. You put this mm. record on, and it's not fucking shaking, Stevens. They know yeah, exactly yeah. what they're doing, and they know yes. enough about this music to know what they should be playing up and what they should be playing down. Um, yeah. And you know, and also it resists the negative advances of the 1980s in a good and a bad way, right? It refuses mm. to acknowledge that it is in the 1980s, but also 
it hangs on to that toughness and sharpness of mm. rockabilly, even though it's recorded in a clean and modern way. Um, and it's also, it's not just a, a dead straight lift of all the bits that everyone remembers from the old yeah. days, you yeah. know. I mean, yeah. this really, this is almost more like a nightclub jazz song, you know, which mm. a lot of those records were when yeah. you listened to them. They, they, yeah. they, the, the thing is, the Stray Cuts, they know where to leave gaps in the singing. Dave Edmonds knows where to leave gaps in the production. And um, mm. it, it, it's just a great sounding record. I seem to recall having a real fondness for the Stray Cats. And even at a young age, yeah. absolutely understanding that what they were doing was was retrograde in a sense. But you yeah. didn't at that age interpret that, like Taylor says, as a kind of almost a philosophical move or, or a bad move. It was just a textural yeah. move of putting this <laughs> stuff into pop. And it was a deeply yeah. pleasurable one. I remember really liking this record. They've also given the Ted Revival a huge shot in the arm by number one, actually being American, mm. and number two, not looking like a load of fat dads. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it must have... If you were a Ted in the, like, in the Aventis... The Stray Cats must have been your Gino Washington. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because many Ted Revivalists look like the football coach in Jossie's Giants, really. They didn't... Yes, yes. (laughs) But, I mean, they did get lucky in that there was this weird slow-motion rock and roll revival happening all through Mm. the 70s and into the early 80s. Um, And they only just caught it. But, um, you know, there's just... There's something truer and more authentic in the worthwhile sense about their approach. I mean, of all those bands, this is the one that is like a proper rock and roll band. Mm. These are the ones who who don't act like they're entertaining the troops or, you know, playing in the dinner hour at at Pontins, you know. It's like you can sort of believe them. They understand and pay attention to and reproduce all their little details in uh, these 50s records, which can be mistaken for magic by non-musicians because they don't you can't write them down and they don't show up in songbooks you know um you feel them more than hear them all the sort of little uh edges and inflections in the playing this is what's at the heart of all those records because if you look at most uh uh, 50s rock and roll and rockabilly songs it's the same song they're all it's all the same song over and over again uh Mm. it's that it's those little inflections and personal touches and little uh sonic moments that make those records and all that stuff is ironed out of shawaddy waddy and ironed out of darts you know um mm. whereas they understand it and they do it you know and it gets mm. more right than it gets wrong but the main thing is it has something of the smell and taste of old rock and roll as well as just the the sight and sound you know so the following week stray cat strut dropped three places back to number 11 after backing Dave Edmonds on The Race Is On, which got to number 34 in June of this year, their follow-up single, You Don't Believe Me, only got to number 57 in November of this year, and they'd only have one more hit in the UK when She's Sexer and 17 got to number 29 for two weeks in September of 1983, and they were pretty much done here. However, tracks from their first two UK LPs were cut and shut by EMI America into one LP, built for speed and it went platinum in the USA and stayed at number two there for 26 weeks unfortunately for them released at the same time as Thriller and Stray Cat Strut went to number three there in March of 1983 Hello, that's Lesbico 
covered the Human League in Chart Music 11 and this single, their fourth on Virgin Records, is the follow-up to Boys and Girls which got to number 48 in March of this year. It's also their first single with their new lineup after Martin Wereny and Craig Marsh defected and Phil Oakey and his girlfriend went to Sheffield nightclub The Crazy Days there to find a last-minute female backing singer for his rump band's forthcoming tour and discovered Suzanne Sully and Joanne Catherall, two 17-year-olds who first met at a Show Waddy Waddy gig in 1976. You see, Show Waddy Waddy, man. <laughs> Catalysts. Three weeks prior to this episode, the sound of the crowd entered the charts at number 53 and the band were invited on Top of the Pops, which led to Sully and Catherall nicking off sixth form to go on Top of the Pops and win at life. This is not that performance, but after it went up 12 places from number 27 to number 15 this week, they've been brought back on. And here's your fucking highlight. I believe. Yeah, and it, it's, it's really illustrative to me as well of, of how a few years' age difference can make such a difference in your perception of pop. For mm. for my missus, this was the cut-off point with Human League. She loved the early stuff, but as soon as the girls joined, she she really? lost interest in a sense. For me, it's when the girls joined, of course. It's when I got interested. And yeah. not just because I really fancied Joanne Catherall. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I love the Human League. I think from this song onwards... My sister had there, and I was I was so into it because of the sound, the drums, the bass. Unlike nearly all other synth-based pop music at the time that I had mm. access to, anyway, the stuff in the charts, Human League stuff was was bassy, and it had like these big wumping moments of squelchy mm. pleasure in it. And it was ultimately like taking what sort of Cabaret Voltaire were doing and make and making it pop. This yeah. sound of the crowd was one of the, you know, they used to call their songs blue or red, didn't they, according to yes. whether they were pop or, or dance numbers. This was one of the red songs by them, which I always preferred, to be honest with you. I had my love for Human League uh, validated not by the music press, because I wasn't reading the music press at the time, but actually two years later, when Fascination came out, which it, it's probably not their best single, but for some reason remains my favourite Human League single, mm. Keep Feeling Fascination. The, when that was introduced on Top of the Pops, it was introduced by Bruno from the Kids from Fame, because the Kids <laughs> from Fame were doing that episode. And I remember so distinctly that when the opening synth riff to Fascination started, Bruno was nodding his head on really getting into his music. And that yeah. really validated it for me, because I quite liked I quite liked Bruno oh. from the Kids of Fame. He but, liked the high but, fidelity, didn't he? No, this is it. But, but I mean, Fascination was the first um, single that I went out and bought by the Human League, but I was well aware of Sound of the Crowd, always loved it. Mm. Um, Fascination, by the way, the B-side, Total Panic, I think is one of the greatest synth instrumentals ever. But Ooh. Sound of the Crowd's another record, like the Undertones one, that I've come to love um, more and more the older I get. It's true yeah. nature being revealed to me really when I started DJing with it. I mean, mm. if you're doing a party, you're going to put Don't You Want Me on at some point towards the yeah. end of the night. Um, it's guaranteed floor filler. But Sound of the Crowd is the perfect one to build up that last hour with. Yeah. Um, um, you know, a song about clubbing, about getting over yourself to a certain extent and surrendering to the kind of the nightclub step. And it's not snotty mm. about it. It's no. not denigrative of, of, of kind of, of, of that clubbing culture. Um, mm. Oh, I just love this record. And, and 
I mean, who couldn't? And and I remember once hearing it, like decades after this, but hearing it in the correct context, in a sense. I was in Meadowhall Shopping Centre and it came on mm. um, in, near Sheffield. And I don't know why, but just being in Sheffield and hearing it, um, it was like, I don't know, hearing a nightclub by the specials in Cov or something. And this yeah. performance um, on Top of the Pops is just great. Uh, Phil Isn't always, it? it's just wonderful. Phil always simultaneously managed to look kind of androgynous from the neck up, but like a proper rock singer from the neck down. Mm. Um, and yeah. I love the way that the, the musicians, um, uh, they're barely touching stuff, you know what I mean? Yes. And the tape reels are still going. It, it's really like that bit in Close Encounters when, you know, manual control turns off and the machines start speaking to each other. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. there's, there's no sweat involved in this performance, in a sense. No. Um, it, it's, an, it's just this impossible to imagine kind of futuristic circuitry making this sound. Um, so I remember watching this precise performance and just being blown away. Just a brilliant, brilliant song by a brilliant band. Mm. Yeah, what what they understand uh, and always did is the force of synthesizers, right? And the fact that the lack of subtlety at this point in the development of electronic keyboards um, has simplified everything, right? Mm. So it makes it ideal uh, for pop music. So like, you know how famously Gary Newman first pushed down a synthesizer key or probably pushed the pad because it was a probably an old wasp synthesizer, and thought that sounds bigger than a hundred Les Pauls all playing at once. And so he Mm. built all those Tubeway Army songs around that rock idea of brutal riffs and Mm. power and distance. Whereas the Human League heard that huge flat noise and linked it with the simplicity and directness of pop. So Mm. even on those early albums, there's still that sort of bubblegum undertow you know, and it's mm. not a piss take. You you sense, you can just feel that these are the kind of people who would instantly know that uh, it's a rainy day, sunshine girl by Faust and yummy, yummy, yummy by Ohio <laughs> Express are non-identical twins. Yeah. Um, and it's astonishing to me that Human League were criticised in some quarters at the time for being cynical, you know, when they went mm. pop. Well, they're the least cynical group alive, you know. Yeah. They're smart and calculating which yeah. is not the same thing as, as, as being cynical. And like Neil says, the, the Phil's performance here is amazing. I mean, we've got to give credit to Joanne and Susan because yes. in, a, in a top of the pops where a lot of, an awful lot of acts seem to think that dancing just means swinging your arms around yes. uh, like an ape, at, yeah. least, at least they do it with some rhythm and discipline. Um, but Phil is magnificent because he's, he's doing that thing which is, really hard to pull off which is more than being androgynous he's being simultaneously macho and effeminate yeah. Yeah. which yes. yeah, is yeah. slightly different i mean it it's like he's chiseled and heroic and girly at the same time it's, yes. he looks like if you like you might walk past his house one day and look in through the window and see him there with his girl's world head giving it a disco <laughs> makeover <laughs> Right, and then, but then the next night you might walk past, and he might be out in the garden swinging a horse around until it shits itself and then dies. It's like duality, you know, Yorkshire yeah. style, reflected in his haircut, which is literally half a man's haircut and yes. half a lady's haircut. Yeah, that's what I liked about his style, and it fits with the music because this new Human League music doesn't chuck away the the, the boldness and the sort of austere thrill. 
of their earlier weirder stuff, it keeps it there. It just turns up the pop side to match it, and you get yes. this sort of uh, like hubba bubba avant garde. Yeah. yeah, and in a way, of course, it it seems laughable that they should have come from Yorkshire, but in another way, they couldn't have come from anywhere else. You know, well, especially mm. like at this point in time, like London cool was too restrictive to let this much proletarian joy through. You know, and the Northwest yeah. is always too hung up on itself and the obsession of not being a knobhead. You know, oh, you can't be a knobhead, right, if you're from <laughs> Manchester or Liverpool. So, Which is usually the, the, the fast route to being a knobhead. It doesn't allow this much straight-faced yeah. silliness. Um, so, But this specific mix of, a, of a, a bold and slightly gauche electronic futurism with the authentic mm. texture of the youth club and the bedroom mirror, you know, yes. at this point could only have come from yeah. this part of the country... Uh, at this moment in history, you know. But, of course, you listen to it now, and for all the huge early 80s trappings, it's immediately understandable, and it stands outside time Mm. because that combination of distance and directness doesn't really date. Like, this record is painted with such broad strokes, um, and you're not really being asked to buy into anyone's narcissistic fantasy life, right? Or take them Mm. seriously as emotional beings you know it's like this is a blend of the personal and the universal um and it's yeah. a blend of the human and the mechanical and it just seems right and permanently good and it makes perfect sense that that the human league should be really big around this time despite how odd they are and it also makes sense that almost everyone who liked them then still likes them now right nobody's embarrassed mm. that they used yeah. to be into the human league you know, no, despite all no. the attempts to kind of snigger at them because they look so early eighties, it's like there's something really lasting about this music because it's it, it's physically addictive. That's the thing; it, it, mm. it it's got this push to it. You want to? I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of early eighties bands that probably meant a lot to me at the time. I have no desire to hear any of them again. Whereas the yeah. physical hit, the physical bass hit of this music, I'm addicted. Mm. Uh, we all get addicted to it. All our life. And, uh, you know, uh, the thought of never hearing this again, it's massively upsetting. Whereas when I think yes. about other bands from that era, I might never hear again. Fine. Absolutely fine. But never hear the Human yeah. League again, I'll be missing something major. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Human League fucked me about Big Style in 1981. Mm. It was the first dismantling of the brick wall I built around myself with the jam era sold on it. Because it's like, oh, synth bands, not real music and it's rubbish and girls like it and blah, blah, blah. And you watch this performance and it's up there with all the classic Top of the Pops introductory performances for a band because your eyes are all over the fucking place. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the tune's fucking immediately immense Mm. and you're looking around going, oh my God, look at that lead singer. Yeah. Uh, look at the look at the fucking engine room. Look at all the shit that's going on. Hmm. I think it was Joanne and Suzanne that tipped me over the edge because it's like, oh my god, they like them girls in the fifth year. I really <laughs> yeah. fancy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to think about this. I fought against buying it, and uh, I remember coming out of school one, maybe the day afterwards, and uh, all the teachers were going past in the car, and all of a sudden I heard the sound of the crowd, and. Um, I just thought, oh my god, which one of my teachers are, is playing that? Because because if they like it, that's that's my that's my excuse. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was his fifth year live with the first ghetto blaster I ever saw. And it was like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, God, this is so fucking amazing. Because the song basically makes Sheffield sound like the absolute centre of the world. <laughs> it, it makes Sheffield sound glittering and kind of neon and gliding, but also yes. gritty, gritty and tough yes. and, and heavy. You know, um, it's got that beautiful balance to it. Yeah, it's like the 1981 version of Dancing in the Street, isn't it? Yes. As opposed yeah, to the yeah. 1985 version of Dancing in the Street. That... <laughs> yes, it really is. Um, right down to the fact that it comes out of a, an industrial city and it's yeah. got that industrial pulse behind it, which is yeah. uh, now being used for dancing. Mm. Mm. If I have any criticism of Sound of the Crowd, it's very mild. It's linked mm. to something that Phil Oakey said to me when I interviewed him years and years ago, which is that... He was disappointed as a fan of Kraftwerk when they did The Man Machine because right. what he'd loved about them was that they used electronics to talk about non-electronic things mm-hmm. like European identity, right, or you know, the open road and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, then suddenly they were doing science fiction, which struck mm. him as a little bit predictable and a bit of a letdown, you know. Uh, aside from the fact that it's a great album. Yeah. Um, well, here the league are using these robo beats and these big slabs of synthesized sound to do a song about crowds and marching with you know with the obvious sort of vague kinky hints of totalitarianism yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. which is it's the obvious thing it's like that it's either that or future dystopia is what you do you know with this sound so in a way i prefer them when they're doing more obscure subjects or when they're doing photo love stories you know uh-huh. or songs like louise about time and regret you know with the same kind of backing but that is a very mild criticism indeed in fact the only really uh bad thing that i associate with the human league i once got blanked by joanne catherall right no (laughs) yeah because this was another peril of working for melody maker in the 90s i wrote a rapturous and i seem to remember slightly crazed review of the human (laughs) league's greatest hits which they brought out to coincide with some gigs they were doing And the person editing the LP section at that time uh, was a a lady of rockist persuasion who uh, wrote the little intro bit, because it was a lead review, wrote the little intro bit, like the start of a feature where it says, you know, blah, 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 Taylor Parks assesses Sheffield's greatest hit makers or something. Um, And put in some snide remarks about the Human League, despite it being a rave review. Yeah, yeah. And said something about... You know, oh, despite the fact they had two Linda McCartneys in the band. Oh, um, And so I was backstage at the Human League gig, and she came and say hello to Pricey, who just interviewed them. Um, and he said, oh, this is Taylor. He wrote the review in Muddy Maker. She just looked at me, just turned around and walked off. Oh, man. And I, it's like... Oh. I wasn't going to go running after going, I didn't write that bit. Do you understand? Do you not understand this? It's got my name in it. I don't speak about myself in the third person. That was, uh, but, it, you know, that was like, seems like a typical and representative experience for 90s music writers in so many ways. I, I didn't actually buy the record, not because I didn't want to, but because, you know, as I've said before, I couldn't go to select a disc or something with me jam badges on and by the human league because I thought I'd automatically be questioned and you know people say oh well how can you like this when you're wearing that and everything so I didn't but I did tape it with my dad's music centre I taped it and played it endlessly but uh, when Love Action came out it's like oh no fuck this this is this is getting bought 
yeah, yeah. So yeah, the Human League opened my mind as well as their heart. Beautiful. Yeah, bless them. What What's curious about this song still is how undated it is. I know, I yeah. know it's from the early eighties, and I suppose we should associate it with a lot of things, but. You know, driving into town on a Friday night or going into town on a Saturday night still feels and sounds like this. The, mm. the, the mayhem of it, the driver, the lunatic drive to get out of your face and go yes. crazy and dance still sounds like as propulsive as this record does. So it just yeah. it hasn't dated at all, just a stone-cold classic. Do you think this would have been the first time that Philoki had run into the undertones <laughs> since My Perfect Cousin? Yeah. It must be. His mum bought him a synthesizer, got the Human League into advisor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now he's making lots of noise, blah, 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 with the art school yeah, boys. That was what you were afraid of, Alan, your jam badge, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> I don't know who would win that fight, because Phil Oakey is a physically much bigger man. The undertones mm. are all like scrawny little gits, but also yeah. they are from Derry. They're like street urchins from Derry, whereas he's Phil yeah. Oakey. So the following week, the sound of the crowd nipped up three places to number 12, its highest position. The follow-up, Love Action, got to number three for two weeks in August of this year. They'd have another top 10 hit in October when Open Your Heart got to number six for two weeks. And they'd round off 1981 with Don't You Want Me, getting to number one for five weeks in December. Boy, you're now at number four, see? Surrounded by a huge gaggle of the kids, pretends to protect them from the rampaging cameraman and introduces a video of Checkered Love by Kim Wilde. Born Kim Smith in Chiswick in 1960, Kim Wilde was the oldest daughter of Marty Wilde, a first-generation British rock and roll singer who scored six top ten hits in the Fixties and made her first public appearance as an early teenager in a publicity shot with her brother Ricky who was being groomed as Britain's answer to Donny Osmond, and her dad, who was making a comeback as a glam singer in a Superman costume and glittery bicycle helmet called Zappo. In 1980, when she'd left the St Albans College of Art and Design, she was immediately signed to Rack Records and teamed up with Ricky, who was now a writer and producer. Her first single, Kids in America, got to number two for two weeks in March of this year, held off the top spot by This Old House by Chicken Stephen. And this is the follow-up, which was also written by her dad and brother. And it's up this week from number nine 
to number four. Well, there's a lot to discuss here, chaps. But before we do that, let us comment once more upon Dave Lee Travis, (laughs) Renaissance man. (laughs) Because I have in my possession right here a book that he put together in 1985. I'm going to send you the cover right now. And I want you to open it. And I want you to say what you see. Uh-huh. A bit of a star. Media women, their fine points and phobias, as photographed by Dave Lee Travis. Um... Dave Lee Travis's <laughs> photography book, everyone. Yeah. A bit of a star put out in 1985. Describe the cover to me. Well, Dave is, um, Dave is there uh, looking at the camera with, a, with an undone bow tie. Why? Oh, yes. Know, like he's at the end of a, a, a particularly long night. Brian, roll on, roll off, Ferry, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Look, looking insufferably smug as usual, um, under the legend, a bit of a star in pink kind of neon-y writing. Yeah, and this is Dave in uh, Golden Oldie Picture Show era, Travis, isn't it? With that sort of, like, sort of almost like mini afro hair with the massive white patch at the front. Mm. (laughs) It's essentially a a, a compilation of his photography uh, involving famous women and the things that they like about themselves and the things that they're scared of. I'm going to pass on a selection now. Mm -hmm. So um, here's the first one. Right, that appears to be, is that who is that? Lindsay DePaul? Who is Lindsay that? Lindsay DePaul. What, being tortured by Neil Young? <laughs> yes. <laughs> On some kind of medieval rack, <laughs> stretching rack. Yes. Um, with, yes. with hay on the floor. Um, yes. And immediately, the concept of this book, which is already worrying, David Lee Travis photographs basically women that he likes and talks to them about what they're scared of. Um, <laughs> yes. Becomes. <laughs> David Lee Travis, usually. <laughs> Oh, but I didn't realise it was actually going to be this horrifying inside. That looks like yeah. a waxwork from the Jorvik Viking Centre in York. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's horrible. Yeah. Yes. That is a, a Lindsay DePaul being like dressed in a sort of sexy medieval way. Serving way. Yeah, mm. being torched on the rack with a massive grin. Yes. Mm. By this this. Bloke who, yeah, looks like sort of Neil Young circa 1973. Mm. Uh, this is what David Travis got his rocks off to, you know. Mm. And it's not even styled like a fetish shoot or something. No. It really does just look like a, like a, a fractured dream that he had. Yeah, yes. in- including what appears to be a bucket full of human feces in the corner. What the fuck is going on here? Yeah. 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 Okay, next picture. <laughs> right, what we have here is uh, Floella Benjamin um, in a blue dress and a blue headband and her blue uh, high heels on the floor next to a bin that she's in, a dustbin. She's in a dustbin. Yeah, a really chatty dustbin as well, isn't it? A very chatty dustbin with what appears to be mould and mildew all over the lid. Um, yes. Yeah, a lot of the time you see dustbins in shots like this, so they've clearly just been bought. <laughs> um, they're like what you would win if you chose Dusty Bin, like a yeah. brand new dustbin. Now, this has been used yeah. for Dave Lee Travis's garden waste. Yeah. So essentially what's happened is, is that all these celebrities have told Dave Lee Travis what they like most about themselves, uh-huh. uh, what they dislike most about themselves and what their phobias are. And then he goes off and... Um, and works out a a, a, a shoot. Lindsay DePaul says she she doesn't like her height. 
So uh, Travis has decided to torture her. And, um, and and in this case, Floyola Benjamin told him that she doesn't like her legs. So Travis has put her in a dustbin. This is, this is ostensibly <laughs> right for a public audience. And he's seen this concept through, but it's clearly just for his own masturbatory purposes. It, mm. It's, uh, oh dear, oh dear. I, I, I want to see more, but I don't want to see more. We'll take to my grave the image of Dave Lee Travis masturbating over a picture of Floella Benjamin in a dust. Mm. <laughs> let's, let's look at another one. <laughs> say what you see. I believe this is uh, Lisa Goddard. Yes, it is. Um, this is Stardust. All wrapped up in sort of grey wrapping paper. Mm. Um, tied with uh, with string. Oh dear, oh dear! This is a few of Dave Lee Travis's favourite things, <laughs> <laughs> like a like a giant smiley lady parcel. It, I'm not sure it's paper. I think it might be some sort of tarpaulin. In which case, like her fear is what um, being a, a victim to a particularly fastidious murderer. Um, I don't, what's the fear? I've got to know. Well, this is another of the ideas which came to me the moment I spoke to her. The first thing Lisa said to me was that the only things she liked were her face and her feet. Right. Mm. Jesus. This yeah. is this is too close. A a little walk around. What's actually inside behind that beard? Behind that grin. Mm. Oh, yes. God, this is fucking grisly. Yeah, you can imagine the steam coming out of his ears on this one. <laughs> Here's another one. <coughs> Dear Lord. Christ almighty. Right, who is that? I don't know who that is. That is Georgina Hale, who was um, Budgie's missus and uh, was in The Boyfriend as well. Who appears to be, yeah, I mean, she. I can't describe that image, I'm sorry. Well, she's resting her head. She's wearing a sort of negligee, like mm-hmm. a nighttime negligee. Very sun naughty knickers week. Resting mm. a, a very scrubbed looking head on a pillow being held by a giant man in a gorilla suit who's yeah. also copping a feel of her ass. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, she likes the comfort of being protected, which is why I opted for a King Kong Fay Ray type of shot. Yeah, because King Kong really protected Fay Ray, didn't he? Yes. Really well. <laughs> yeah. And one more. We've gone and saved the best to last. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. Right, so what we've got here is, as far as I can tell, is that Kim Wilde? Yes. That's Kim Wilde with a kind of face mask on, a yes. chain coming from it. Um, she appears to be chained to a policeman of who's who's got a far too big a beard, and we act like she's it's a very American policeman. That's not him, is it? No, it's not. Try well, we don't know. It's clearly a, a an avatar of Dave Lee Travis, <laughs> or a, you know, it, this is clearly DLT placing himself in in the fantasy. Mm. Yes, mm. of with of a looking... with a firm hand on his baton, you'll notice. Mm. Yeah, gripping his baton in a slightly suggestive way um, with his other hand uh, made into a fist holding the chain which goes to Kim Wilde's uh, fetish eye mask. She's also dressed from head to toe in black PVC. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Deeply disturbing. 
I was reading recently about the Mineshaft Club, you know, that gave uh, the village people its look. They're, in, they're incredibly strict dress codes about uniforms, etc. Um, this photograph looks like... The, the fascinating thing about the Mineshaft Club is that they had a scat room that only lasted six months before it proved, quote-unquote, unmanageable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> these people are possibly on their way. Jesus. Mm. Can, can I yeah. stop looking at this now? It's, it's... In his notes, uh, Travis says that Kim Wilde likes her eyes, hence the over-the-top protection. Oh. How, how did he get this shit off the ground? And, and did these people get paid for this? Did they get a fee? They better have done. It was done in association with Kodak, uh, and it was £8.95. That's a lot of money back then. Mm. And what would you do with this book once you'd looked at all the photos? Oh, I want to look at that photo again of Floella Benjamin in a bin. Yes. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, that, that, that potted history, man. We have to talk about a brother and a dad because uh, we're not going to get a chance to talk about them again, I feel. Um, Marty Wilde, obviously, knew nothing about him apart from that scene in Candid Camera where he got the cleaning lady to sing Why Must I Be a Teenager in Love? <laughs> But Zappo, Taylor, you a fan? Um, I wouldn't say a fan, mm. um, but there is clearly something interesting about what looks like Brian Kant doing a strippergram. Um, <laughs> yes. But it's, I mean, the record, it's junk shop glam, isn't it? It's yes. like a, it's a, a failed glam record. I mean, it's all right, but it, it sounds like an album track. And if you're doing a glam A-side, mm. I mean... It, it has to have an impact, like the the moon crashing through the roof of your house, you know, yes. to, to really make it. Uh, it's a little bit fiddly by mm. comparison. And it's very mannered. And usually the best thing about cheapo failure rip-off pop is that in the search for originality and or gimmicks, it can do weird and inexplicable things. Uh, but this doesn't. No, he's no panther man, is there? Oh, no. No, no, no. But then who is? <laughs> Her brother, Ricky, who uh, who wrote this song along with Kids in America and everything. Fucking hell, I, I am an astronaut. What a fucking tune that is. I haven't heard that. No. It's Neanderthal Man by Hot Legs on Tiger Tops. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking brilliant. But this song and th- this video, I mean, this is the follow-up to Kids in America and and, and I think she's she's done it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously inferior to Kids in America, yeah. but so are a lot of things. Yes. Know? But they do make a, a good fist of following it. Yes. Uh, despite this being a much thinner song, you can tell she's got wily veterans mm. behind the scenes. Yes. Because as follow-ups go, it's smartly done because it's not just the exact same song rearranged, which is always the mark of, the hit-and-run chancer, you know, mm. and always sends the message, okay, well, I'll be off soon. Uh, but, no, they want Kim to have a career, so mm. it's a slightly different type of song. But all the things which made Kids in America a smash hit are reproduced almost exactly. Mm. Yeah. So it's got that production, uh, the mood of glamorous anxiety and the sort of staccato backing in the verse. And that same delivery, that sort of glum and uh, agitated. Um, and, uh, like, Kids in America had that football terrace chorus, which was the hook. Mm. Yeah. Um, whereas this has got a hook that sounds different, but it's even simpler because it's just three bangs on the same note. Mm. It just goes, check out love. Um, and it's done quite cleverly. Like, you open up the song with the first lines of the chorus, but it goes into a, 
minor chord for the first time in the whole song, really unexpectedly, which lifts you out of the verse, pumps some air in it, and then locks it back down again with a hook that's just da da da. You know, this is uh, this is professional work. Yeah, yeah, I like this song a lot. It, it, it's kind of like a chinny chap cast off in a way, like Racy could have yes. done this about five years previous. And of course, yeah. you're invited in a way by the video to make Blondie comparisons because it, it has that that pristine yes. look to it. But, um, I mean, I love Kim. I always have. I can almost... I can't believe I'm loving so much in this episode. I can almost hear my mum go, ooh, you fancy her, do you? And I did fancy yes. her. Like, man at the time, of course. I mean, a more accessible version of the kind of ice queen that Debbie Harry was. But the more I read about yes. Kim, and the more I heard her, the more I liked her. And, and we've got a perfect illustration, really, with Kim Wilde. I mean, everything that was bad about Toya, in a sense. You could say that Kim Wilde had a not a privileged background as such, but, you know... Her, her family yeah. was obviously a benefit if you're going to build a pop career. But you never yes. resented that um, no. because she was humble but serious and she clearly loved music and pop and she understand the, understood the fundamental fact about pop that it is about collaboration with others and a kind of mutual yeah. conciseness, not not the, the flabby indulgence of a toy. So even though she's the figurehead and the front woman, there's no arrogance, there's, there's just confidence here. What I yeah. love about the video as well... Um, because I was trying to remember, you know, sh- of course you know, showers. Yeah. Um, did everyone have a shower? Because I seem to no, recall having baths for ages. And then yeah. showers getting really exciting with the dawn of zest soap, which, yes. which, which made showers, I think, become something that everyone had to have. Because lemony mm. zest just made a shower really yes. appealing in those adverts. Well, and, you want to lick it, don't you? Yeah. I bet you did as well, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, probably the, the disappointment once. and horror of, of <laughs> licking or even biting into lemon zest <laughs> and realizing it was just soap. I love this. Obviously, Kids in America is is her greatest record, and 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 yeah. I love what Taylor said about it being that, that having that football chant in it because one thing I recall about that song um, is being in America once in the nineties, and I was with a group mm. of other uh, music journalists and photographers, and we were all English, obviously, and we were in some yeah. club in Chinatown. And um, uh, the DJ put on Kids in America. Now, Kids in America, if we heard it back in England, we'd probably just have, you know, tapped a toe. But it almost Mm. became this lunatic hooligan anthem. (laughs) Kind of us, you know, clubbing together and waving our fists at the American American people in in, in this nightclub. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's a badge of pride. We are the Kids in America. Um, Great record. But this is... It's not as good, obviously, but it but it's nearly as good. It's a yeah. great record with a great video. The video it it looks like it's been shot in NSTC or NCST. What is it? NTSC. Thank you. Taylor. Never the same colour twice as television engineers would judge. Because <laughs> the, the colour looks shit on it. That's the problem. Smeary and crap. Yeah, but it gives it that kind of Amer- American sheen. Mm, yeah, that absolutely. Looks like she's being groomed for for bigger things than us scab bags. Yeah, watching <laughs> Top of the Pops. Yeah, but I mean, all Kim Wilde videos are cool. They've got a little bit of that sort of not the nine o'clock news thing going on, you know, but no more than is appropriate because. Ultimately, like this video understands how a daft early 80s video should work. It's all about um, communicating an image in a quick and silly way and finding a visual hook, like a musical hook, that's simple, you know. And we talk about pretentious 80s music videos, but, you know, leaving aside the hilarious moody stares and poses, uh, really this is an unpretentious video because it just sells you an image and leaves it at that, you know. 
as opposed to someone like Toya, you know. So I was going to say even Hazel O'Connor was only a fifth-rate Hazel O'Connor. Um, <laughs> Toya did all these videos that seemed to think they had some actual merit or importance or that they were about anything, you know, and just mm. revealed that inner emptiness and the credulity of people whenever a new medium arrives, right? Like if you've got a filter on it that makes the sky look pink, People say, oh, well, the, the, she must be a video artist, you know. <laughs> the only video Toya had any business making was a remake of that one with R. Bud Dwyer. But this is fine because <laughs> because this is fun. You know, this is just fun. You know, nobody yeah. smiles in it, but it doesn't matter. No. It's just it's no. fun and it's just meant to be. But it's got to be said, it, it's in a fucking public toilet, isn't it? It is. I mean, a really nice one. And also one where there isn't any doors, but there's just like opaque plastic sheeting. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, she smashes the glass and everything, and that that was pretty decent the, actually. It was. That was a very good. That was a very good thing. But imagine the poor son who's in there trying to have a shit, and Kim <laughs> Wilder and a band have come in. And it's like, oh, I can't, I can't go until Kim Wilder's gone. <laughs> I can't have Kim Wilder stopping halfway through a video to go, oh fucking hell, that stinks. <laughs> A fucking funks. What dirty bastard's done that? Well, it's very ahead of its time, gender-neutral bathroom. Yes. But but you're right, Al. The, yeah. vi- the video grain, that's all you needed back then, a change of video yeah. grain to let yes. you know that an artist was leaving you. Do you know what I mean? And they were, they were yes. now American-bound, in a sense. Yes. And, and the grain of this video does precisely that, even though it wasn't you know quite to happen. Yeah. I'll tell you something else, though. I, I, little confession about Kim Wilde. She's another pin-up that I never pinned up, right? Mm. And I reckon she's great, Kim Wilde. I think she'd be a really... She seems like a really good laugh and a really nice yeah. person. You know, she's very beautiful and everything, but I just never fancied her, and I'm not sure why. I think it's that faint, yeah. wobbly confusion in her eyes. Never quite did it for me. But it's her and Debbie Harry, isn't it, Taylor? You didn't fancy Debbie Harry either. Yeah, it's weird, yeah. isn't it? But also, <laughs> when I was living in the sticks, there was a story in the local paper about some overprivileged local shitheel, right, who was going out with Kim Wilde. This was, this was the news story in about 1991, like local man going out with Kim Wilde. Um, and they told the story of how, he, how they met, right, on a dance floor of a hotel disco at some posh resort in the Swiss Alps, um, mm. to which she had gained access by singing hit songs and making people happy and making money from mm. that and to which he had gained access by being a repulsive, spoilt toad. Um, so he waited until the DJ played Kids in America, which, of course, he fucking did, then went over and, according to the news report, started doing a crazy dance in front of Kim Wilde while singing, We're the Kids in Switzerland, whoa. And, of course, she was impressed enough to start going out with him. Now... No, no, Kim, look, I can't better talk. than that. I can't talk. I've copped off with enough complete idiots in my time. But I trust I'd have a bit more self-respect than to respond to such uh, an abject display of crass <laughs> cockishness. And I'll tell you what, I doubt Kim will have been as desperate as I've been at times, you know. But, <laughs> but then again, we, we... Yeah, that's not good, Kim. You should have smashed your fist into his face like you did with that mirror. <laughs> that is a shocking moment because you expect to see blood on a hand. But yeah, but yeah, it's quite alarming that moment. No, no, she's yeah. hard. But that guy, that yeah. guy, that that's fucking confidence, isn't it? The thing you can't blooming create, but confidence gets you places. 
Yeah, she's but... doing a crazy dance. That's awful, man. She's kind of gone down in my estimation hearing that. But we we do forget as well that a few years after that, uh, Kim Wilde also went out with Chris Evans. So when you put no. it all together, it does suggest that she has a type. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the following week, Checkered Love stayed at number four, its highest position. The follow-up, Water on Glass, got to number 11 in August of this year and diminishing returns set in, which were promptly reversed in 1986 when a cover of You Keep Me Hanging On got to number two for two weeks in November of 1986 and she reeled off a string of top ten hits in the late 80s. <laughs> As usual, on top of the box, we have a look at the top 30, and right now we go from number 30 up to number 21. Number 30, Bermuda Triangle from Barry Manilow, and Sugar Minot with Good Thing Going drops to 29. Up to 28, How About Us from Champagne. The Jacksons with Can You Feel It drop down to 27. Down 4 to 26 is Vic there from Department S, and The Beach with Drowning Up 1 to 25. Down to 24, Can't Get Enough of You from Eddie Grant. Smokey Robinson's great new record, Being With You, is at 23. At 22, Muscle Bound from Spandau Ballet, and The Undertones with its Gonna happen, move up eight places to 21. Here's the other A side from the beat now called All Out to Get You. To explain this incredible strain, now confusions become far too simple. A word for it is what you make, that's a usual mistake. If you're happy with pain, you can take it from me. Travis, now with the rainbow coloured attachment of head joy encircling his face, making him look like a bearded snake about to strike runs down the charts from number 30 to number 21, finally introducing All Out To Get You by The Beat. Chaps, any takeaways from that rundown? No, well, he's kept it. It's a link that Travis can't and doesn't fuck up, uh, yes. unlike his other links, because he's been obviously been given the, 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 the insistence yet. Band, song, song, band. Do it in that order. And it yeah. enables him to not, not fuck it up, surprisingly. Yes. Yeah, there's a couple of records I don't remember in there as well. Go on. Uh, Keith Marshall, which for two seconds I mistook for the Captain Beaky hit maker. But no, that was <laughs> Keith Michelle. Yes. So I've never heard Department S either. Am I missing oh. Haven't you? No, genuinely, never heard them. Is Vic there? Now, honestly, I'll probably, if you played it to me, I probably would know it, but I don't associate a song with that band name at all. Right. Fucking hell, Neil. Am I missing out? It's, yeah, well, it's all right. A bit. It's all right. A little. <laughs> and there's also champagne, but yeah. spelt... Oh, you must know that one. Yeah, I think I do. But it just took me by surprise because they spell their name C-H-A-M-P-A-I-G-N, which yeah. at first mm. I took to be one of those pointless alternative spellings that just yeah. makes you think maybe they couldn't spell it and nobody mm. corrected it. But no, uh, then I realised it's actually a boring college town in illinois where they yes. come from isn't it yeah which seems yeah. Like a bit of a common theme of american bands at the time like chicago and yeah boston, boston yeah, and america yeah. just name yeah. yourself after where you come would have been <laughs> new york city would have been great if more british groups had done. like if the rolling stones had been called dartford yes the history would have been so different or if spaceman three had called themselves rugby yes <laughs> fantastic would be a much better name so the beats we've well Fucking hell, we've, we've covered them practically every time we've done an early uh, 
80s Top of the Pops. And this single, their sixth, is the follow-up to Too Nice to Talk To, which got to number seven for two weeks in January of this year. It's part of a double A-side with Drowning, which featured on Top of the Pops last month. And it's the first cuts from their second LP, Wapen, which is out next month. The single had actually peaked at number 22 before dropping to number 31 three weeks ago, but somehow it's hauled itself back up the charts, and it's up this week from number 26 to number 25. Well, I mean, in the chart rundown, Travis announces Drowning as the main song. This is the cut I remember being played most on the radio. Definitely. Definitely. I remember this being way more on the radio, and I don't really remember Drowning that that much. It's another Mm. beat record. It's another great record. A little... Little kind of pop feeler cootie type song. It's got that Afro yes. step to it, and that that's what you know. As we previously discussed with the beat, the most the least scar of, of the kind of, those kind of bands, you know, uh, much yeah. more of a post punk thing, yeah. a poppy kind of pop group in a sense. Yeah. Um, I love this record. I, the, the, I like the mordancy of the lyrics as well, the bleakness Lodge. as ever from the beat. You oh, know? Yeah. And, and, and which is something which typically. DLT responds incredibly badly to because I mean he's singing you know if you're happy with pain you can take it from me that they're all out to get you they're painting your life in a permanent grey you know it takes more than tears to get rid of the stains and then it's straight to DLT going whoop 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 and it's yes (laughs) yeah you're scared you might slip when you're holding a knife lose your fingers or more in a lathe on the night shift you're scared Mm. that your babies get born with no legs you're so scared of death you don't know what life is Get down, kids. (laughs) DLT, just so fucking out of step. DLT's 1981 was CB Radio and Dealey Boppers. (laughs) He's in transition, isn't he? He's still a bit 70s DLT, but he hasn't quite got to the smoke glass shades and uh, sports coat DLT of uh, the later 80s. Mm. I'll tell you what's weird. The beat sort of passed me by a bit at the time, which is weird because they were like local heroes and all that. Yes. Um, I mean, I knew of them, but they barely impinged on my consciousness. I don't remember any of their songs being hits at the time, I don't think. Um, and I'm not sure why. I guess it, this was Big Brother music, you know, mm. and I didn't, have yeah. one. I didn't have a Big Brother. It wasn't quite like Madness, you know, which was totally mm. accessible to nine-year-olds musically yeah. and in every other respect. Yeah. And it wasn't even like the specials who had a sort of naughty older kid thing about them because they use swear words and you know words like contraception and it sort of sounds tough and street smart you know beat sort of fell down the cracks a little bit for me really Mm. and although I've heard all that stuff since and it's really great uh, I don't know it's always slightly pales compared to their peers just because it doesn't have the unfair advantage of childhood familiarity you know, mm. that's the only way in which the beat are inferior to those other groups for me. Because it is yeah. great. Although, despite being sort of catchy and upbeat, this doesn't sound much like a single to me. Uh, you mm. can see why I didn't have the confidence to put it out on its own, just as an A-side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, because the song doesn't do that much, and it really takes off. What it, this is really about is the contrast between uh, the verse and... The instrumental breaks, where it's like the dance floor's dropped out from under your feet and it does that shifting multi-level thing, you know. And there isn't much of that in the charts of 1981. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a thing at the time. And for some reason, people don't like singles or don't buy singles, which meander off like that, you know. 
mm. even when they meander into beautiful places like this one does. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, that's the thing. Just there's a subtlety to their stuff which doesn't quite take in the mind of a of a restless child. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I think, yeah, for it's sort of something, the fact that it's so brooding, all their stuff is so brooding and rhythm-based, uh, it sounds great to a, a more musically sophisticated adult. But if you're like an English, like the sort of English kid who can maybe get the jam head on, you know, you feel a bit like a non-swimmer in the middle of a beat record. It's like, <laughs> what is this? They're like the dark chocolate of the two-tone area, or the, like the, the neat scotch of British scar. <laughs> You know, it's an adult taste, I think. Uh, and of course, watching this like doubly upsetting at the moment with Roger, uh, you know, ranking oh, yes. recent passing. Yes, and there he is in his pomp, just looking fantastic. Yes, uh, a bit zoot suity, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he's got that kind of kid creole thing going on, and he just looks yes. great. Yeah, and uh, Dave Wakeling in his uh, grey suit with blonde hair, looking like Kim Novak in Vertigo. Yeah, um, he looks amazing, doesn't he? Yeah, with that Vox teardrop guitar, which are, they look so lovely, but they're horrible guitars. Don't stay in tune. <laughs> it's like playing a cow. Uh, yeah. The only, the only <laughs> thing I don't like about the beat is I don't get how they thought it would be good to call themselves The Beat, because it's yeah. probably the most boring band name I've ever heard. Like, worse than the band, because at least that's definitive, you know. Mm. The Beat, it's like... Uh, they should have called themselves the Landlubbers. Um, <laughs> or just Landlubbers. You know, it's artier. Cause, you know, or Birmingham. Yes. <laughs> well, at least they wouldn't have had to call themselves the English Birmingham in America. Yes. Or the English Landlubbers. What a great name that would be. Does it sound like a band in decline? Um, no, not really. No. no. And do they feel out of time? Like their moment had passed. No, not yeah. really. Not in 81. If they were no. coming out with this, yeah, no, no, not in 81. It's still sounded current. No. You've got madness in the charts still. Yeah. You know? So. But it is, there's something slightly looser about this stuff than some of their earliest. And a band trying new things and getting just a little bit looser is uh, mm. either a sign that they're going to move into their next phase of artistic achievement mm. or a sign that, yeah, they're on their way out and this could well be their last record. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the following week, All Out to Get You slash Drowning dropped six places to number 31 again. The follow-up, Doors of Your Heart, got to number 33 for three weeks in June of this year and they wouldn't be let into the top 40 again until their cover of Can't Get Used to Losing You got to number three in May of Well, if you're all seated comfortably home, and indeed, why shouldn't you be? Because we've had some tremendous music on the programme, and we've got some more to come yet. Let's take a look at the middle section, top 30, 20 to 11. At 20, attention to me from the Nolans. Then Lizzie with Bad Reputation and Are You Ready? And 19. At 18, Treason is Just a Story, Teardrop Explodes. Keith Marshall, Only Crying, Still at 17. Down 10 to 16, Make Your Mind Up from Buck Spears. And Human League with the sound of the crowd up to 15. Up two places to 14, I Know Carino from Quincy Jones. 20.
Troyers, I Want to Be Free is up to 30. At 12, up goes Wendy Shines from Sheena Easton and Stray Cats with the Stray Cats drug power at number 11. Right, right now on the programme, oops, we're moving for some unknown reason. There's some great music around, as I've told you. This is Careless Memories from Duran Duran. Fucks about with his hat some more and then breaks down the charts from number 20 to number 11, finally introducing Careless Memories by Duran Duran. Formed in Birmingham by John Taylor and Nick Rhodes in 1978 when they were working part-time at a club called The Rum Runner, Duran Duran became the house band at that venue, going through myriad lineup changes before their original singer, Stephen Tintin Duffer, was replaced by Simon Le Bon. In 1980, after recording a demo tape and playing regular dates in London as well as Birmingham, they were offered the support slot for Hazel O'Connor's UK tour, which led to a bidding war amongst major labels, which was won by EMI. Their debut single, Planet Earth, made an immediate impact when it got to number 13 in March of this year, and this is the follow-up put out on the insistence of EMI and against the wishes of the band. And after entering the charts a fortnight ago at number 38, it's only nipped up one place this week, and they're obviously hoping that a Top of the Pops appearance will give the single the push it needs. Well, fucking hell, so much Birmingham in this episode, man. (laughs) Yeah, but what I will say, it, it shows you something really interesting about music out of Birmingham, which is that there's not really a common thread. No. Like you mentioned Birmingham and people think of metal and they think of reggae because there's yeah. loads of metal and loads of reggae. But when you look at the actual hit acts that come out of Birmingham uh, or, you know, bands that people know, there's Duran Duran, uh, Dex's Midnight Runners, mm. Black Sabbath, ELO, mm. Musical Youth, uh, Ocean Colour Scene, yeah. uh, Broadcast. The Moody Blues. Moody Blues. Yeah. Uh, Fuzzbox Jasper Carrot <laughs> Oh and Toya of course lest we forget <laughs> Yes of course yeah. how could we forget Yeah, Not really a okay. common thread do you know what I mean It's like no. most other cities there's something like groups yeah. from Manchester there's always a sort of a like a, a rhythmic base to the music even something like the Smiths there's always a repeating rhythmic pattern uh, underneath everything and that's true of The Fall and Joy Division and you know, all of that stuff. Liverpool is all big chord changes and melody, you know. Bands from Glasgow always sound American or American-influenced for some reason. Uh, Newcastle, there's a sort of a weird perversity. Newcastle bands always sound soft, almost like they're uh, rebelling against the grittiness of the city, you know what I mean? But Birmingham, there's nothing, no common identity. Yeah, That's reflected in the geography, because in Birmingham, all the suburbs are quite uh, distinct. They don't blur into each other the way they do in London. Like, you quite often you have to get on a main road to go from one bit of Birmingham to another, Um, which is partly why a lot of the gang violence there is location-based, because people are cut off from each other, like Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, Yeah. I think the same is true in music as well. There's a, It's like a... 
a bunch of walled gardens, you know, not really overlapping. We see Travis uh, introducing, here's another great record, blah, 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 blah. Um, we, we do get the unedifying sight of him dancing for a while. Mm. And then the camera swings away and he thinks that he's, he's off camera and he's, his shoulders just slump down. I think, <laughs> I, think, I, I think we can kind of guess uh, what, what Mr. Travis thinks of Duran Duran. Mm. But what the likes of Travis think about Duran Duran and what the likes of the, the inky music press think about Duran Duran are kind of irrelevant, really, because, because mm. I mean, what I vividly remember about them, that the emergence of Duran Duran, was they were one of those bands where people would discuss which band member they fancied the most. And if you get a band where people are discussing which one they fancy the most... Yeah. I remember my sister and her mates talking about this all the time. And it kind of... Whether it's One Direction or, or Duran Duran or TLC later, you know, if you've got a band where yeah. people are discussing which band member they fancy the most, that is a band that's going to make it. Um, yes. My sister had that freedom to be able to... You know, I knew back then that my sister fancied the drummer out of Duran Duran the most, just like I knew that my mum um, fancied Romeo Challenger out of Shawati Body. <laughs> but but he, they were able to talk about these things. I wasn't. But but the, the, I think that's partly the partly the you know Duran Duran. They're a British success story, aren't they? And I guess we should yes. feel proud. But I find it difficult to have affection for them because their rise mm. was just so in a sense unproblematic and they, they were just immediately hugely successful they got massive and with minimal mm. minimum derailments they they just stayed massive forever and whenever you mm. watch or read anything about Duran there's no there's no drama as such there's just this implacable rise to success with the best mm. of everything which is probably yeah. mirroring what Duran themselves were trying to achieve obviously not anything to do with punk the new romantic thing, because of Spandau and the rivalry between the two, I, I think really what Duran were harking back to was a pre-punk age. And not in a glam mm. sense, a, a pre-punk age in terms of a, 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 you know, big studios, expensive equipment, massive mm. tours, big promotional budgets. They, they yearn for this and as such they pose no threat to anybody. And consequently, I just find it a little difficult to love them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, mm. There are songs that I dig. There is album. There is an album by Duran that I love, which is Rio, which is sort of an undeniably good album. Um, but in terms of having affection for them, they just seem to have unproblematically got massively famous and stayed stayed famous and yeah. stayed big. You know, and it, it's a difficult thing to, to fall in love with. The only yeah. drama was when his boat turned over. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. um, it was blatantly obvious to me pretty quickly after this period and up to Rio that they started then making increasingly dodgy records, uh, genuinely gimmicky records like Reflex, you know, with the with the YII yeah. bit, and you can hear Metal Nicky dropping his guts and all that, all those silly things, <laughs> all those silly things you can laugh at. Um, mm. So it's tricky. Um, you know, but by now it's irrelevant what DLT thinks. It's irrelevant what the enemy thinks about Duran Duran. They they have fans. Yeah. They have young yeah. fans who are reading the pop press, not the music press. They're reading smash hits. So yeah. so you know they were never going to be liked by the Inkies because they did something. They did several things that the Inkies never liked. For starters, they had mm. teenage fans almost exclusively, um, and they had those teenage fans without the antagonisation of those teenage fans' parents. Parents liked them as well, and there was no wit yeah. or oddity really to their music. It was just it was just honest music. The songs came mm. from Le Bon's poetry book, you know, 
Um, he didn't yeah. really see it as a platform for anything else. I remember reading an interview Paul Morley did when riots were going on in Birmingham at the time, down the road from yeah. where they were going to play a show, and they didn't care. You know, they were just annoyed that their yeah. entertainment was kind of being interrupted with. So they crafted well-played songs that they could play with a session man's competence, and they had that emphasis yeah. on just entertainment and escape. So so the Inkies were never going to like them, but that's why ultimately they were probably far more influential than anyone else in terms of what would go on to happen in the 80s because Duran were a, a kind of reassertion of a tradition. They had nothing to do with, a, uh, with punk. They really had a lot to do with that reassertion of, yeah, the, the kind of early 70s days of the record industry. Um, so it's a new sound, I guess, but it's absolutely sucked dry of any threat to the industry. So the Inkies are going to hate them. And finally, sorry... Yeah. Um, one thing music journalists hate always is when a band gets popular by diluting better sources. So mm. when you hear early Duran, if you're a music journalist in the early 80s, you are hearing Magazine and Roxy and Japan and Simple Minds and all these bands that you've been trying to boost who aren't getting mm. anywhere. And then suddenly this band comes in, prettifies things, simplifies things a little bit and immediately has monster hits. So they were never going to appeal to kind of proper music fans, if you like. I guess that should make me like them more, but it, it doesn't. I find it very difficult to feel affection towards Duran. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that it's easier to enjoy and maybe admire their records than to love them. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but my first thought when I see Duran Duran is it's incredible that they pulled this off. Right. Hmm. And I sort of, I kind of love them for that because we should sit and watch this now almost 40 years on and feel embarrassed for them, you know, that they Hmm. went out there with this amount of talent and these clothes and this hair and and that singer and did it. You know, this should have been a disaster and it has been a disaster whenever anybody else has tried it, like, you know, won the juggler or blue zoo. drum theatre and even now I'm not really sure if it was just sheer chutzpah or Mm. something to do with the times or you know a particularly fortunate blend of modest talents or it's probably a bit of all of that stuff but not only did they pull off pop stardom and indeed superstardom they nearly pulled off what they were really trying to do which was to uh, be that famous while making arty, interesting music. And they fell short of that, partly because they weren't that talented and partly because they set the bar really high. They wanted to be like Roxy Music and Chic and mm. Mark mm. Bolan, mm. you know, which is a hopeless yeah. dream for these dorks, you know. And by those standards, <laughs> um, they failed. They make asses of themselves. But Still, in itself, a lot of their best music really is quite peculiar and it's pretentious, but it's gleefully pretentious and it's obnoxious, but it's intriguingly obnoxious. <laughs> and yet it was more popular in its day than almost anything else. And it's appealing to people who hear it now, right? Young yeah. people who don't remember it, yeah. like Duran Duran records, um, partly because they don't have the snobbery and snootiness, but also because it's gross and tasteless music but at the same time, it's cute and poppy. So yeah. it it really succeeds. And also, because they've got that classic show-off pop appeal, that they come on like complete burks, but they get away with it because mm-hmm. you can tell that behind the moody glares, they're so obviously laughing on the inside, you know. 
And it doesn't surprise me, obviously, that serious pop critics of the time thought they were vapid and mm. hollow and all that. Because they are, you know. It does surprise me a bit they couldn't see the charm behind that. Yeah. But then again, we no longer live in that world where everything seems to matter intensely, you know. And everything seems <laughs> mm. up for grabs. I mean, we're too broken for that. So maybe if we were rushed back in time to the eve of the make-believe revolution, you know, or just a period when Ghost Town was a plausible number one record, you know, that this would seem like pap and nothing more, and there would be something offensive in that, you know. But for better or for worse, we don't hear that now. Mm. I mean, I was never, ever going to like Duran Duran. But I, I must say, when Planet Earth came out and it was on the radio all the time... Didn't bother me. It's like, oh, this, yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, it's a tune, it's a tune. But this sounds to me like the mandatory, allowable second hit a band gets before completely sinking into oblivion. Mm. You just look at this and listen to it now, and you just think, oh, well, they're done. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're not coming back from this. Yeah. But isn't it right that, that this was, like you say, this was a decision by the record company to put this yes. out? And then straight yeah. up, because of the failure of this single, they gave all of that decision-making back to the band. Um, yes. So the next single is Girls on Film, isn't it? Which is yes. obviously just a, yeah, a storm. But that's, so, yeah. Isn't that remarkable? Because normally what a record company does is make a decision over your heads. And then when it <laughs> fails, they go, okay, you failed, bye. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, this does yeah. sound like a like a a shitter follow-up to planet earth you know yeah yeah i mean i think we should maybe save our thoughts on golden era duran until one of those records comes up yeah i I still say rio is a classic it's a great record um it's undeniably a great record good songwriting brilliantly Mm. played i'm saying boring things about it but that's why it worked and that's why they were so successful because they knew how to write you know, diamond tight hits and and play them brilliantly you know but they worked up to that as well because that's the thing this Drown, drown, this sort of clearly new wave influenced sort of churning live band drown, drown. Uh it's like a different group it's like they this mm. doesn't really sound like drown, drown, as we think of them it sounds like if the cure had been forcibly cheered up by the massive application of cocaine um, <laughs> it's a different sound but it's because despite appearances they were a new, organically formed rock-type group. Do you know what I mean? They weren't a band that had been around for a while and had just popped themselves up like a lot of the early 80s groups were, you know. They hadn't been around for years and years and years, and it's like, okay, we know what we're doing, now let's go for the charts. And they didn't have these great creative musical talents behind the scenes. It was just this, and they had to Mm. stumble through this phase before they really worked out how to write and perform. Yeah. You know, yeah. or indeed worked out what did and didn't suit them visually. Um, yeah. mm. Which, again, they did, apart from Andy Taylor, who doesn't suit anything. Um, <laughs> and, but, I mean, it's funny to see how anonymous Nick Rhodes is here, right? He's got these sort of yes. understated clothes and dark hair disappearing into the shadows, you know, behind the yeah. stage. I mean, if he'd... If at any point in this clip Nick Rhodes had started talking, his accent wouldn't have sounded as weird and incongruous as it as it would later, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell but they're I mean, not quite ready. Like when they start, mm. there's like an awkward bit where the the neck of John Taylor's bass is in Simon Le Bon's way, 
and there's always that terrible fear that they're going to actually bump into each other like a load of idiots from Birmingham and Pinner, you know. Mm. <laughs> they don't and there's, quite there's similarly right. no sp- there's similarly no space in the music. That's the thing. They're all playing yeah. everything they can all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But the, the, the thing is with Duran, from the off, you don't get the feeling that anything happened to them by luck, in a sense. It, it's kind of that there was this master plan already in place, you know, for, from years back. Mm. They wanted to be the biggest band in the world and they went ahead and did it. I, I would ordinarily applaud such achievement of that ambition, but it's perhaps that that stops me loving them. I was sitting here watching this as I would have done as a 13-year-old lad going, oh, fucking hell, this is cat shit. The lead singer looks like a fucking Greek waiter. (laughs) Just get this shit over with and play me the number one because that's what I want. But they are unquestionably the best-looking band uh, that's on this show tonight. Um, If you're a teenage girl watching this, you're going to fancy all of that band. They were all incredibly good-looking. And you can see... Okay, with the benefit of hindsight, you can see, even if you can't hear, that they're potentially bound for stardom. Because even though they're not very good yet, they have Mm. that winning combination of of silliness and genuine self-assurance, even though that self-assurance is not yet entirely appropriate. Uh, But it works because they're not serious and they don't really pretend to be serious. Or at least there's always that invisible Mm. wink you know, that's it, there for those who can mm. see it. Yeah. Which certainly so. wasn't me in 1981. <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing is, I think up until watching this episode, uh, I thought this song was called We're the Girls from Reveille. <laughs> you know, the magazine that was the uh, the rival of Tipness <laughs> yes. in the 70s. Uh, th- that's what I thought the song was called. <laughs> We're the Girls from Reveille. <laughs> So the following week, Careless Memories stayed at number 37 before dropping to number 38 the week after and then sliding right out of the charts. See, they're fucked. However, the follow-up, Girls on Film, went all the way to number 5 in August of this year and although they closed out 1981 with My Own Way only getting to number 14, Hungry Like the Wolf kicked off a run of 10 top 10 singles and two number ones over the next five years. Memories. Well, very soon, the big one. First of all, the top ten. Up ten places to number ten this week, it's Kim Carnes with a beautiful record called Betty Davis Eyes. Some straps to all somebody. I hate voices like Usual that. editorialising over records kids don't like. Down four places to number nine this week, Ennio Morricone and Key Mai. Oh. What a crap video, though. Hills. Missed. It's also a drop of four places to number eight for Madness with Grey Day. Probably their best tune, I reckon. Kids across Britain just, yes. Still at number seven, Ario Speedwagon. No kids across Britain, so yeah. (laughs) Four to number six, Swords of a Thousand Men from Temple Tudor. 
sort of lost something post-Brexit, this record, isn't it? <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur, the FA Cup final squad, Chaz and Dave at number five with this one. Look at that flag that looks like a Confederate flag for Tottenham supporters. <laughs> It's a bit wrong. <laughs> and up five places to number four this week, Kim Wilde with Checkered Love. Oh, you've got to put down some paper so she doesn't hear you plopping. <laughs> few memories for you at number three. Still the same place as last week, it's Star Sound. No, fuck off. Number two, it's still the same position as last week from Jake and Stevens. Proper billiard table there. And I immediately like this song better now, it's just him and no tosses around it. Adam and the Ants are still there at the top of the pile. Number one, Stan. Um, top 10 all videos and uh, you know so, some proper tunes in there and some drag as is as is the want anything anything standing out for you in that top 10 the NAO Morricone uh, tune had me welling up not because it's got any particular emotional um, attachment for me but just I remember being fearful of that record as a child um, because I knew it was emotional and I knew it was sad yeah. and, and when you're a kid sometimes you prepare yourself you, you know that that's going to upset you so you fear it, and and I couldn't go near that tune. Every time I even heard a little bit of it, I felt myself welling up a little bit, and oh. and you couldn't avoid it because not Thinking only that about was... the decline of the Liberal Party. Well, who knows? <laughs> just thinking of sadness, just preparing myself for the sadness that that melody and that arrangement brings, and and you couldn't avoid it because people used to buy us like you know best of Mantovani records and things like that, and mm. Mantovani did covers of covers of that tune as well. It was it was kind of omnipresent to a certain extent and I, yeah. I felt a little frizz on a fear just hearing it again yeah I mean it was uh, it was Life and Times of David Lloyd George wasn't it mm, yes mm. the theme to that yeah you see like so uh, there is an attachment there for Neil some people say my father knew Lloyd George hmm. Neil say my mother knew boy George was gay <laughs> yeah no, no yes. true enough true enough although that tune as well I mean I'm, it's confused in my memory I think with the theme from the deer hunter which I also have similar uh, emotional fear of so hence it's yeah. tied together yeah See, what made me sad about that top 10 was uh, when it got to Stars on 45 mm. and Dave Lee Travis says, a few memories for you. <laughs> for who? Yeah. For who, you cunt? Yeah. Not, not the audience of this programme, not the audience who live for this programme and don't have a clue mm. what, what he's talking about. He, this is who he thinks he's broadcasting to yeah. already. You know, <laughs> yeah. older I mean, what he means really is, here's a few of my memories yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, when yeah, I was thanks. trying to grope Usher in, in a studio in Bremen. I've installed your memories in my brain, and I have to say the music sounds much worse than it should. And yeah, I suddenly have this memory of relentlessly mauling a clearly uncomfortable German woman yes. on national television. <laughs> oh, and what's this? Uh, what? Apparently, I was the real A6 murderer. Oh, I never knew that. <laughs> very, very interesting. A horrible time for medley records for all round. Oh, yes. Because oh, I'm pretty yeah. sure this was the year of uh, Hooked on Classics as well. It was it was just a grim time. Non-stop fucking stars on 45 shit. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll get to it at some point. But anyway, 
the number one single this week, Stand and Deliver by Adam and the Ants. We've already covered Adam and the Ants in chart music number eight, and this is the official follow-up to Ant Music, which got to number two for two weeks in January of this year, held off the top spot by Mark Chapman and the Bullets. (laughs) However... Between then and now, his old labels Decca and Do It Records have been shitting out old Ant product, resulting in Young Parisians getting to number 9 for two weeks in February, Car Trouble getting to number 33 in February, and Xerox getting to number 45 in the same month. This single, from their third LP, Prince Charming, which isn't out for another six months, crashed into the charts at number 1 two weeks ago, knocking Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz off the top. It's now in the third week of its reign, so here's another chance to see the video. And oh, what a treat it was at the time to see this video. Fucking too right. Oh, I mean, all hail. I, I, you know, the, I don't want to demystify the chart music process, but ordinarily when I watch uh, these old episodes, I watch them and then I do a bit of research and a bit of, mm. you know, that. For this, I did no research for this because what I wanted to do was recover that moment that I first saw this, um, which was, you know, not about knowing where it came from or what was being blended here. It was just this instant thrill. Taylor earlier said, like the moon crashing through your, through your roof. This, this was that. It was beamed in from mm-hmm. Venus. Um, and, and, and although at repeated viewings, because inevitably you did get repeated viewings, you kind of vaguely, even as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old kid, you registered the worlds that he was combining yeah. And, and the kind of dandies and the highwaymen and all of that, the music remained totally immune to analysis because you hadn't really heard the maybe the Burundi music that, that formed no. its rhythms. And for those of us born too late, um, I mean, born too late it goes for a lot of us, but for those of us born too late for those nation-changing kind of epochal performances from T-Rex and Bowie, this kind of thing was our mind-bomb moment. Mm. Um, you know, way more than anything more musically sophisticated from that era. It had this rawness. It was marching music yeah. and it was stomping music. It just got inside you. And and then singing on top of this insane music that resembled no other music that you knew about anyway, you've just got this beautiful man with incredibly expressive eyes when he's singing and, and crucially really performing only to yeah. you in the videos. You don't really get in Adamant videos of that period... Um, and of course everything was just captivating by him in this Mm. period Um, you don't really get moody side shots of him do you know what I mean singing to some audience that he's doing it for you get him um, singing at you directly in the face (laughs) in a way Um, and and full face with his eyes looking at you so you notice everything you notice that lovely little camp pout he gives you in between conscience will be mine and all mine and and I think the slow motion bit near the end of this video, when he escapes the gibbet and he stomps off, it, it is it is one of the just finest and dandiest moments in all British pop. Um, and I, so when I watch this now, I still have to put my hand over my mouth to stop myself squealing. He's he's too much still. Um, I remember my, my my daughter watching this, my my youngest daughter, and her first response was just laughter, and it was the joyous laughter. It wasn't laughing at mm. him. It's just she couldn't believe that such a pop star yes. existed. Um, he's probably my favourite pop star from my youth because of these videos. Um, and you have to remember, you know, when you're eight or nine, you might not be actually buying records that much. You had the radio where his records always sounded amazing. Yes. 
Um, and you had these appearances on telly, these occasional views of his video, which were just like pipe bombs in your day. They just blew yeah. your mind. So um, I, I, I can't bring out, I, I, I've not researched this record because it just hits me. Like it just hits me like an like an earthquake, and and he is our bowling. He's our Bowie moment for 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 us kids who were born too late for those moments. Adamant provided them. Yeah, yeah, it's genuinely hilarious to watch this now, right? Like partly because it's funny, but also because this bloke is doing everything a modern pop idol would be discouraged from doing. You know. And he's yeah. doing it in ways which suggest to the audience that he's authentically off his head, you know. And this would have been sneered at at the time and was for being overly commercial. But you look at it now, mm. it doesn't look commercial at all. It looks completely insane. <laughs> I mean, just the fact that the yeah. biggest teeny bop star of 1981 could make a video which climaxes with him on a gallows with a noose around his neck. Mm. Um, yes. As opposed to the previous decade where practically everyone in the music industry should have been on a gallows with a noose around their neck, but would never have served up such troubling or interesting imagery to a teen audience, right? Which they who they would rather disturb yeah. privately. Um, it's so amazing. And I, there's something that I've never even noticed in this video until I watched it for this uh, all the times I've seen it, is the row of black guys dressed as American GIs standing on the scaffold yeah. behind Adam, right, who are only there mm. to look askance as he leaps to freedom and to fill the frame with even more visual lunacy. You know, it's this overload of imagination, uh, all of it trashy mm. and preposterous, but defiantly so. And it's a wonderful thing that could only have been the biggest thing in the country at this one moment, you know, where yeah. somehow it seemed to make a funny yeah. kind of sense. And from now on, pop fans, it's almost as if pop fans lost that in that sort of instinctive understanding of absurdity and suddenly started asking boring questions, right? Like, what's, what's all this supposed to mean? You know, why is he dressed as a highway man? <laughs> you know, this is stupid. You know, yeah, like within yeah. a few decades, they'd be reduced to hour long conversations about chicken pancetta. <laughs> yeah. You know. I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, these bloody kids, you know, eating their newfangled hamburgers. But, you know, but it's. I'm, but it's not me. It's it's those little bastards. They're like geriatrics, you know. Not, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the the video is essentially Adam um, poncing about in a really good way, um, slagging off everybody else for being tramps who were trying to look like mm. him and a shit at yeah. And it seemed a very expensive video. Yeah, this video cost more um, than a feature film. That's what, mm. what people used to say in the 80s, isn't it? So what me and yeah. Price used to say whenever a band did a video that wasn't just a filmed performance, you know. People would have this <laughs> terrible, indignant, thing about this western decadence you know this video costs more than a feature film <laughs> and i knew it was expensive because of the way that adam disdainfully rips the headphones of the sony walkman off that knob who he's coated <laughs> down for looking like a trap yeah. yeah. and just throws it on the floor and it's like fucking hell man that's yeah. that, does he not know how much they cost <laughs> i mean I'm, i tried to do a bit of research for now i'm trying to find out what how much a sony walkman cost in 1981 the nearest i could get is the argos catalogue for a binatone uh, version 
and uh, fifty pound. Oh. Fifty pounds in nineteen eighty one. Wasn't the dole about twenty quid a week in nineteen eighty one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Blimey. There you go. Yeah, the devil take your stereo. Also, that bloke that who stagecoach he holds up. He looks like an off-duty policeman. <laughs> He's got yes, like a he cop yes. tash. Uh, yes. But also, the best thing about this video, and something else which makes me sad about the modern world, it draws on all this corny stuff, which was part of the weird, musty richness of a kid's cultural understanding back then. Right? Mm. Well, it was nothing yeah. to do. So you watch TV or you listen to the radio or you leaf through old books or whatever was lying around. And in that boredom, a hundred doors flew open, you know. Like you choose yeah. not to walk through most of them, but you saw inside. So you grow up with an awareness of things um, of which you had no real knowledge or interest in, uh, as well as the things that you liked. That's really spot on, Taylor. And the highwaymen, you know, they were the interesting bits of history lessons. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And, and you yes. got you got excited by those moments. So to see that, you didn't make that direct connection necessarily because watching the video, it's such an enclosed world in a sense. You, you, I didn't, as a kid watching this, that, oh yeah, they're a band that play gigs and they get in the van and they play this venue and they think this. Yeah. They existed in that video. You know, in that world. And that world was a magic mirror world. That wasn't reality. It had roots somewhere in in our historical past, I guess. And it, and it it was obviously human beings walking about, but that wasn't the world. They must have stepped through some magic aperture into this place. Yeah. And and that was my understanding of Adamant. It wasn't as a kind of yeah, as a as a working band remotely. He was a total, yeah, the pop star beamed in from Venus from from God knows where. Yeah. But you yeah. could understand the absurdity because you could understand all the elements of it, you know. Mm, mm. And all the imagery. I mean I'm not I'm not suggesting that kids now should be forced to sit through episodes of Bonanza or whatever, <laughs> you know. Just so that they know about uh, cultural crap. I just think the world's getting narrower, and I find it a bit scary, personally, because that great wild galaxy of crap, like that sort of mm. horrible panoply of curious reference points, right? For me, that's all there is, in a way. Like it's the world that I was raised in, and mm. it was cluttered. And it was constantly expanding. And you could always find something to laugh at or to play with in your imagination, right? And a man could dress up as a dandy highwayman. And it sort of meant something. Like it triggered mm. something somewhere <laughs> in your brain. Yeah. Like a different angle or a, a different colour. It was just part of living in a busy world where the human imagination was, was valued, even at its silliest. You know, as opposed to being marginalised and largely distrusted, and I just think you take that away, um, and yeah, okay, all you lose is uh, you know a load of a load of boring crap, and you know, sort of uh, films about Charlie Chan and things, you know, which nobody really ever <laughs> needs to see again. But you just feel like all that's left then are, are brands and uh, a fight for resources. Yeah. And the pervasive, damaging idea that music has to be from the heart. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, um, which is which is dangerous. This this music is 
hearts are involved, don't get me wrong, but this is from somewhere else. This is from, like you say, the imagination, and that's what makes it so thrilling. Yeah, and the, she- the sheer power of hysteria and hilarity, like to affect you and to move you, you know. Yeah, you couldn't sit still listening to this. Oh, your hands would be going like a bastard on your legs, wouldn't yeah, they, doing the yeah, drumming? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my mum used to take the piss out of me when she caught me doing that, <laughs> when I heard it on the radio for the first time. And, you know, even my mum caught off with it because she would sing, she'd sing this song all the time, but she'd change the lyrics to, stand and deliver your money or your wife, take me wife. Uh, uh, <laughs> we used to sing, stand in your dinner. <laughs> nice. And then I think it rhymed about something about a knife, you know, like a like, you know, like a knife you eat with, you know. But I mean as a as a thirteen year old this was dead excited, but but as an eight year old it must have been even more yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly when he came in through the uh through the window. Fuck me, what a moment. And he's so yes. high up. I mean, you know, that yes. was that's a that's a fantastic moment. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the moment when the dogs open their mouth to correspond with one of the moans in the record—that's a spot on moment. <laughs> it, it's that—it's that tight that mode. It, it's that thing of having the generosity to have the humour in your music. But this is nothing. A kid would laugh at this, but with a glee and and not with not yeah. with scorn at all. It's just this fantastic rollicking party that you are part of, and and yeah. and everyone in it. This is this is the crucial thing that. that He's not singing this song at anyone normal. Nobody in this video is normal. Everybody mm. in it is a, a strange confection of things. Um, so you, your eyes, you, you drink it in the first time you see it, but you know, you're only getting about 10% of what is there. Um, so you want to see it again. So hearing those records on the radio, particularly with Adam and the Ant's drum sound on AM radio, that, that it was just so fucking thrilling, those records on radio. And, and yeah... An Adam Ant video showing is an event in a kid's life when you're eight or nine. It, it's, it jacks you up like to, you know, with adrenaline. Yeah, but there's also yeah. a, a sort of a weird depth underneath it. Um, like, I never knew what to make of his restless eyes and mouth in all these mm. videos. Yeah. And I'm still not sure how much of that is performance, like exaggerated smouldering, and how much of it is yeah. you know, inner disquiet itching to get out like the final shot in several of his videos is him staring into a mirror or out of a mirror Mm. with a kind Mm. of depersonalized Mm. blankness you know which always sits a little bit strangely with all the pantomime stuff and the hijinks and the saucy cosplay um, that's come immediately before when Mm. we did prince charming i remember commenting on the climax of that video where an image obsessed man with mental health issues, attacks a mirror with an enormous hammer. Um, and there's something a little bit disturbing about the last scene here, too. There's this sudden uh, solemnity, you know, and I'm probably yeah, reading yeah. far too much into this. But for, no, for no. a number one pop pinup, uh, you know, if, if you can read anything into their work at all, that's a pretty heavy achievement in itself. Yes. Yeah. No, that end moment is solemn. And, and previous to that moment, there's a moment where he's singing the final lines of the song uh, right down the lens at you. And the way his eyes are so important in all these videos because his eyes, it's like he's looking at you and he's looking at you up and down almost, not in a sexual way, but in a way that is almost like you are excited by this as I am excited yeah. about this and I'm excited by you. 
I think you're great. And I'm, I'm not yeah. saying I went away from these videos punching the air with self-belief or anything, but you were, yeah. you, you felt part of it and, and you felt that he was, in a weird way, <laughs> of course he wasn't, but in a weird way, he was as interested in you as you were in him. Uh, this is a really mm-hmm. delightful moment towards the end of the video that seems to imply that. So, Stand and Deliver would stay at number one for two more weeks until it was usurped by Being With You by Smokey Robinson. The follow-up, Prince Charming entered the charts at number two and then got to number one for four weeks and they'd finished the year with Ant Rap spending three weeks at number three. By then, Adamant had burned himself so deeply into the national consciousness that he received the ultimate accolade, being parodied by Ronnie Corbett in the 1982 <laughs> Ronnie's Christmas special when Adam and the Nats performed Spider Woman. Yeah. I ain't got six legs, I've only two, but I'd like to get one over on you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I still contend that Bad Habits by Buster Gut was uh, was was the better song there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So lot for tonight. I'll see you at 2.30 on Radio 1 tomorrow. I hope you can join me. And this is what I call a mask. From everybody at the top of the pops, good night. Take care. Bye-bye. We're here! Chicago in 1933, Quincy Jones didn't make a living as a trumpet player in assorted jazz bands in the 50s, as well as playing in the house band on the CBS stage show, including the first six television appearances by Elvis Presley. After being offered a job as music director of Mercury Records' New York studio, he was promoted to vice president of the label. Working on the side as an arranger for Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra and Nana Muscore, scoring myriad film soundtracks and producing singles for Leslie Gore. He logged his first entry in the UK charts in 1978 when Stuff Like That got to number 34 in August of that year and around the same time when he was producing the soundtrack for The Wiz he hooked up for the first time with Michael Jackson who asked him to recommend a producer for the debut solo LP he was about to start on. After he offered himself, Jackson accepted. Meanwhile, Chaz Jankel, who had just left Ian Jury and the Blockheads, put out his self-titled debut solo LP in 1980, which featured this song, which was put out as a single, but only got to number 18 in Belgium. However, Jones liked the cut of his jib and got in the singers Charles May, otherwise known as June, and Patty Austin to record it for his 1981 LP, The Dude, and it was released as the first single from that LP. It's done much better than the original, getting to number 28 in the USA, and this week it's up here from number 16 to number 14. Um, And yeah, we can talk about the song, but let's talk about Travis at the end. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, he's being forced to get involved with the music. How does he? How does he respond to this? Yeah, he's got his hat pulled firmly over his eyes. Yes, his his uh, hat is now a flaccid mess, really, that keeps banging mm. in his face in an unpleasant way. 
Yes. And he's frugging mildly whilst pretending to play Blind Man's Buff as this record is Yes. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Blind Man's Buff with David E. Travis. What a <laughs> what an appalling thought. So he can just accidentally blunder into <laughs> a young woman with his arms outstretched. And curiously, it seems that everyone's gone home. I mean, uh, where are the hundreds who were there earlier? As the camera pans out... Yeah, well, as soon as Shake is gone... That, yeah. When yeah. Shake goes to sleep, all his friends go to sleep too. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the camera pans out for ages until the remaining stragglers in the audience, they kind of recede into the distance. It's a very bizarre ending that accentuates, yes. your, it accentuates your feeling as a kid, I think, that, you know, it's kind of... Uh, you've, wa- you've had your half hour of pop, you know, bye-bye pop. You'll have to wait another week for any more pop. Um, yeah, the party's going away. Yeah, and of course you only get fifty seconds of this record, yeah. mm. which is what they were doing around this point—just jamming a bit of something mm. here and there. You know, it's as if pop songs are like sellotape, and you could just tear <laughs> off whatever length <laughs> you required. You know, and it would be just the same. Like two minutes of a song is just one minute, but double. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I said, yeah, it's all right, this record. It just doesn't really belong here, does it? No. Do you know what I mean? No. It's like at the end of this particular show. Yeah. It's like, it's as if you've been gorging yourself on saturated fats and tartrazine, mm. you know, and then someone gives you a, like a phyllo pastry and some broccoli. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like in, in a sense the whole episode is it's a glut of kind of British oddity in a lot of ways, and yeah. the Smoky record and this record really stand out, uh, and not yes. in a positive way either, um, yeah. not in a not in a good way. Um, I mean. I was intrigued to find out that Herbie Hancock plays on this record. He contributes Rhodes to it, and I love Herbie. Right. But beyond that, yeah. I mean, you'd expect that from Quincy to put an amazing group of players together. But yeah. in the context of this show, it, it, it's a bit dull. And actually, it feels rather retrograde and dated compared to, you know, you've just had Adamant, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, you know, you cannot follow that, really. No. Yeah. The most amazing thing is that you could write a record this relatively dull. Uh, about uh, being suffocated and having your cock chopped up, yeah, which is is what it is about because <laughs> it's it's based on I know Corrida yeah. in the realm of the senses, right? About uh, whatever her name was, uh, Sada Abe, the sort of Japanese courtesan who famously uh, uh, killed the bloke she was with in. Uh, Autoerotic asphyxiation, mm. and then cut his dick off and carried it around with her for a bit. Mm. Yeah, um, which is, you know, it's the sort of thing that kids and people with the minds of kids find endlessly fascinating, <laughs> you know, and useful to lend sort of spurious depth to their daft art, you know, <laughs> without really trying. It's like the word Jesus. You just drop the word Jesus in, and it sounds like you're heavy, mm. you know. Really, I mean, it's an interesting story, but. Mm. You know, she was just a crazy person in a incompatibly crazy society. But that was what was interesting about the, it. The, uh, which is which is less dangerous than being a crazy person in a compatibly crazy society. The one thing I like about her whole story is the photo of uh, after she's been arrested. Um, it's a fantastic photo because it, it's her and about three Japanese um, military officers, and it's just you know big smiles all round. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All of them, just big grins on their faces. Uh, yeah. for, it's a strange end to such a disturbing tale. So I guess Charles Jankel must have liked the idea of writing a song about 
you know, him wanting to be suffocated and have his knob chopped off, which is entirely a matter for him. Yeah, but fair enough. It's hard to identify with, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I would, it'd be easier to identify with it if it had been about uh, wanting to drive a dustbin lorry over Dave Lee Travis's conservatory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if you, if you really wanted to explore the sensual world in a dark and transgressive way, he could have written a song about the horrible, negative exhilaration of that moment when something unexpectedly rips your earbuds out of your ears. Yeah. And the whole universe goes, doi, oi, 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 oi. And this is something that happens to me more often than it really should logically happen to anyone. But I think I notice it less than most people because I'm experiencing a low-level version of that feeling all the time. <laughs> must have been weird being Quincy Jones at this mm. point in history. Like, just as an artist yourself, you know, it was just strange to be behind this little curtain all the time, you mm. know, like a yeah. like an earthquake operator, <laughs> like the, pushing the little lever with a red ball on the end and mountains cracking off, you know. Mm. And it's like music fans knew who he was, yeah. but most people didn't, yeah, no, you know, and yeah. he was responsible for so much of it. But then some people like it better that way. Mm. I mean, the only Quincy I was uh, knew about at the time was the one who uh, who made all them young coppers vomit when he pulled back a sheet, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. the, then the swing music kicked in. He also liked his uh, his ladies to sort of look a little bit like a corpse for about three seconds. Yes, on his, on his boat, yes. you know, and it's like, oh, blimey. <laughs> so the following week I know Karina nudged up two places to number 14 its highest position and the follow up Razzmatazz got to number 11 in July which was his highest chart position in the UK until we all start slapping Quincy Jones's name over the Michael Jackson LPs that we still want to play but why would you want to listen to music that makes you hate when you can listen to music that makes you love? <laughs> so what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One plunges into the erotic dreams of Mrs Slocum. The final episode of the series of Are You Being Served, where the mad-haired protagonist is beset with fantasies about being taken hard by Mr Humphreys and tries to do something about it in real life. Jesus. Mm. Followed by Butterflies, where Rhea gets two birthdays from her husband and her bit on the side. Then it's the nine o'clock news, the Chinese detective, question time, the news headlines, and they round off the night with a repeat of Kojak. BBC Two is ten minutes into the pursuit of power, where Robert McKenzie talks to Enoch Powell about his philosophy and beliefs. Followed by People from the Forest, the Stephen Davis play about Andrei Sakharov. Then Man Alive examines the link between business and politics in Switzerland and finishes off with Newsnight. ITV goes into Young at Heart, the John Mills sitcom about a retired pottery worker in Stoke. Then TVI and then Peter Marshall and Judith Chalmers host the 1981 British Beauty Championships where Miss England, Miss Scotland and Miss Wales get picked out in one go. After the news at 10, it's soap and then check it out. Time teasers answer to something else featuring Stiff Little Fingers and the band Youth TV. Youth TV, fucking hell. (laughs) And signs off with a new series of Double Top, the Pub Darts Tournament. So, dear boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? 
um, adamant mm. all the way. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I could say now that I'd be talking about human league undertones, Duran, uh, etc. I think I'd be talking almost exclusively about adamant in an incredibly positive way, and probably talking about Toya in an incredibly negative way as well. So mm. not much has changed, really. No. <laughs> yeah. Although we, we'd all have seen Stand and Deliver before, so possibly something unthinkingly homophobic about Duran Duran mm. or yes. Phil Oakey's hairstyle. I mean, 1981 was 1981. Yeah. And what are we buying on Saturday? Didn't get that much pocket money. Yeah, well, what would you buy if you had the pocket <laughs> money, Taylor? Yeah, I can't narrow it down. The only bad records on here are Toya mm. and Tottenham. Mm. And, you know, most of the others are brilliant yeah. in some way mm. and to some degree. I mean, under normal circumstances, this might well be a contender for the best episode of Top of the Pops that we've ever covered. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, except that, sadly, the presence of I Want to Be Free drags the overall <laughs> average down <laughs> so badly that purely on points, this may, in fact, now be the worst episode <laughs> of Top of the Pops that we've ever covered. She, yeah, but, she's, poisoned, know, she's poisoned the well a little bit. But, yeah, I, then I would have bought Adam. Now, pretty much everything, bar perhaps... Toya, Quincy, Spurs, and uh, maybe Smokey Robinson. I definitely would not have got that record at that time. Mm. Yeah. And what does this episode tell us about May of 1981? Well, it, it, it was cooking. Yeah, it's fucking thrilling. There's so much going on, but crucially, there's no sense of dominance from anyone. Um, yeah. And it also reveals just in in watching it and remembering what this felt like, just how important Top of the Pops was at that time for pop listeners, way more than any other way of accessing music, even more important perhaps than the radio. The press, you know, I I really hope, that's why I was so gratified um, to read the other day of all those uncovered Top of the Pops episodes that have been discussed. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, depending on who the hosts are, obviously how many we'll get to see is, is a matter of conjecture. But Bet you any money, all of them have got Savile on them. <laughs> Possibly so. Possibly, which would be a real shame. But I mean, look, if I was sending somebody to look at something to teach themselves about what pop was like in a particular area, I don't think I would send them to the music press. The music press will kind of give you editorially a picture of pop. But the top of the pops metrics are just so random. It's like a mix yeah. of what the industry wants on, what the producers can get on. It's an absolutely kind of egalitarian yet chaotic way of putting a pop show together. And that's why finding new episodes is so important, not just for those of us who enjoy watching them, but as th- these are vital artefacts of UK pop history. And, and, and this episode, um, which is among the best that I think I've, I've looked at uh, doing a chart music podcast, is emblematic of that. It, it, if I wanted to conjure the excitement of 1981 musically in this country, yes, I could be sending you to all kinds of obscure records, but no, put this mm. on. It's a, yeah. it's a fucking, it's fucking thrilling. I'll tell you what, though. Imagine going up to someone in 1981 and saying, look, here's the charts of 1986. Yeah. Five mm. years. Five years. What happened? I know, right? yeah. Or informing them that in 1991... Everything on this program will be, albeit temporarily, will be mocked and cast out of the serious pop, or almost mm, everything, mm. just for coming from 1981. Yeah. You mm. know, which might, in a way, please some of the young rocking intellectuals of 1981 as a you know, demonstration of the transience of pop yeah. uh, until you play them selections from the charts of 1991. But, I mean, 
that just shows that nobody can steer this ship, right? Yeah. That pop music is sailing on a stormy sea mm. and conditions can change alarmingly quickly without anyone really being able to predict it or do anything to make it happen or to counteract it, yeah. you know. Nobody can really control it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Taylor, let's put Toya to one side. <laughs> this is definitely the best episode of Top of yeah. the Pops we've ever covered on chart music. And it it's so close to being the perfect episode of Top of the Pops. If you took out um, You Drive Me Crazy and replaced that with Don't Let It Pass You By by UB40, which had just entered the charts. And if right. you'd have took out the Stray Cats and had Legs & Co. dancing with Paul Shane to Holiday Rock, <laughs> <laughs> dressed as erotic Sue Pollards, this would have been the absolute pinnacle of Top of the Pops. <laughs> Gotta say, the price is right on 1981. Yeah. Great year and a great episode. And that... Pop Craze Youngsters is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains is for me to say www.chart-music.co.uk. Get us on facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Find us on Twitter, chartmusictotp. Money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you ever so much, Taylor Parks. Bye. Love you inside and out, Neil Kulkarni. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Al. My name's Al Needham, and so what if I dye my hair? I've still got a brain up there. (laughs) Sharp music.